Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special bonus Halloween episode of Turn to Page. We are going to be reading Dracula, Curse of the Vampire by none other than the Jonathan Green, who wrote the Twas book that we did last year for Christmas. And it was very, very good. Are you ready, Raps, to uh, suck the blood, but not actually kill the man who sucked the blood? I am ready to kill the man who sucked the blood. I am not ready to suck the blood. That means the man won. Yeah, that is true. The interesting Haven't you thing, read Dracula? Uh, uh, you had to put me on blast so fast, didn't you? We're not even a minute in. <laughs> We're not even a minute in and I've been exposed. Why would I hey, read that Dracula? I've only read Dracula? possibly 50 more pages of Dracula than you. That's probably true. But why would not I read... one complete more Dracula book dracula when i could see the movie that i also didn't see why would i see the movie when i could play the game that i didn't play so now you know what and it's cycling I... back around why would i play the game if i could read the sparks notes i didn't read exactly but the interesting thing about this game book uh first of all shout out you can pick it up on drivethroughrpg.com i just want to shout that out since jonathan green was you know, so nice as to, you know, be so kind with the Twas situation. I just want to pay that, you know, just make sure you get this book. If it sounds good to you, because this is one of those choose your own adventures where you are going to absolutely be able to do it a completely different way. Uh, mm -hmm. For another major reason, which is the fact that this book is actually split into two very clear disparate sections. One of which where you play as vampire hunters and one half of the book where you can be Dracula. And it's just a completely different adventure. So really, really cool just even for that. Uh, but I don't know. You have anything else you want to do to lead us in before you take us to the beyond the forest? Nothing especially. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, we'll we'll cover like the the rules and such as we go forward. They are generally the same as Twas if you listened through that one. And if you didn't, they are honestly pretty easy to understand so it's not really that big of a deal so introduce us to the world beyond the forest the book you hold in your hands or hear in your ears is a gateway <laughs> to the world of gothic horror and an adventure inspired by bram stoker's dracula huh? within its pages you will undertake a perilous quest to thwart the eponymous count's evil plans or perhaps become the bloodsucker himself and battle against the vampire hunters ranged against you for this is no ordinary book. Reading it, rather than reading it cover to cover, you will discover at the end of each narrative section you will be presented with a series of choices that allow you to control the course of the story. In Dracula, Curse of the Vampire, you will take on the role of one of three vampire hunters, either young solicitor Jonathan Harker, his fiancée Mina Murray, or Dr. John Seward, or the undead Count Dracula himself. No. You decide which route to take, which perils to risk, and which of the terrifying creatures you will meet along the way to fight. Ooh, all right. So, uh, as we scroll down, it then explains some of the rules. Generally, you know, we have some stats. We're going to have an inventory. We're going to have stuff to keep track of. We roll two dice for many things, trying to succeed on checks. And that's also how we do combat, rolling two, like, D6s, your standard, like, Monopoly dice. Uh, mm -hmm. And we'll cover over, like, more specifics as they are relevant. But we have three different characters. Before we started, we both kind of thought, 
uh, Jonathan Harker as, you know, he's the first one listed. He's the character who starts on page one. Also, for those who have read the Dracula book, we are in the know that he is the first character to show up in the book. Uh, we know that. So I think, I think it makes sense. All right. So down we go to the Dracula Curse of the Vampire. Do not tarry, but the dead travel fast. As we're playing as Jonathan Harker, we'll be turning to the very first page. All right. Jonathan Harker's journal, 30th of April, 1897. When we started for our drive, the sun was shining brightly on Munich, and the air was full of joyousness of early summer. Having arrived in the Bavarian capital of Munich with a day to spare before your train departs for Bistritz, the region of Transylvania in Romania, you decide to make the most of your enforced sojourn and instruct Herr Delbruck, the maitre der hotel of the... Oh my god, I'm being tested so fast. If only I'd read <laughs> Dracula of the Quash Saisons, where you are staying to hire a carriage so that you might go for a drive in the surrounding countryside. It being such a glorious day and all. Herr Delbruck does as you ask, just as you're about to depart. Comes down to the carriage and wishes you a pleasant drive. His hand still on the handle of the carriage door, he says to the coachman, Johan, remember that you are back by nightfall? The sun and sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind. It seems there may be a sudden storm. I know for sure that you will not be late. He smiles before adding, For you know what night it is. Johan answers with an emphatic, Yeah, yeah, my nair. And touching his hat, drives off quickly. If you want to ask the coachman what was so special about the night, turn to 31, otherwise go to 92. I mean, what? What's the worst that's going to happen if we ask? He laughs at us? That's actually pretty well... scary. It might be worth our moment uh, to introduce one additional system here, which is blood. Blood is a cumulative uh. stat that is going to increase over the course of the novel, and in doing so, increase the strength of Dracula. It increases when Dracula learns that we're on his tail. So if this uh, coachman happens to be allied, perhaps, with the Count, then this might allow him to know that we're looking into things. Curses, I'm more that than is happy true. to ask him regardless. I, I'm more than happy to as well, uh, but that is so true. that, that is the, There is actually a, an in-game mechanic, in-book mechanic, for stopping you from like stalling and exhausting every option, which I like. I feel like a lot of these game books mm. are afraid to do that. Um, okay, so... 31 it is I'm, I'm definitely down let's do it when you're clear of the town you signal the driver to stop uh tell me johan you say when you have the coachman's full attention what is tonight he crosses himself before answering oh, <laughs> yes uh Taking out his watch, a great old-fashioned German silver thing, as big as a turnip, he looks at it with his eyebrows gathered together and an impatient shrug of his shoulders, clearly unhappy about this unnecessary delay. If you want to press him to tell you more about this Walpurgisnacht, <laughs> turn to 63. If you merely want to motion for him to proceed, go to 92. We, of course, know from having read an earlier Twas novel that this means it's the night of Walpurgis. <laughs> And from us 
both reading Dracula extensively, we are well aware that Walpurgis <laughs> is the night that Waluigi uh, uh, goes buck wild and doesn't have to follow any rules. <laughs> only him. He's the only <laughs> one allowed to commit crimes on that day. <laughs> yeah. Ah, I've been committing them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the one day that he plays it straight. No <laughs> crimes for him on Walpurgis Nut. I'm going to be a good boy. <laughs> okay. Uh, Just do... suddenly becomes Luigi. Yeah. Uh, we've already asked. We've already risked, you know, punishment once and weren't punished. Does that mean we try mm. again? Or does that mean uh, that can't stop me because I can't read? I suspect we're being given a little bit of a hint here with the, uh, he is uh, gathered in his, or rather his eyebrows are gathered together in an impatient shrug of the shoulders, clearly unhappy with the unnecessary delay. I suspect this may uh, continue to enrage and peeve him should we proceed. And 92 is the same page that the the first time would have given us something. So maybe we say, okay, we got our, we got some information. Well, well, and I, <laughs> Okay. Yes, yeah. and go to 92. Just say, we'll thanks, that's it. good. I'm sure we'll, I think we'll figure out what's going on uh, sooner than later. Johan urges the horses forwards, and the carriage bounces over the rutted road. Every now and then, the horses throw up their heads and sniff the air suspiciously, causing you to scan the countryside you're passing. The thorough, wait, passing through for any sign of what had startled them. But there's nothing here, at least not anything that you can see. The road's quite bleak, for you're traversing a high, windswept plateau. As you drive, you catch sight of a road that appears little little used and which dips through a winding valley. It looks so inviting that you call Johan to stop. And when he is pulled up, you tell him that you'd like to drive down that road. The coachman starts to make all sorts of excuses and frequently crosses himself as he speaks, as well as looking at his watch as if in protest. Then the horses start to become restless again, their nostrils flaring as if they can smell something unpleasant on the breeze, and Johan grows pale. Jumping down, he takes the frightened animals by the bridles and leads them on some 20 feet. If you want to ask Johan what spooked the horses, turn to 122. If you do not want to know what has upset the animals, go to 154. <laughs> the, the phrasing on it, it's not... It, it's If you don't want to know... Yeah, it's it's not that I'm not interested. It's that I actively do not want yeah, to know. Exactly, which I can't say is true. But also, I would say if this was a real situation, I'd socially be like, okay, well, he clearly is upset with me and I don't want to ask him any more questions because I don't want to mm -hmm. make him have a bad evening. But if this is this is fantasy, I will live my truest self the the me that i always wanted to be and i would ask a question even though it would probably make him a little upset do you resist i i try and do it from the almost other direction of it would make him upset if i were unable to generate conversation over the course of this ride and what better conversation what better chat fuel than what spooked the horses it, yeah. I try and use it every day. It's seldom relevant. <laughs> yeah, I. It's like I, I go in and they say, I say, what spooked the horses? And they say, for the third time, I ask what you want on your sandwich. Spooky horses. Spooky horses. Okay. Oh. 122. 
For an answer, Johan crosses himself again, points to the spot you've just left, and then to a wooden cross set up at the road junction. Oh, they buried him. Buried what killed themselves. You've heard of the old custom of burying suicides at crossroads, but for the life of you, you cannot understand why that would frighten the horses. I don't like the next sentence. Tick off the code word suicide and turn to 154. Okay. So this brings up a mechanic. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, we have a collection of words that are going to be relevant in the future. It will ask us, have you, you know, if you've marked off the words ham sandwich, then continue on to this page. Otherwise, don't. Like, it'll open up potential options. I do remember in Twas, there was sometimes where marking off words was bad. Like, having, mm. but it's not something we can choose. This is not inventory. This is something that has happened. We have been informed of this. So... We have learned more about the world and we can navigate it differently now, to our detriment or otherwise. Exactly. Well, on to 154. Oh my. Well, Johan, I want to go down this road. You tell the coachman as you exit the carriage. I shall not ask you to come unless you like, but tell me why you don't want to go. That's all I shall ask. At that, he stretches out his hands appealingly to you and implores you not to go. There's just enough English mixed with the German for you to follow the drift of his talk. He seems to be on the verge of telling you something, the very idea of which evidently frightens him, but pulls himself up by simply saying, Walburgisnacht! You suddenly hear a sound somewhere between a yelp and a bark. It comes from far off, but it upsets the horses nonetheless, and it takes all of Johann's skill to quiet them again. That sounded like a wolf, you say. Yes. But there are no wolves here now. Johan replies, his face pale. Is it a long time since wolves were so near the city? You ask. Uh, long, long. The coachman answers. In the spring and the summer, with the snow and the wolves have not been here for so long. As Johan struggles to calm the horses, dark clouds rapidly cross the sky, the sunshine passes away, and the breath of cold wind teases at your hair and clothes. But it proves to only be a breath. A warning of worse weather to come, perhaps. For once the clouds have passed, once the clouds have passed, the sun comes out brightly again. Johann squints as he gazes at the horizon. The storm of snow, he comes before long time. He grumbles. Then he checks his watch and, keeping a tight hold on the horse's reins, climbs into the driver's box. You do not immediately get back into the carriage. Tell me about the place where this road leads, you say. Johann crosses himself yet again and mumbles a prayer before answering. It is unholy. What is? The village. There is a village? No. No one lives there for hundreds of years. But you said there was a village? You persist? Yes, was. So where is it now? Whereupon the coachman embarks upon a long story in both German and English, and so mixed up that you struggle to understand exactly what he is saying. But as far as you can tell, hundreds of years ago, much of the populace had died there and had been buried in their graves. But sounds were heard under the clay, and when graves were opened, men and women were found rosy with life, their mouths red with blood. And so, in haste to save their lives and their souls, those who were not left f fled to other places. Those who were left fled to other places, 
to where the dead were dead and not something else. Johan is evidently afraid to speak the last words. In fact, he is in a perfect paroxysm of fear. White face, perspiring, trembling, and looking around constantly as if expecting some dreadful pres presence to manifest itself there in the bright sunshine on the open plain. Finally, in agonized desperation, he cries, Walpurgis knocked! and points to the carriage for you to get in. Your English blood rises at this and stands, standing back, you say, You are afraid, Johan. Go home. I shall return alone. The walk will do me good. Taking your oak walking stick and closing the carriage door, pointing back to the city, you say, Go home, Johan. Walpurgisnacht does not concern Englishmen. There's nothing the poor fellow can do to dissuade you from the course of action you've decided upon. And so, with a despairing gesture, he turns the horses towards Munich. Do you want- wait, do you want to watch him depart and make sure he does as you have bidden, or will you set off down the winding road into the valley? Huh? Okay. Hmm. We told him to go home, and it's asking if we want to watch to make sure he does go home. Why would he not? Based off his voice, but I guess the fact that it's an option. I mean, I, I can't imagine why we want to watch him leave. <laughs> yeah, I can think of a good reason. <laughs> I can think of two. Uh, <laughs> maybe we set off uh, down the winding road into the valley, not to lose any of our time here, as yeah. the sun is starting to set. Yeah, I think that's fine. Let's turn to page 209. We will have to be a little bit more decisive with the fear of, you know, blood points, which I like. Turning down the side road, you head through the deepening valley. You don't see any reason for the coachman's objection to the route and walk for a couple hours without having any care of the time or distance covered. And without seeing a single person or even a house, the place is desolation itself. I thought of one thing. Maybe if we turned around, it would have been enough time for us to be like, he goes, okay, I will take you there. I changed my mind. Uh, maybe that... Well, hey, doesn't matter. And then on turning a bend in the road, you come upon a scattered fringe of woodland. You sit down and take a moment's rest and begin to look around. It suddenly strikes you how much colder it is now than at the commencement of your walk. And something like a strange sighing sound that seems to come from all around you is your constant companion. Thick clouds are massing in the sky overhead and sensing that a storm is coming, you resume your journey. Having lost all track of time, it is only when the deepening twilight forces itself upon you that you begin to consider how you might find your way back to the... <laughs> how do you... what do you think? Uh, to the Quat uh, Saison? Yeah, that. The air is cold. Uh, so it's just the French croissant. for Four Seasons. <laughs> the, the, the Four Seasons. That, that makes so, so much sense. I'm going to say the Four Seasons. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, the, it's pretty close to croissant. <laughs> <laughs> it is exceptionally close. <laughs> the, the croissant. Uh, the air is cold and the sound is carried on the wind, not unlike the mysterious cry you thought was made by a wolf, and for a moment you hesitate. If you want to retrace your steps back along the road that brought you into the valley, turn to 237. If you prefer to press on, determined to at least see the deserted village, having walked all this way, turn to page 10. I... Huh. I could have sworn... Not to metagame. Mm. I could have sworn page 10 was Grail Quest's page 4. 
uh, as in Ruin Productions? Or page four. Uh-huh. Yeah. Fourteen. Fourteen. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, with that uh, blighted vision of the future, I'm more than happy to go with the one, uh, sorry, two, three, nine. I mean, we could just like, you know, it's also knowledge that would we have made the decision? I probably would have made the decision to keep on going. Let's do it. Let's have would, it then. I, I would like to know that, but yeah, also, let's know that. Uh, for what it is worth, this character has effectively decided, like, oh, you're scared of something? Drive me there. You won't drive me there? I'll walk there. <laughs> like, this character seems quite determined. I, yeah. I don't imagine Jonathan would, you know, retreat such as. Yeah, but I think it's also worth noting if we do die, like, you know, we're going to have to, especially since this is for a special... Um, you know, event, Halloween event mm. here. We're we're definitely gonna fudge some stuff if it comes to it, so that we can see a at least a satisfying conclusion. So if we die, we're we're not just gonna be like, all right, we're done. <laughs> so page ten. Presently, you come to a wide stretch of open country, shut in by the hills around. Their sides are covered with trees. Looks like I was wrong, which I'm glad. Which spread down to the plain, dotting in clumps the gentler slopes and hollows that are visible here and there. The winding road curves close to the densest of these thickets before vanishing behind it. And then the snow begins to fall. Thinking of the miles and miles of bleak country that you passed, you hurry on, seeking shelter in the wood. Darker and darker grows the sky, while the snow falls faster and heavier until the ground all around you is glistening white carpet. The furthest edge of which is not is lost in mis- misty vagueness. In only a little while, you realize that you must have strayed from the road, for you miss the hard surface underfoot and your feet sink deeper into the snow. The wind grows stronger, the air becomes icy cold, and despite, in spite of your exertions, you begin to suffer its ill effects. Deduct two points from your endurance score now, which is, you know, worth mentioning that... Each character has their own set of stats. Jonathan's endurance score is what? What does he start with? He starts with 24. And because when you test endurance, you roll 4d6, uh, the maximum result on that is 24. So we would always have passed an endurance check. Now it is theoretically possible we fail. Great. Good to know. The snow is falling thickly and whirling around you in in rapid eddies so that you can barely see your hand in front of your face, while every now and again the heavens are torn asunder by vivid lightning. In the flashes, you can see ahead of you a great mass of trees, uh, chiefly you and cypress, all heavily coated with the snow. As soon as you're in the shelter of the trees, the rush of the wind is muffled by their snow-bent boughs. You realize that the darkness of the storm has merged with the darkness of the night, As the storm dies down, you hear all the weird wolf sounds again, which is now echoed by many similar sounds that all come from around you. Add a point to your terror score, which is something worth mentioning as well. It is a score that as it continues to grow, we may become less and less likely to perform actions that you need to be calm for, more or less. So that is Mm -hmm. understandable. The fact that it took him this long to get scared is honestly, you know, a compliment. Now and again. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I would be scared already. 
Now and again, a straggling ray of moonlight pierces the black mass of the drifting cloud, lighting up your surroundings with its otherworldly monochrome luminescence. Skirting the edge of the copse, you find a low wall encircling it, and following this, you soon come to an opening. Here, the cypresses form an alley that leads up to a square mass of a building. Just then, the drifting clouds obscure the moon again, and you pass along the path in the darkness. Shivering from the cold and nothing more, you're sure, knowing that there is at least the hope of shelter up ahead, you grope your way blindly in. And then suddenly the moonlight breaks through the clouds once more, revealing to you that you're not in a village, but a graveyard. The edifice ahead of you is not a house, but a massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lies on around it. With the moonlight, there comes a succession of long, low howls, as you might expect a whole pack of wolves to make. Impelled by some form of fascination, you approach the sepulchre, and etched in German, into the lintel above the Doric door, yes, are the words... You know what? Hit me with it, Raps. Countess Dollingen of Graz, in Stria, sought and found death, 1801. On the top of the tomb, seemingly driven through the solid marble, is a great iron spike, while on the back wall... Graven in a great Russian letters, you see... The dead travel fast. There's something so unsettling about this whole place that you start to wish you'd taken the coachman's advice and stayed away, and not done the book. You feel the cold perceptibly grow around you, until it seems to grip you by the heart, and your whole body begins to shake from fear as much as freezing effects of exposure. You start to back away from the tomb, moving towards the trees that mark the boundary of the graveyard. When the storm decides to unleash all of its fury upon you, the ground shaking as though thousands of horses are thundering across it, and the storm bears upon its icy wings great hailstones that beat down both leaf and branch. If you want to run for cover within the trees, 48. If you'd prefer to seek shelter within the spulker itself, 77. Great hailstones that beat down both leaf and branch. I think going and hiding under the trees is an instant death. It might not be an instant death, honestly. In this game, is probably, you know, endurance check. But, like, oh, boy, I don't want to get conked on the, the bunk yeah. with those. Yeah, it could be a dex check or something. I'm, I'm down to go 77. Let's so, do it. like, you know, I'll lead myself into danger if it means more likely that story happened. What before you sought to avoid, you now sprint towards. Hey, well. <laughs> so, seeking shelter from the hailstorm, however, before you reach the marble mausoleum, you are struck by the full force of the icy bombardment. Roll a die and add one, then divide the total by two. Rounding fractions up. You lose this many endurance points. We lose uh, two endurance points. Okay. Uh, there's an alternatively, because there is a way to, like... You can also do this with a deck of cards. So that's mm-hmm. why I stopped, oddly. Turn to 61. We're getting destroyed. I can only imagine the other one would have been even, even worse than I would 61. assume so. Destroyed. It's true. Reaching the deep Doric doorway of the tomb, of the doom, <laughs> you crouch against the massive bronze door, gaining at least some protection from the pummeling hailstones. For now, they only drive against you. They ricochet from the ground if they ricochet from the ground or the marble walls. But as you lean against the door with a groaning of ungreased hinges, it opens inwards. The shelter of even a tomb is welcome in the midst of such pitiless tempest. And you are about to enter when there comes a flash of forked lightning that lights up the whole expanse of the heavens. In that instant, 
As the darkness of the tomb is banished, you catch sight of a beautiful woman with plump cheeks and full red lips, seemingly asleep upon a stone byre. As the thunder breaks overhead, she stirs and rises from her marble bed, but you're not sure that even her feet are touching the ground. How can this be? Surely to have been lying in the stone-cold tomb in the graveyard belonging to a village that was depopulated centuries ago, the woman must have been dead. But then how is it that she just can appear as fresh as if she'd just woken up from sleep? Add a point to terror score, but also tick off the code word succubus. Oh, I wonder what this is. What did I... Is this a... I think it might be a Train what? conductor? Oh. <laughs> hey, those toot, are mutually toot. exclusive. You can be a succubus <laughs> and a train conductor. <laughs> toot, toot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Two terrorist score. I don't know enough to know if that's bad or not, but I can't imagine it's great. But... She suddenly fixes you with the eyes that seem to burn red and glides towards you, her hair and gown streaming out behind her in the gale that's found its way into the sepulchre. Her pristine features twist into a demonic snarl, and speaking German, she shrieks, Who would disturb my sleep this Valpurgis night? And then, hands outstretched before her, reaching for you with her fingers twisted into claws, she flies at you, screaming, no matter, you will pay with your life's blood. If you want to use the pen is mightier special ability, cross off one and use and turn to 131, otherwise 91. An important time. You know what? This is a much better way of going over the rules. <laughs> this is like, hmm. I've learned this from video game tutorials that like, you know, just getting it all up front. It's not the best way. I... I have learned many, many a time that if I've learned a fun, complex system, uh, spending the first 30 minutes to an hour explaining it <laughs> yeah. is awful. It sucks. No, I promise it's not a difficult board game. Just sit just sit and listen for one minute. I promise that you're going to uh -huh. after we go around the table I one time. I only need to read four more pages. Yeah. If it, it just, I promise once we go around the table and we play two turns, you're going to understand the whole game. But I know it sounds incredibly complicated right now. That's but, always true, though, as well. Like it is. You get two rounds around, and it's like, like oh, I've played this game I my entire it. life. Yeah, I get it. This is not. You're right. This is not hard. But also, they're like, I don't get it, uh, and it's like, yeah, I know, I know. But it's also, I have to say this stuff because it's going to make it easier for you to understand in a minute. But anyways, what mm -hmm. I'm getting at is the pen is mightier. It's a, a basically, if you listen to the Twas book, you would understand this as well. It was in that. It is a special ability that we have three of, three of with every character apparently in this book, which is interesting because we might be able to swap. Mm. Uh, but it's basically a get out of jail free card. If you think that the situation is about to get really dicey, you can say, I want to use one of my three luck charges basically to make this a good situation instead. So do you want to use the pen is mightier in this situation? Because... Here's my thought. The reasons mm -hmm. we would not want to use the pen is mightier is like, is this a waste of a situation? But my thing is also, is there a world where this is not bad when she says you will pay for with your life's blood? Well, I suspect like with get a fight, possibly choosing here between. Yeah, exactly. A fight or an invalidation of a fight by some extra means. Yeah. 
And where are you at on that? Um, I kind of want to go for the fight. All right. So what page is this in case it's an instant death? 61. 61, and we would be proceeding to 91. I'm just going to write suck above that with two C's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I remember what that is. As the woman you can only suppose might once have been, the Countess Dolingen of Graz, of course, rushes towards you. Her elongated eye teeth ooh, bared like fangs within a bestial grimace of your of a face. You prepare to defend yourself as best you can using your stout oak stick. In this battle, your assailant has the initiative, which more or less means that they get plus one. That's it. So... Cool, cool. They have a combat score of nine. What do we? What is our combat score? Uh, as Harker, it's ten. Okay. It also says right here: if you're still alive after six rounds of combat, or you reduce the Countess's endurance score to five points or fewer. Oh, it's at eleven right now, and we do two mm -hmm. points of damage per successful attack. So basically, you know, we just gotta hit six times, six damage, so three times. If we hit three times, or we survive six rounds, which sounds like a nightmare if that goes wrong, then we are done with this combat. So this can't kill us, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But we also can't completely kill her. It's true. Um. All right. I mean, I'm good to roll for the Countess. Excellent. I'll allow you to roll first as you have the uh, quote-unquote initiative, and then I will respond. Okay, I got a, so we get this and then I add, so that is a, okay, that is a seven plus nine. We're at a 16 here. Uh, It's not plus nine, right? So it's seven, which is lower than your combat score of nine. So you do two damage. Is that it? Oh, shoot. Is is it not just testing combat on her side Let me well? Let me go back up. I thought that it was a one, one to one fight. Let me look. I only ask because if she adds nine to her combat score every time, I don't think she's capable of hitting us. No, we're fighting our combat ratings against each other. It's a clash. Mm. So no, yeah, that's right. Roll two dice, add your combat score. Roll two dice, add your co your opponent's combat score. Those are the combat ratings. Oh, all the right. Okay, so I, I am over the moon to hear this because I thought we'd uh, screwed up by rolling an 11. Uh, it turns out, no, we have not screwed up by rolling 11. We still managed no. to connect an attack of 21 combat strength. Yeah, so since your roll is higher than my roll, we win the fight, or win the round, dealing two damage. Mm -hmm. That's how that works. So the question is, uh, I think that initiative might change. Uh, one second. If you win a combat round, you get initiative in the next combat round. If the opponent wins, they get initiative. So, so yeah, so we actually, and then on top of that, we have the initiative now, which is just the plus one, and she does not get the plus one, which I did forget Hell to, yeah. I did forget to add, but also did not matter. All right. Well, as we have the initiative now, uh, and I'm not going to flavor them ridiculously because there will be a reasonable amount of combat in this book. Good gosh. Uh, 17. This stout oak stick uh, proves incredibly valuable in the fight as we spin around in a circle and club her twice in the face. Once in the first round, once in the second round, as we rolled here a 21 again. Oh my lord. 
Okay, yes, she got a 17, so yeah, you get initiative again. And if... Okay. Let me add oh, boy. Well, uh, well, I suppose yeah. she's probably going to get this round. <laughs> Five, four, 14. <gasps> 15. 10 on our oh. combat score. Four on the die, plus one from the uh, the initiative. The initiative would have made all the difference. Yeah, the in initiative difference on that one. Okay. Well, boom, bang, boom. So that brings her down to five endurance, in which the uh, it ends this conflict. And we're unscathed, which is really nice, because honestly, the numbers were close to each other. There was. Yeah, it was pretty lucky. I legitimately believe that we might have got the best available option there of keeping the pen as mightier charge as well as not losing any HP. That's the hope. The, the, the only other thing would be, I remember in Twas, there was sometimes there was a conflict where if you used the pen as mightier, you gained an ally out of it. Not even just not having the conflict. Like there was a Jaguar or something that jumped us. And then if mm -hmm. you use it, then you gain them as an ally instead. But who knows? We also got the succubus marked off, which I'm curious. Just then there comes another blinding flash, which strikes the iron spike surmounting the tomb and pours through it into the earth, shattering the marble edifice in an explosion of incandescent flame. That's got to be good, right? You are hurled out into the storm as if you've been grasped by a giant hand that pulled you backwards. Giant tongs, in fact. For a moment, you catch sight of the Countess, contorted in agony as she's laughed by the flames, and then her bitter scream of pain is drowned out by another thunder crash. The relentless hailstones beat down upon you again while the air reverberates with howling of wolves. Roll a die and deduct that from endurance. Oh, no. Unfortunately, we lose another four endurance off of that. This is... This is spooky. If you're still alive, turn to 89. Shaking with cold and shock, you struggle to your feet. But as you do so, you find yourself surrounded by a vague, white, moving mass. It is as if all the graves around you have opened and sent forth the phantom forms of their shrouded dead, and they're closing in on you. One of the th ethereal specters draws near you and begins to make out details, a skull-like visage beneath the hood of the grave sheet, and fleshless fingers that are reaching for you. Add another point to your terror score! Is this normal? I can only imagine so. We are playing a gothic horror book. I know. I can only imagine we are going to be degraded effectively over the course of it as much as is possible to a breaking point of tension and yes. then succeed. I think the horror movies would be a lot better if everyone was just nice to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why can't they uh, break in and make friends? <laughs> I got you a present! I'm right behind I hope you. you like it. I'm right behind you, and I want a hug. <laughs> that is scary, too, to be honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, The good news is we don't have any blood points. I don't know. Ooh. That is a... Um... If you want to use the pen as mightier now, cross it off and go to 263, otherwise 204. This could be useful. I don't know. Is it just another combat? Maybe if we use the point, then he's like, Hi, I'm David. I have the tip for you. You know? Mm. Maybe. Admittedly, I I am kind of in the mood for the, the, the popcorn usage of Ben is Mightier. No, and then yes. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. That's, that's how we did twice. So mark off one. Let's do it. I want to be friends with this guy. One charge marked. 
The waking nightmare you've found yourself in is too much to bear, and you faint from shock as the spectral dead close in on you in mass. This is a good outcome. Gradually, there comes the vague beginnings of consciousness. Then you sense a dreadful weariness, and slowly your senses return. Your body's racked with pain, and yet you find yourself unable to move. You're aware of the icy feeling in the back of your neck and all down your spine. Good outcome, by the way. And, but there in your breast, a sensation of warmth, which you find, by comparison, delicious, and yet also a heavy weight that is making it difficult for you to breathe. A wild desire to be free grows within you, and you become aware of a low panting of an animal close by. Feeling a warm rasping at your throat, you come to state... Come to a state of full consciousness at last. You realize some great animal is lying on top of you and licking at your neck. Good outcome, by the way! Good outcome. You dare not move, but through half-closed lashes, you see above you the great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf. Great outcome, by the way. Its sharp white teeth gleam with a gaping red mouth, and you can feel its hot breath fierce and acrid upon you. Add two points to your terror score. Oh, no. <laughs> that takes us to a total of terror of five. That feels l lower than I thought for some reason. I don't know. I guess it's because we've been taking endurance hits as well. Mm. The wolf gives a low growl and you fear for your life. But then, coming from seemingly very far away, you hear a... Hello! Hello! As of many voices calling out in unison... Risking all, you raise your head and look in the direction whence the sound came. But the cemetery blocks your view as the wolf starts to yelp. You see a red glare moving through the grove of cypresses, as though following the sound. As the voices draw closer, the wolf's yelping intensifies. Nearer comes the red glow, dancing over the white paw, which stretches into the darkness around you. Then all at once, from beyond the trees, there comes a troop of horsemen bearing torches. The wolf rises from you and then makes to flee. As if... As... Wait makes to flee as one of the horsemen, who are soldiers, judging by the caps and long military cloaks, raises a carbine and takes aim as the animal slinks away. And a shot follows. Good outcome, by the way. Moving in a gallop, the troop rides forward. Some towards you, others in pursuit of the wolf as it disappears amongst the snow-clad trees. Several of the soldiers jump down from their horses and kneel beside you. One of them raises your head and places a hand over your breast. Ah! Good news, comrades! He cries in German. His heart still beats. Turn the 294. I don't want to know what would have happened if the pen wasn't mightier. Yeah. <laughs> he, the, uh, then, you know, minus four endurance. The wolf actually is mean and bites you and the shot goes mm -hmm. at you and the bullet hits. <laughs> Everyone hates you. Some brandy is being poured down your throat, which goes some way into reviving you. Regain two endurance points. Mm -hmm. Good things can happen. Opening your eyes fully, you look around. You see lights and shadows moving amongst the trees. And then the men who set off in pursuit of the wolf come pouring out of the cemetery. Like men possessed. Have you found him? Asks one of your rescuers. The reply rings out hurriedly. No! Come away! Quick, quick, there's no place to stay on this of all nights. I have no clue who these characters are. Yeah. What What was it? It, it indeed. Gibbers, one of the new arrivals, clearly out of his wits. A wolf? And yet not a wolf, cries another. No use trying for him without the sacred bullet, remarks a third. 
Serves us right for coming out on this night. Truly, we've earned our thousand marks. Declares a fourth. There was blood on the broken marble. Says the first. The lightning never brought that here. And for him... He turns his attention towards you now. Is he safe? Look at his throat. Ah, the wolf was lying on him, keeping his blood warm. Says the soldier holding your head, and who seems to be the least panic-stricken of the party. On his sleeve, you make out a chevron of a petty officer. Oh, his throat's all right. Skin's not pierced. What does it all mean? Asks another. We should never have found him but for the yelping of the wolf. What became of it? Asks the officer. It went home. Answers the first, whose face, long face is pallid and who is actually shaking with terror. As he glances around him fearfully. There are graves enough here there for it to lie. Come, comrades, come quickly. Let us leave this cursed spot. Several of the men help the officer put you on a horse, and he climbs into the saddle behind you. He gives the order to advance, and the hunting party rides away in swift military order. You ride through the night until a red streak of sunlight appears over the horizon, and is reflected like a path of blood over a waste of snow. Reaching the suburbs of Munich, the soldiers come across a stray carriage, into which you are lifted. The young officer drives you to the <laughs> the croissant himself, a trooper following with his horse while the others ride back into their barracks. When you arrive at the hotel, Herr Delbruck rushes so quickly down the steps to meet you that it's apparent he's been watching you from within, anxiously awaiting your return. Taking you by both hands, he saliciously sol leads you inside, while the officer salutes you and turns as if to withdraw. If you want to insist that the officer comes with you to your room so that you might thank him properly, turn to 324. If you prefer to retire so that you might rest and recuperate after your night's adventures, 354. I mean, uh... So, I suspect we're getting the choice here yeah. between more information from uh, the officer coming up to the room and, you know, querying him a little bit about what were you afraid of, why were you there, what are the wolves, who are you, etc., yeah. um, versus uh, slightly higher endurance regain, yes. What's our endurance at right now? Currently, we are at 18 out of 24. Mm. Do you have a draw? I kind of want to get a little bit more information about uh, why he was there. All right, 324 it is. Over a glass of wine, you thank the officer and his brave comrades for saving you. The the Riesling, Riesling is as effective a restore, restorative as it is a good night's sleep. Add three points to your endurance score. Hey, well. That's maybe, a good wine. Maybe don't matter anyway. The officer replies, saying that simply he's more glad to have been able to help, and that Herr Delbruck has been the one to take the first steps to make all the search party pleased. At which ambiguous utterance, the maître d'hôtel smiles, while the officer pleads duty and withdraws. Turn now to 354. But, Herr Delbruck? You inquire when the officer is gone. How did you know I was lost? The driver Johann came hither with the remains of his carriages, which had been upset when the horses had run away. But surely you wouldn't send a search party of soldiers merely on this account? Oh, no, he replies. But even before the coachman arrived, I received this telegram from the boyar whose guest you are. And he takes from his pocket a piece of paper, which he hands you as you begin to read. 
Bistritz. Be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him, or if he be missed, spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves and night. Do not lose a moment if you suspect harm to him. I will answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula! As you hold the telegram in your hand, the room seems to whirl around you. And if the attentive Herr Delbruck had not been there to steady you, there's no doubt in your mind that you would have fallen. The feeling grows upon you that you're in some way the sport of opposing forces, the mere idea of which threatens to paralyze you. You're certainly under some sort of mysterious protection, for a message had come from a distant country, just in the nick of time, to save you from the dangers posed by the snow, sleep, and the jaws of a wolf. Add yet another point of terror to your score and turn to 384. So that terror would take us to a total of six. I will also note at this point that the uh, telegram that we received is in monospaced font. It is an interesting note. I will also say, to make this mechanic even more confusing, it does have to be at the beginning of the passage, (gasps) which turned to 384 because this one does begin in monospace type font. Uh, ah, so if it if we turn to a page and the very first thing we see is in kind of this like typeface, you know, like a newspaper style font, we regain four stamina on the spot. It's just a it's it's just a funny little quirk of the book. Just we regain only three of them as uh, we cannot go over our maximum. But this means that effectively we took no damage because we were yeah. going to have to rest anyway. Yeah, that's. I mean, that works great. The only thing is, if only it could cleanse some terror. Yeah, no kidding. All right, 384. Jonathan Harker's journal. 3rd of May. Left Munich at 8.35 p.m. on 1st of May, arriving at Vienna early next morning. The impression I had was we were leaving the west and entering the east. We left in pretty good time and came after nightfall to Klausenbach. It is on the dark side of twilight when you finally reach your destination. Bistritz. Being practically on the frontier, for the Borgo Pass leads it into Bukovina. It has suffered a very stormy existence, and certainly shows the marks of the fires that ravaged the town 50 years ago. Following the directions Count Dracula, you know, that guy, relayed to your office before you left England, following Renfield's return and the poor man's descent into madness, you make your way to the Golden Crone Hotel, a thoroughly old-fashioned place where the Count has arranged lodgings for you. You're greeted by a cheery-looking elderly woman wearing the usual peasant's dress. She bows and says, The air Englishman? Yes. You confirm? Uh, Jonathan Harker. The old woman smiles and gives some message to an equally elderly gentleman in white shirt sleeves who has followed her to the door. He disappears, but returns a moment later with a letter which he passes to you. My friend... Welcome to the Carpathians. I will anxiously await and expect you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovnina. A place on it, a place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. Turn the page 407. An interesting thing I want to note so far, that we are 
you know, getting close to being an hour in, and we have absolutely done Jonathan spe- Harker specific only stuff. Like mm-hmm. the pages we've read. So the fact that we are this far in and this is all exclusive to just this one of the three characters is really interesting. But on to 407. Your bed is comfortable and the town is quiet after sundown, but you still do not sleep well for your dreams are haunted by wolves and worse. How many of the following code words do you have ticked off? Superstition, suicide, succubus, and specter. Two. We have two of these ticked off. There's an option for four, two or three, and then fewer than two. So we're taking the middle option here at four, four, seven. Something tells me if we had asked further right away, we would have gotten superstition. If we pried mm-hmm. pried further immediately. And if we had not used Pendant's Mightier, we would have gotten spec there. So, hey, I think that... Which, I guess, would mean that maybe we could have not used the Pendant's Mightier. But hey, wait, 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 whatever. So, 447 it is. You are deeply disturbed by your horrid dreams, and it is a feeling that remains with you after you wake. Lose a combat point and turn to 498. Well, I guess I'm just glad it's not higher. Mm, No kidding. You rise early the next day and set about preparing for your onward journey. You learn that your landlord also received a letter from the Count directing him to secure the best place on the Bakovnia coach for you. Do you want to ask him how this was arranged on 522, ask the landlord and his wife what they know of Dracula, 552, or just finish packing, 602? Three options. Hmm. I don't think we should ask directly about... Well, actually, no, they handed us letter from Count Dracula. Yeah. I don't know. I think it'd be fair to ask, maybe. I don't think it'd be... I'd also be happy to ask him how it's arranged as a kind of, like, roundabout way to get there. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't mind, I don't mind any of these, so I'll, I'll defer. None of these are north or east, mm-hmm. so let's go to um, how this was arranged. I think that's a way to ask for more information without making it uh, clear why. Great. As soon as you make inquiries into the details, the landlord becomes somewhat reticent, reticent, <laughs> and pretends that he cannot understand your German, even though he has answered all of your questions up until now with no problems. You persist, and the elderly couple exchange frightened looks. Finally, the landlord mumbles something about having been sent money in a letter, insisting that that's all he knows. Do you want to ask him whether they know about Count Drac- what they know about Count Dracula on 552, or continue on? So... We do get the option to roundabout to either of those other two things anyways, but we weren't punished. We weren't punished, but I suspect what we've been given here is the information that if we ask any more questions, we might be. Yes. So I'll meet you on 602 as we finish packing for our journey. Indeed. And you heard us right. Six, page 602. (laughs) There is many, many pages in this book. You return to your room to finish packing. Just as you're about to leave, the old lady visits you there and says in an almost hysterical manner, Must you go? Oh, young heir, must you go? She's in such an excited state that she loses her grip on what little German she has, mixing it up with some other language that you don't know at all. I must go at once, you tell her sternly. For I am engaged on important business. Do you know what day it is? She asks, managing to compose herself a little. Do you want to answer the old woman's question on 636 or shoo her out of your room, having enough of her... Okay. 
636 to answer the question or say, get out of here, old lady. I mean, I think we answer a question. It's Walpurgis Nacht. It's, it's, yeah, I'm down. All the day thereafter, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, shoot. 636? Mm Mm-hmm. Of course. It's the 4th of May. You reply. Oh, I know that. She says, shaking her head. But do you know what day it is? I'm sorry, I don't understand. It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all of the evil things in the world are going to have full sway? Do you know where you're going? Uh, Where you're going to? She's obviously so distressed that you try and comfort the old woman without any success. She drops to her knees, still imploring you to not go, or at least to wait a day or two before heading off. Her reaction to you leaving seems ridiculously over the top and makes you feel deeply uncomfortable. After all, there is business to be done and you cannot allow anything to delay you. I am on important business, you tell her. I must go. Realizing that you will not be deterred, the old woman rises and dries her eyes. She takes a small golden crucifix from where it hangs around her neck and offers it to you. Madam, please. You say. I am an English churchman. As... Oh, as such, you have been taught that such trinkets are idolatrous. (laughs) And yet it seems ungracious to refuse an old lady who means so well, who is in such a state of mind. Oh, please, for your mother's sake. She insists, offering you the rosary. If you want to accept this proffered gift, go to 667, otherwise 687. I'm... It feels like having a cross going into Dracula's castle strikes me as a good call. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Worst case scenario, we come back and she's dead because she doesn't have it anymore to protect her. But look, that's the risk you're on. Let's accept the gift on 67. (laughs) Submit and allow her to hang the crucifix around your neck. Record the golden crucifix on your adventure sheet. Whether it's the old lady's fear or the many ghostly traditions of this strange, un-English place, or the crucifix itself, you do not feel nearly as easy in your mind as usual. Tick off the code word, caressed, and turn to 687. Okay. Well, that links us back up, so that that's the only difference. The only difference is we have this and have that word marked off, which is a big difference we have learned already. Mm-hmm. You cannot tarry any longer. Your coach awaits, as does your client, Count Dracula. (laughs) That's a fun sentence. While the landlord and the driver take care of your luggage, you board the coach and take the only remaining seat, the carriage being quite full. The coachman has not taken his seat, and you can see him talking to the landlady. A crowd begins to gather at the entrance of the inn, and you now become convinced the gossips are talking about you. For every now and then, they cast a pitying glance in your direction. You hear a lot of repeated strange words. Do you want to look up the meaning in the dictionary you brought with you to your expedition to Eastern Europe? Seven, what, wait, seven, what? 717, wow. Or will you just settle yourself down in the doubtless long journey ahead? 747. I suspect we probably get more information but more terror if we go to 717 and figure out what they're saying. Yeah, that's what we got already, basically, more or less, in a roundabout way. Um, mm-hmm. but would that happen again? 
<laughs> what are the chances of something bad happening to us twice? <laughs> uh, In a horror-themed book? Nearly nothing. I think we should go to 717. I'm going to know what they're saying. That is also true. I'm just a little... I'm a little curious son of a so-and-so. When you discover what the words mean, you can't help for being reminded of the old adage, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> for among them are Ordog, meaning Satan, Pokol, meaning hell, Stagorka, meaning witch, Vrolok, and Vrlaslok, and it's a murloc, both of which mean something like werewolf or vampire. You're left wishing you'd not bother to seek to know the meaning of these words. You make a mental note to ask the Count about these dark superstitions when you meet at last. Tick off the code word Gonas, Gonas and turn to 747. Okay. It doesn't seem too bad. Yet. Yeah, we didn't even get a point of terror. How could it be bad? Yeah, we'll get the terror later. <laughs> That, uh, by the time that the coach sets off, the crowd around the inn door has swelled quite considerably, and the locals all make the sign of the cross and point two fingers at you. You wonder what this gesture could possibly mean. I don't know. Could make a guess that they think we're gonna die. Do you want to ask your fellow passengers what that means on 772, or would you rather not know on 802? Oh. Hmm. Hmm. You know what? We were reminded just a moment ago about the uh, old adage, ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know. Yeah. What if they're shaming me? <laughs> what if that means you smell bad? I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't want to smell bad in peace. It's true. I'm going to 802. <laughs> mm -hmm. The driver cracks the whip over the four small horses tethered to the traces, and you set off on your journey, but... You'll never forget your final glimpse of the inn yard and the crowd gathered round the wide archway, all crossing themselves. But you lose sight of the inn and your recollection of the ghostly fears and the beauty of the scenery as the carriage bounces along the road traveling eastwards. Before you lies a green sloping land full of forests and woods, and here and there steep hills crowned with clumps of trees or farmhouses. Everywhere you see a bewildering mass of fruit blossom, apples, plums, pears, cherries... As you drive by, you can see the green grass underneath the trees spangled with fallen petals. The road is rugged, but the coach seems to fly over it with feverish haste. The driver clearly does not want to lose any time in reaching the Borgo Pass, where you will meet the carriage that will carry you to your final destination, Castle Dracula. The verdant swelling hills eventually give way to the forested slopes that rise above the lofty steeps of the Carpathian Mountains themselves. They tower over the road, which is little more than a rutted track, to left and right, as the afternoon sun falls full upon them, drawing out the glorious colors of the season. Deep blue and purple in the shadows of the peaks, green and brown where grass and rock mingle, and an endless perspective of jagged rock and pointed crags, until the, these two become lost in the distance. Where the snowy peaks rise grandly, here and there you glimpse the rifts in the mountains, through which the sinking sun highlights the white gleam of cascading waterfalls, and then Raps takes over the rest until the end of the page. As the coach winds on its endless way, the sun sinking lower and lower behind you in the west, the shadows of the evening creep closer. Here and there you pass uh, Czechs and Slovaks, and by the uh, roadside you see many crosses and the occasional wayward shrine. As you sweep past them, your fellow travelers cross themselves. You've never known such a superstitious land. 
The temperature drops and the growing twilight merges with the gloom of the trees into one dark mistiness. In the deep valleys between the spurs of the hills, dark firs stand out there, out here and there rather, against the background of late-lying snow. Sometimes the way is so steep that despite the driver's obvious haste, the horses can only go slowly, but he only halts the team for a moment's pause to light the carriage lamps. As it grows darker, your your fellow passengers become agitated, urging him to hurry. He urges the horses on with wild cries of encouragement and his long whip, with which he lashes them mercilessly. Through the encroaching darkness, you can make out a patch of grey light. The excitement of other passengers grows as the coach rocks on its great leather springs, swaying like a boat tossed on the stormy sea. Then, the mountains seem to crowd closer again on either side, and you realise you must be entering the Borgo Pass. One by one, several of the passengers offer you gifts, odd tokens and trinkets, which they press upon you with an earnestness it would be hard to deny. If you'd like to accept these gifts, turn to 832. If you would refuse them, turn to 117. Hmm. Free stuff. Free stuff! I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I have no problem accepting I got no... It's free things. And you heard that right, listener. Page 832. (laughs) (laughs) And yet I feel like we're probably going to end up with a lower episode like than Grail Quest. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, we'll see. The items are a curious collection of lucky rabbit's feet, tiny silver charms, and mountain ash. But knowing that your fellow passengers are genuinely concerned for your well-being does help to allay some of your fears. Remove one point of terror from your terror score and record good luck tokens on your adventure sheet and tick off the code word Gerentz. So I, I, I've just been assuming that S with a Z yeah. after is like Yeah. It might not be. I'm I'm so sorry. I'm not very familiar with, with the languages of this region. Apologies. Number one best show on Apple TV. Gerentz. What about Ted Lajo? <laughs> yeah, it's up there. And those are the two shows on Apple TV, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, okay, got those. Turn to 117. As the coach continues to fly along, the driver leans forward in his seat while passengers on either side crane their heads, peering eagerly into the darkness. At last, the pass opens out on the eastern side. Dark clouds roll overhead, and the air becomes heavy with the expectation of thunder. You peer out into the darkness as well, searching for any sign of the conveyance that is to carry you to the Count, expecting to see the glare of lamps through the blackness at any moment, but all remains dark. And the driver brings the carriage to an abrupt stop, and you make out a sandy spur road lying white before you, but there's no sign of any other vehicle. Your fellow passengers draw back into their seats, sighing as if with relief. It would appear as though the conveyance you were expecting to meet you here in the Borgo Pass to take you on to Castle Dracula has not turned up. The driver looks at his watch, muttering, Now less than the time. And then turning to you, says in German, that is worse than yours. There's no carriage here. The air is not expected after all. Well... He'll come on now to Bukovna uh, and return tomorrow or the next day. 
but while he's speaking, the horses begin to neigh and snort wildly, pawing at the ground with their hooves. Accompanied by the chorus of screams from other passengers, a kalesh pulled by a team of four coal-black horses appears as if from nowhere out of the night and draws up alongside the coach. It is driven by a tall man with long brown beard, with a long brown beard and wearing a great black hat, which hides his face from you, although his deep-set eyes appear to gleam red in the lamplight. You're early tonight, my friend, he says to the coachman. The English was in a hurry, the wretch stammers in reply. That is why, I suppose, you wished him to go on to Bukovina, says the bearded stranger. The driver blanches but says nothing. You can't deceive me, my friend. I know too much and my horses are too swift. He smiles and the lamplight reveals a hard-looking mouth with full red lips and sharp-looking teeth as white as ivory. You half hear one of your companions whisper to another peasant. Den die Todden riten schnell. Which means, for the dead travels fast. Give me the heir's luggage says the stranger, and with startling alacrity, your bags are put into the kalesh. As soon as you're on board as well, the bearded man shakes his reins. The splendid coal-black horses turn, and you're swept away into the darkness of the pass. You cannot help but look back, where you see your late companions crossing themselves, but before the coach driver cracks his whips, calling to the horses, and they're swept out their way to Bacovnia, you feel a strange chill, and an inexplicable feeling of loneliness come over you. A cloak is suddenly thrown over your shoulders, a rug is laid across your knees, and the driver says in excellent German, the best German that anyone's ever heard. The night is chill, mein Herr, and the master, my count, bade me take care of you. There's a flask of Slivovitz under the seat if you should require it. Perfect German. Putting a hand under the seat, it's just, I mean, like, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, I hope, that, I wish that every single line of dialogue was like what they had before, where they say it in German, and then we translate it, because, boy, that would be so, <laughs> I would I would mourn you. Look, I would have a lot of fun doing that. It would Alas, be fun. I'm very glad that they just, in meta, say, hey, the following's in German, and then it's yeah. in English. Yeah, because otherwise, oh, it's like the book is going to increase by 30% in length. <laughs> uh <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's see. Putting a hand under the seat, you find a flask and take it out. Opening it, you sniff the vapors that rise from within. The smell reminds you of plum brandy. If you want to take a swig, turn to 139. If you prefer to put the flask back where you found it, 168. So we are, uh, at this point, uh, being courted by the count effectively that you know no ill harm will come to us at this period i can't imagine you know there's just poison under there that he's you know trying to take us out with this early no 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 there's no cat and mouse if you just you know murder both instantly exactly <laughs> yeah i i think we take a swig i imagine this could, well but we don't need endurance though the hope would be that it we, helps terror Yes, exactly. That's the hope. I, I'm down to try with the hope that it does that. Let's if, do it. 139. The flask does indeed contain plum brandy, which warms, your in, warms you from the inside and helps you ease your anxieties, gaining three more endurance points, but not being able to go over our maximum. The flask contains four further measures, and each will restore three endurance points. It's an Estes flask. However, if you drink more than one measure in one go, you also reduce your combat score 
by one point for every measure over the initial one that you drink until after your next battle. You may also deduct a point from your terror score. Wait, you may also deduct one point from your terror score, but this is not cumulative. For example, okay, this is a lot. For example, if you drank two measures in one go, you would have to temporarily reduce your combat score by one point while permanently reducing your terror score by one point. But if you emptied the bottle in one go, you would have your combat score down by three, but reduce your terror by one. Gotcha. So the question is, if could we drink it in different instances and reduce our terror by more? Yes. So if we had two different, because there's four charges in this, if we had two different instances of drinking two swigs at once, we would be able to remove two different charges of terror. That's what I was, we yeah. would have to do this at different times. That makes sense to me, and I'm glad we took a sip, not because we needed it now, but because I, if we put it back under, I guess we would just not get this. Yeah, exactly. And it this seems so useful. useful. All right, now turn to 303. Soon you're hemmed in by trees, which in places arc right over the roadway. Arch right over the roadway. So it is as if you're passing through a tunnel. Great frowning rocks guard the track on either side. The rising wind moans and whistles through the rocks and branches off the tree of the trees crash together as you speed along. It grows colder still, and fine powdery snow begins to fall. Soon the Kalesh, the driver, the horse, and you are covered with a white blanket. The baying of wolves cuts through the keening wind and sounds so close you wonder if the animals are closing in on you from every side. But suddenly, away to your left, you see an inconstant light like a flickering blue flame. The driver clearly has seen two, for he brings the Kalesh to an abrupt halt, and without a word of explanation jumps to the ground, disappearing into the darkness. Imagine your Uber driver takes you, you look at you look out the window and you're like, what's that flash what's that fire over there? And your Uber driver gets out and starts sprinting towards the fire and you never see him again. I think if someone I'm with inexplicably starts sprinting. No matter what, I'm going to do so as well. Because I'm just assuming they've seen some horror that I have not yet seen, and they have had no time to tell me about it. Yes. Uh, anyways, you are left alone while the howling of the wolves draws closer. Do you want to disembark and set off after the driver? Or will you remain where you are and hope that the driver returns soon on 363? I don't think, uh, you know, making exceptionally close friends with direwolves sounds like a great idea. I mean, I do I do think it sounds like fun, but also not like a good idea. Mm, uh, I'm using the euphemistic version of friends, wherein they rip our throat out. Yeah, I, oh, that's euphemistic. You know, that kind of friend. Yeah, everyone has that kind of friend. Glenn. Um... <laughs> Classic Glenn, ripping everybody's throat out. Making Thanksgiving so weird. Just so awkward. When Glenn comes over and says, Hey, Glenn, would you mind passing the mashed potatoes? Glenn. Glenn. It's always awkward when he doesn't pass the mashed potatoes. I agree. (laughs) Worst thing about Glenn. Yeah. All that Glenn. Uh. I suspect we should remain where we are and hope that the uh, driver returns soon. 363. As abruptly as he vanished, the man suddenly reappears and takes his seat again, and without a word, you resume your journey. You can't help feeling possessed of an uncanny sense of looming dread, and the time seems interminable as you continue on your way. 
now in the almost complete darkness, for the rolling clouds obscure the moon. You sense that you're ascending, punctuated with periods of quick descent, until you become conscious of the fact that the driver is in the act of pulling the horses into the courtyard, courtyard? <laughs> courtyard of a vast ruined castle. It's the, it's the courtyard where you throw all your coats on the ground before you enter the castle, mm -hmm. just to be polite. Uh, it's before the courtyard itself, which is where yes. you throw all of your courts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and it's before the courtyard yard where you throw your courtyards. Um, anyway. Vast ruined castle from whose tall black windows comes no ray of light and whose broken battlements show a jagged line against the sky. In the gloom, the courtyard appears to be of considerable size and several dark ways lead it from under great round arches. The clash comes to a halt, and the driver jumps down, holding out his hand to assist you to alight. You cannot help but notice his prodigious strength, his hand like a steel vice that could crush yours, if he wished. He takes your personal belongings from the carriages and places them on the ground beside you. You're standing in front of a great door, clearly ancient and studded with large, blunt-headed iron nails, set within a projecting doorway of carved stone, although the carvings have been much worn by time and weather. As you stand there awestruck, the driver jumps back into his seat, and with a shake of the reins, sets the horses moving again. Trap driver and all disappear from one of the deeply shattered openings. You can see no sign of a bell or knocker upon the door, so you simply stand there, in the courtyard, in silence, not knowing what else to do. You doubt your voice could penetrate these frowning walls, even if you were able to announce your... you were to announce your arrival. As you stand there, you realize this is the same place Mr. Renfield visited before you, an expedition from which he returned a broken man. You hear a heavy step approaching from behind the great door and see through the jaundiced gleam of a bobbing light. There is a sound of rattling chains and the clanking of massive bolts being drawn back, and a key is turned with a loud grating noise of long disuse, and finally the great door swings back. Within stands a tall old man, clean-shaven, save for the extravagant white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot. He holds his hand an antique silver lamp, the flame burning within, within throwing long, quivering shadows as it flickers through the draft of the open door. He motions to you with an antiquated, courtly gesture. Welcome to my house, he says in excellent English, but with a strange intonation. Enter freely. Go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. You step over the threshold, and the old man moves forward impulsively, holding out his hand as he grasps yours with a strength that makes you wince. It seems as cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead man than the one of a living. Count Dracula? You ask. The old man bows in courtly fashion. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Harker, to my house. Come in. The night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. Taking your luggage before you can forestall him, he leads you inside the castle. It is late, and my people are not available. Let me see to your comfort myself. Despite your protest, he insists on carrying your bags along an echoing passage. No, no, Dracula, let me carry it. <laughs> I... <laughs> he just, like, lifts it all up with one pinky. No, no, let me get it... I can't travel anywhere without my collection of bowling balls and <laughs> anvils. <laughs> uh, but my ancient dumbbell collection. 
I'm a delivery man for Acme Industries. Uh, okay. Uh, insist on carrying your bags along the echoing passage. And then up a great winding stair, and then another great landing, on whose stone floor your steps ring heavily. At the end of this passageway, the Count throws open a heavy door, and you're delighted to see a well-lit room beyond. Inside, a grand dining table has been set for supper, while a great fire of log flames and flares within the hearth. The Count puts down your bags, closes the door, and crossing the room opens another, which leads into a small octagonal room lit by a single lamp. Passing through this, he opens yet another door, motioning for you to follow. It's a great bedroom, warmed by another log fire, which sends a hollow roar up the wide chimney. It's a most welcome sight, for you are exhausted after your traumatic journey to the Count's home. The Count leaves your bags inside the room and withdraws, saying, You will want to refresh yourself after your journey. I trust you will find all that you wish. When you are ready, come into the other room, where you will find your supper prepared. It's past midnight. If you want to politely decline your host's offer for supper and retire of what remains for the night, turn to 371. If you prefer to have something to eat before retiring, 146. Interesting. Hmm. Now, I, how, how metagamey is it to be like, Dracula's just not going to kill us instantly. This is not his thing, right? He wants to play cat and mouse. So, like, I almost feel like you accept his first, like, four yeah. gifts, and then you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. This is too much now. A bite on my neck? I couldn't possibly. <laughs> Before sixth supper? No. Uh, 146 <laughs> sounds good to me. Let's do it. We'll eat before retiring. Also, for what it's worth, I would hate to be discourteous. <laughs> That's true. Decline a, a, an offer? No. Me? No. The light and warmth of the Count's courteous welcome has dissipated all your doubts and fears, and you realize that you're indeed half-famished with hunger. Having made your toilet... <laughs> I love it. I'm gonna start using that. Yeah, just make some toilet. <laughs> I always thought that bio break was a little too cyberpunk yeah. for me. I'm now just going to yeah. be out. Can we take a break? i got to go make. <laughs> I got to go make. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so good. BRB making. I'm going to go make toilet. <laughs> so good. Oh. All right. It, it, it does feel like something I would have heard on ventrilo during my wow days it really does mm -hmm. i'm gonna go make <laughs> right, i think voice. like go someone would say that once they would leave and by the time they come back the entire chat room would be clowning on them yeah 100 having made your toilet you make your way into the other room <laughs> supper is already laid out your host is standing on one side of the great fireplace leaning against the stonework with a graceful wave of his hands he says i pray you be seated and sup how you please. You will, I trust. Excuse me that I do not join you, but I have dined already, and I do not drink wine. That's not suspicious. You hand him the sealed letter of, that Mr. Hawkins entrusted to you before you left England for Transylvania, informing the Count that you have quite recently qualified as a solicitor. As he digests the contents of the letter... You fall upon a most excellent roast chicken. This with some cheese and a salad and an old bottle of Takei, which you will have two glasses, is your supper. 
Restore three more unnecessary endurance points. Perhaps we should have taken more damage. We should have immediately tried to get out of the carriage. We should have tried to fight Dracula the second we got in here so that we could eat this chicken for value. Dang! <laughs> when you finish eating at your host's behest, when you have made, when you've made dinner, made sup, as he said actually earlier, uh, at your host's behest, you draw up a chair and join him by the fire. He proceeds to ask you many questions about your journey, and you tell him by degrees of all you've experienced on the way to Castle Dracula, while you study his striking physiognomy, physiognomy, more closely. Mm -hmm. His face aquiline. Oh no! What is this? A test with a thin nose and particularly arch. That one's not tough, but I made it tough. Arched nostrils. He has a lofty domed th th forehead. And he wears his hair long in the fashion of the boyars of the past. <laughs> Just pronounce it right, forehead. The mouth is rather cruel looking with peculiarly sharp white teeth which protrude over the lips whose remarkable ruddiness shows astonishing vitality for a man of his years. His ears are pale, extremely pointed. The chin is broad, extremely strong. The chin is cheeks are firm, though extremely thin. The general effect is one of extraordinarily extraordinary pallor. I'm gonna die. <laughs> you, you many adjective upon me on this fine day. You also notice his hands, where they rest upon his knees. The nails are long and fine, cut to a sharp point. And curiously, there are hairs growing at the center of his palms. Huh? Is that a Dracula thing? Hairy palms? I did not know were that a Dracula thing. I, for what it's worth, I think our character is going to respond to it quite poorly. Yeah, I would. I mean, that's a squatch thing. I thought. Anyways, a horrible feeling of nausea comes over you, which you're unable to conceal. The Count offers you a grim smile, which shows off his protuberant teeth even more than before. Add a point to your terror score, and then we are welcomed by. A wonderful picture of this man. Mm-hmm. And I will note, for what it's worth, this this seems to confirm part of the the backstory lore that exists in some worlds for Dracula, or at least make an allusion to it. Which is to say, behind him we see a portrait that is uh, made famous of Vlad the Impaler, which yeah. looks a little like this guy, but younger. Yeah. He's also kind of good looking, like a little silver fox. A little silver oh, fox, that damn. little. Mmm. Mm, I can get into Ooh, the hairy palms. Show me them hairy palms. You are both silent for a while, and looking towards the window, you see the first dim streak of the coming dawn color the sky. From beyond the walls of the castle, you hear howling of many wolves down in the valley below. The Count moves towards the window, his eyes gleaming. Listen, listen to them, the children of the night. What sweet music they make. I don't want to listen to a bunch of children making. <laughs> Seeing the look of the appalled horror on your face, he adds. You must be tired. Your bedroom is all ready. You shall tomorrow sleep as late as you will. I will have to be away in the afternoon, so sleep well and dream well. This book is unrealistic. We didn't lose five terror the second we heard you can sleep as late as you want. Unrealistic. 
with another courteous that fully yeah. recovers all of my stats yeah in that, life, that that fixes me up when i get a day and i like you can sleep as late as you want oh i'm in this is the best day ever like just one day where i can get up at 10 instead of time to ruin my sleep schedule Hell yeah, yeah. I say that I can't remember the last time. Whenever I get a day like that, I just wake up at the time I was going to wake up anyways. Mm-hmm. I, I I wake up. I set my alarm every day for like eight o'clock, but I always wake up at seven. It's just the law. Anyway, with another courteous bow, he leaves the room. You're lost in a sea of wonders. Your mind a whirl with strange things, which you dare not confess even to yourself. You pray that God keeps you safe, if only for the sake of your dear Mina back in England, so many, many miles away. If you wish to continue the story as Mina Murray turned to 278, if you would prefer to continue the story as Jonathan Harker turned to 371. Interesting. I think we have we did learn in kind of like the setup of the book, switching characters mm. does cause terror to happen the blood to fill up from time to time but yes causes the blood to fill up whereas we do have another character who would have an empty terror stat as it currently stands Mm -hmm. an empty terror stat yes blood is across characters terror is not um what do you think i mean so I do want to swap characters at some point. I suspect, like, exclusively staying Jonathan Harker is going to give us quite a limited purview of the story. Uh, do we want to immediately jump to Mina? The fear is that, like, maybe if we do this, then Mina could make it here or something. The f- mm-hmm. And if we don't, maybe that just doesn't happen. Like, I kind of want to get a little bit more context in the world, so maybe we do. All right, I'm going to mark down this page, and then we'll go to Mina. All right. 278. Well, we are met with some typeface, but also we just are a fresh... We're a fresh install in this world. Mm-hmm. Mina Murray's journal. 24th of July, Whitby. Lucy met me at the station, looking sweeter and lovelier than ever. And we drove up the house in the Crescent, to which they have rooms. Whitby is simply a lovely place. The River Esk runs through a deep valley, which broadens out as it comes near the harbor. A great viaduct runs across with high piers, though which the view seems somehow further away than it really is. The valley is beautifully green, it's so steep, that were you on high land on either side, you look right across it, unless you're near enough to see down. The houses of the old town are all red-roofed and seem piled up one over another anyhow. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes. It is a most noble ruin of immense size. There's a legend that a white lady is seen on one of the windows. Between it and the town, there is is the parish church, which is surrounded by a large graveyard full of tombstones. As As far as you're concerned, this is the nicest spot in Whitby, for it has full view of the harbor and all of the up the bay where the headland called the Kettleness stretches out into the sea. It descends so steeply that part of the bank has fallen away and some of the graves have been destroyed. In one place, part of the stonework stretches out over the sandy pathway far below. There are walks with seats beside them through the churchyard, and people go there and look out at the beautiful view and enjoy the fresh sea breeze, as do you. Indeed, it is while you are sitting, enjoying the view that you're by yourself one day, 
while taking your daily constitutional with Lucy, that you overhear the talk of three old men who are sitting on a seat beside you. They seem to do nothing all day but sit here and talk. It seems they're, they have a legend hereabouts that when a ship is lost, bells are heard out at sea. The old man sitting nearest you appears to be very old. His face is gnarled and twisted like bark of a tree. You get to talking, and he tells you that he's nearly 100, and that he was a sailor in the Greenland fishing fleet when Waterloo was fought, and his name is Mr. Swales. As he seems eager to make conversation, do you want to ask him about the local legend of the submerged bells, 296, legend of the White Lady, or merely remark upon the view? Hmm. It seems the legend hereabouts when the ship is lost, bells are heard out at sea. I mean, I don't have any special draw in any of these directions, so arbitrarily, Legend of the White Lady. What's up with that? She's what in a window? Huh? Huh? Tell me more, Mr. Swales. I've never heard about a person in a window. <laughs> Mr. Swales' accent is very strong, but by concentrating and applying yourself, you understand that Whitby Abbey is supposedly haunted by St. Hilda, who founded the monastery there. Her ghost appears in a high window wrapped in a shroud. However, she is not the only ghost to call the ruins home. The ghost of Constance de Beverly is also said to haunt the abbey. She was a nun who broke her sacred vows, falling in love with a knight called Marmion. She was found out and bricked up alive in the dungeon of the abbey as her punishment. Her poor ghost has been seen cowering and begging release in the winding stairway leading from the dungeon. Turn to 336. But I wouldn't mind myself about such stories, miss. Them things be all wore out. Mind, I don't say there never was, but I do say there wasn't in my time. Such legends all be very well for day-trippers and then beat folks from York and Leeds, always eating their cured errands and drinking tea and looking to buy cheap jet, but not for a young lady like you. Lucy joins you then, looking sweetly pretty in her white lawn frock. She has acquired a healthy complexion since, since she's been staying here. The old men do not waste any time in coming and sitting near her when she sits down. Even your old friend appears enamored of her, but you're keen to keep him on the subject of the local legends. I ain't be all full talk, Mr. Swales says brusquely. Lock, stock, and barrel, that's what it be, no else. Stories are curses, wolves, bargists, and boggles and all. Only fit for setting bounds of dizzy women are blubbering. Wafts, bargists, and boggles must be a dialect name for different types of sprites other than and other supernatural creatures. Which of them do you want to ask the old man about? Wafts, bargists, or boggles, if you'd prefer to leave him alone and do not bother him, go to 456. Um... Uh... I've, I've played Boggle, so I know what that one is already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've definitely spent some time in a pub, so I've been a bar guest before. Should we ask about the wafts? Ah, see, but I have, uh, you know, I've been in in the room with someone who has crop dusted. Uh, <laughs> I've done a waft in my time. You're right. We don't, we don't need to bother this old man any further. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've, sorry. I've seen all of these before. Uh, this is not new. I know these all. <laughs> Uh, oh, you know what? It's spelled different. It's bo Bogles. I guess let's go oh. for 16. That's let's not the board game. Oops. Oops. Uh, Bogle is a troublesome, shape-shifting goblin. Ah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, same thing. A notorious bugbear of local legend that traditionally haunts crossroads in out-of-the-way 
places. Okay, turn to 436. Mm. Oh, wait. Haunts Crossroads. Exactly. We've seen a crossroads before. We've been there. We could play Boggle there. That's what I've learned. Oh, but take no heed, miss. Mr. Swales goes on. Such things be naught but emblems. They, and all grim signs and warnings, all be inventions of parsons and booklin and busybodies and railway tutors to scare halfwits and get folks to do something they otherwise aren't inclined to do. But nonetheless, all this talk of specters and the supernatural leaves you feeling uneasy to your very core. At a point of terror and turn to 456. Why do we even ask about anything ever? Damn it, he set us a blubberin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you caught me blubberin. I, you caught me blubberin. <laughs> 456. You see all these stones? He says, pointing with his walking stick at the headstones that rise from the turf of the churchyard in the picturesque spot. You confirm that you do. Uh, it's a wonder they don't tumble down with the white of lies written on them. Who lies the body? Oh, sacred to the memory, written on all of them. And yet, nigh half of them, there'd be no bodies buried around there at all. And the memories of them, no one cares a pinch of snuff about. Much less sacred. Lies. Lies, all of them. Nothing but lies. Oh, Mr. Swales. You interject. You can't be serious. Surely all these tombstones aren't wrong. There may be a poorish few not wrong. He admits. But there be scores of graves that be empty. Why, I can name you a dozen whose bones live in the Greenland seas, or where the currents may have drifted them. He points to a stone at your feet, which has been laid down as a slab upon which you s- the seat you are sitting on rests, close to the edge of the cliff. Uh, read the lies written there, he says gruffly. Sacred to the memory of George Cannon. Lucy says, leaning over and reading the words carved into it. Who died in the hope of a glorious resurrection on July 29th, 1873, falling from the rocks at Kettlenest. This tomb was erected by his sorrowing mother to her dearly departed son. Really, Mrs. Wales, I don't see anything funny in that. She says, addressing the old man directly. (laughs) You don't see no funny, laughs the old man. That's because you don't know the sorrowing mother was a hellcat that hated him because he is a hunchback. Deformed he was, and he hated her, so he committed suicide in order that she mightn't get an insurance she put on his life. He blew the top of his head off with an old musket that he kept for scanning crows. That's the way he fell off them rocks. And as to the hopes of a glorious resurrection, I've often heard them said myself that he'd hoped to go to hell. For his mother was so pious, he'd be sure she'd go to heaven, and he didn't want to go where she was. He hammers the stone with his stick. Gah, pack of lies! Why did you tell us this? Demands Lucy. It is ever my favourite seat, and I cannot leave it, but now I must find another to go sitting over the grave of a suicide. That won't hurt you, says Mr. Swales. Why, I've sat here off and down for nigh twenty years past, and it's done me no harm. Don't you worry about what lies under you, or that that don't lie under you either. The church clock strikes six, at which the old man labors to get up, saying, I must be going now. 
My granddaughter don't like to be kept waiting when the tea's ready. My service to you, ladies. And with that, he hobbles off. Turn to page 476. Mina Murray's journal. 26th of July, Whitby. I'm anxious, and it soothes me to express myself here. I'm unhappy about Lucy and about Jonathan. You've not heard from Jonathan, your fiancé, for some time, and you're getting quite concerned until yesterday, when his employer, dear Mr. Hawkins, who is always so kind, sent you a letter from him. It's only a line dated from Castle Dracula and says that he's starting, that he is just starting for home. But that's so unlike him. You cannot understand his brevity, and it does little to receive your sense of unease. On top of that, Lucy has taken to her old habit of walking in her sleep. Her mother, Mrs. Westerna, West, Westenra, oh my lord, has spoken to you about it, and you have decided to lock the door of the room that you share every night. Apparently, Lucy's late father has the same habit and would get up in the night and dress himself and go out if he were not stopped. Lucy is to be married in the autumn and is already planning out her dresses and how her house is to be arranged. You sympathize with her, for your mind is preoccupied with the same concerns. Only you and Jonathan will start married life in a very simple way and will have to try to make both make ends meet. Lucy's fiancé is the Han, Arthur Holmwood, the only son of the Lord... Godalming, Godalming, and is coming up to Whitby as soon as he can leave town, for his father is not very well. And you think your dear friend is counting the moments till he comes. Another week goes by without further word from Jonathan, and you f each night you feel you're wakened by Lucy moving about the room. You feel that she's watching you. Every night is the same. She tries the door, finding a lock, goes to the about the room searching for the key. The anxiety and perpetually being wakened each night is beginning to tell on you. And you have become nervous and wakeful yourself. Lose a combat point and add one to terror. And so the days tick by following the same uncomfortably familiar pattern. Turn to page 496. Mina Murray's journal. The 6th of August. Whitby. Last night was very threatening, and the fishermen say we we're in for a storm. Today's a gray day, the sun hidden in thick clouds, despite the time of year, high over kettleness. Despite the uninspiring conditions, you make the walk from Crescent down into the town and up the 199 steps on the other side of the River Esk, to your favorite spot on the cliff path at the edge of the churchyard. But you make it all alone. Lucy's feeling a bit listless after a particularly unsettled night of some somnambulism. The sea tumbles over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar, while the horizon is lost in a gray mist. The clouds are piled up like giant rocks, and there's a low rumble over the sea that sounds like a some presage of doom. You can see fishing boats racing for home, rising and dipping in the ground swell as they sweep under the harbor, bending into the scuppers. You're not alone in the headland. Old Mr. Swales is making straight for you along the cliff path. Well, the Coast Guard has joined you and is looking out of the sea, spyglass in hand. If you want to go and meet Mr. Swales, curious to, as to what he could possibly want, 516. If you'd rather not have anything to do with the more cantankerous fellow, 556. It's gotta be 516. Yeah, you bet it. Taking your hands in his, Mr. Swales says in a surprisingly gentle way, I'm afraid, my dearie, that I may have shocked you all by the... Wicked things have been seen about the dead and such like, but I didn't mean any of them. I want you to know that and remember that when I'm gone. Someday soon, 
The angel of death will send his trumpet for me. And if he should come this very night, I'll not refuse his call. For a hundred years is too much for a man to expect, and death be all we can rightly depend on. There's something in the wind that smells like death. It's in the air, and I can feel it coming. Mr. Swales removes his hat, his mouth moving as if he's praying. After a few minutes, in reverential silence, he shakes hands with you, blesses you, and finally says goodbye before hobbling off again. Tick off the word Azrael and turn to 556. Oh, that's my favorite Undertale character. Yeah. <laughs> just a good one. 556. Good lord! The Coast Guard suddenly cries. He has his spyglass to, to his eye and is looking through it at a strange ship out at sea that is knocking about in the strangest way. She's a Russian by the looks of her. He goes on. But she doesn't seem to know her mind one bit. She seems to see the storm coming, but can't decide whether to run north in the open or to put it here. It certainly looks to you like she's being steered mighty strangely, as if there's no hand on the wheel at all, for the ship changes about with every puff of the wind. Yep, we'll hear more of her come time this time tomorrow. The Coast Guard says sagely. You return to the house on the Crescent where you're staying, but that night are woken a little after midnight. As the tempest breaks, Lucy is tossing and turning in her bed, moaning faintly, but she does not get up. You, however, cannot sleep for thinking of the ship you saw struggling against the tide. Do you want to sneak out of the house and return to the East Cliff to watch for the ship, or remain here where you pray that sleep takes you again before too long? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be taking a Castle Dracula. <laughs> Take me Castle yeah, Dracula. wouldn't do that. Would it? Not? Yeah. Probably not. You know what? We've seen a lot of horrors. Let's let's sleep. I'm going nai nai. 793. You wake late the following morning to find your dear friend already dressed and gone down to breakfast. You join Lucy and her mother in the conservatory where they're poring over a report in the n local newspaper, the Daily Graph. I like that for some reason. Just so it's just it feels right. The Daily Graph. Hmm. Yeah. I, I it's like I want a newspaper that's just called The News. Dun news. Dun news. Have you seen Dun news? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the ship you saw struggling out at the sea previous afternoon ran aground during the night. You're intrigued and keen to learn more about what unfolded during the storm. If you want to read the article paper in the paper yourself, go to 853. If you want to suggest that Lucy, to Lucy that the two of you take a stroll down to the harbor and see the shipwreck, go to 883. I mean, do we want the reported truth or the truth truth? I want to know the truth truth. I want to trust my lion eyes. Lucy readily agrees, and so that afternoon, the two of you join the other Sticky Beaks and Nosy Parkers who have come to the East Pier to see the derelict for themselves and discover the latest gossip concerning its almost supernatural arrival. But it turns out that the Demeter's secrets are stranger than the circumstances of its arrival. The ship is almost entirely in ballast of silver sand with only a small amount of cargo, a number of great wooden boxes filled with mold. This cargo was signed over to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S.F. Billington. That's not a real guy. Who went aboard with the morning to take a formal possession of the boxes of scientific earth. The Russian consul, too, acting for the charter party, took formal possession of the ship and paid all harbor duties owing. There's a good deal of interest concerning the Hound, 
which appears to have disappeared entirely from the town. General consensus of opinion was that it made its way to the moors, where it's hiding even now. What terrifies you? This thought terrifies you, for it is evidently a fierce brute early this morning. A half-bred mastiff belonging to the coal merchant close to Tate Hill Pier was found dead in the roadway opposite its master's yard. It had been fighting in against a savage opponent. Oh my lord! And it got it was killed in a peaceful, quick way. Lucy announces that the gruesome details of the mysterious events make her feel quite faint. And you've heard enough yourself, so you agree to return to the Crescent and not go out again. Add one to your terror score and go to 823. That night, with the last remnants of the previous night's storm sending scuds of clouds racing across the bay beyond the harbor wall, you and Lucy retire to bed, the rattling of the chimney pots and moaning of the wind about the eaves of your house. You're only a lullaby. Take an ESP test. If you pass the test, go to 501. If you fail, 521. So this is a, we have to roll two dice and get under Lucy's ESP, mm -hmm. or not Lucy. Is it Lucy? No. This would be uh, Mina, and Mina. I have great news. What's that? I rolled a six on one die, but a one on the other. That's seven, which is under our ESP score of eight. We succeed the oh, test. Oh my lord. All right. 501. You wake suddenly in the middle of the night from a horrible dream which you're being pursued across the moors by a great black dog to find Lucy getting dressed as if she intends to go out. Most disturbing of all, however, is that when you ask her where she thinks she's going, she doesn't reply, and you realize she's sleepwalking. You manage to undress her again without waking her and get her back to bed. But before the coming of dawn, the same thing happens again. You stop her while her hand is on the handle of the bedroom door. It's a very strange thing, this sleepwalking, for as soon as her will is thwarted in any physical way, her intention, if there is any, disappears. And she yields herself almost exactly to the routine of her life. Tick off the code word somnambulism and then turn to 541. So if we didn't have the ESP, we wouldn't have woken up to, to stop her, is the presumption. Mm-hmm. And I imagine not collected this code, which might be important for dealing with other sleepwalkers in the future. True. The night's strange distractions are forgotten when news reaches the Crescent that the poor sea captain, who was found lashed to the wheel of, of the Demeter, is to be buried away. If you want to attend the funeral yourself, 603. If not, 561. It kind of feels like attending the funeral might be more horror, terror rather. It really does seem like it. I've had enough. 561. 561. Despite deciding not to attend the funeral, you do suggest to Lucy that the two of you go for a walk, secretly hoping that she is, if she is physically tired after today's exertions, she will not sleepwalk again tonight. And thankfully, she agrees. You take her out for a long walk by the cliffs to Robin Hood's Bay and back. As you set off for the cliff path, it seems to you that every boat in the harbor is there for the sea captain's send-off. You have a lovely walk, Lucy's in good spirits, owing, you think, to some curious cows that come nosing towards you in a field close to the lighthouse, and frighten the wits out of you. You share a capital, a capital severe tea at Robin Hood's Bay in a sweet little old-fashioned inn sitting at a bow window that looks right over the seaweed-covered rocks of the Strand. Then you walk home again with some, or rather many, stoppages to rest, and with your hearts full of a constant dread of wild bulls. As you had hoped, by the time you return to the rented house on the Crescent, Lucy is suitably tired, and you intend to creep off to bed as soon as you can. 
but your plans are thwarted when the young curate of St. Mary's calls in, and Mrs. Westenra, Westenra asks him to stay for supper. Turned in 948. That night, you complete the day's entry in your journal with Lucy breathing softly in her sleep in the bed next to yours. She seems much improved, and you would be quite content if you had only news of Jonathan. God bless and keep him. You turn in and fall asleep as soon as you close your diary. But suddenly you find yourself awake. You sit up with a horrible sense of fear clawing at your heart and a distinct feeling of emptiness around you. And let's see. And then Raps takes over. Tell the other page. It's been a lot of me reading. So shot. The room is dark, so you steal across to Lucy's bed and feel for her, but the sheets are empty. Lighting a match, you have your worst fears confirmed. Lucy is not in the room. The door is shut but not locked, just as you left it the night before. Not wanting to wake Lucy's mother, who'd been more than unusually ill of late, you throw on some clothes and set out to look for Lucy yourself. When you cannot find her anywhere inside the house, taking a heavy shawl with you, you head outside into the sleeping town. The clock strikes one as you leave the crescent and there's not another soul in sight. You run along the northern terrace, but see no sign of the white figure, clad in nothing but her nightdress, that you're expecting. At the edge of the west cliff, above the pier, you look across to the east cliff, in hope or fear, you're not sure which, of seeing Lucy in your favourite seat. The moon is bright and full with heavy, black, driving uh, clouds, which throw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sail past it. For a moment you can see nothing, but then the shadow of the cloud moves on, revealing the first, the abbey ruins, followed by the church and then the churchyard. And there, on the seat in question, the silver light of the moon strikes a half-reclining snowy white figure. Before the scene is obscured by darkness again, it seems to you as though something dark is standing beside the seat and bent over it. But what it is, whether man or beast, you don't know. You don't wait, sh- uh, you don't wait to catch another glance, but throw yourself down the sh- steep steps to the pier along the fish market to the bridge, which is the only way to reach that east cliff. The town seems dead, for not another soul do you see abroad. Your knees tremble, and your breath becomes laboured as you toil up the endless steps to the abbey. It seems to you as though your feet are weighted with lead and every joint in your body restricted with rust. Reaching the top of the winding steps, you see the seat, and there is undoubtedly something long and black bending over the white figure reclining upon it. Take an ESP test. Do you want to roll this one? Already did. And unless our stats have changed, I think a six is good. It is indeed. We pass the test and we're going to be heading to 902. The something raises its head and from where you from where you are, you get the impression of a colorless bestial face. From sunken hollows within the hideous visage, two red gleaming eyes fix you with a bloody stare. Take a terror test. If you pass it, turn to 887. Otherwise, it go to 862. So, if I recall correctly, a terror test is roll four dice and beat your score. Oh, that would that would make sense. That yeah, yeah I was just going up to try and look for that. Because otherwise, us gaining lots of terror doesn't make sense. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's four. So, like, I'm just going to roll a sample while well, you roll the real one. For example, yeah, like it seems very realistic that we would. <laughs> oh, I mean, now is it even possible for with? Us? Yeah, with three terror and four dice, I'm gonna quickly roll, and I'm not gonna look at them before I tell you we passed the test. 
Oh my god, what a roll. <laughs> so I guess... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we passed the test then, I guess. Yep, press if your on. roll is equal to or greater than your terror score, you pass the test. Yep, we're all right. good. You press on, unperturbed by the unnatural nature of whatever it is that's attacking your friend. Lucy! You call out to her as another cloud passes before the face of the moon. She does not answer, and you run on to the entrance of the churchyard. As you enter, the squat church building is between you and the seat, and for a minute you lose sight of her. Add one point to your ESP score, and then turn to 842. Mm -hmm. Is that an add one to our max? I believe so. I believe so, too, because it doesn't say restore. Mm -hmm. so, so, dang. I mean, we should be we should level up our ESP after the double successes. Triple success. We even succeeded. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess it, yeah, double, double ESP, ESP success and one Terra success. Yeah. Yeah. As you round the corner of the church, the cloud has passed, and you see Lucy once again transfixed within a beam of brilliant moonlight, lying with her head hanging over the back of a seat. She's quite alone. There's no sign of another living thing anywhere nearby. She is asleep, her lips parted, her breathing coming in long, heavy gasps as if stri striving to fill her lungs with every breath. As you draw closer, she puts her hand, puts up her hand and pulls up the collar of her nightdress as though she's feeling cold. You fling the warm shawl over her and pull the edges tight around her neck, dreading that she might come down with some deadly chill from the cold night air, unclad as she is, fastening it at her throat with your brooch. Once she's safely wrapped up, you put your shoes on her feet and then begin very gently to wake her. When she does not respond, wishing to get her home at once, you shake her forcibly until she finally opens her eyes. When you tell her to come home with you, Lucy rises without a word. With the obedience of a child, as you leave the churchyard, you, the gravel hurts your feet, making you wince, but you press on. You make it all the way back to the crescent without meeting a soul. When you get in, you both wash your feet, and having said a prayer of thankfulness together, you tuck Lucy up into bed. However, you are sorry to notice that your clumsiness with the brooch has hurt her, for the skin at her throat is pierced. You have pinched a loose piece of skin and transfixed it for their two little red points like pinpricks. And on the band of her nightdress, there's a drop of blood. Before falling asleep, she implores you not to say a word to anyone, lest of all her mother about her sleepwalking adventures, despite hesitating at first, in the end you accede to her demands. However, before returning to bed yourself, you make sure to lock the door, trying the key, tying the key to your wrist, so hopefully you'll not be disturbed again. Turn to page 822. Mina Murray's journal. 13th of August. Whitby. Another quiet day, and to bed with the key on my wrist, as I've done every night since Lucy's nocturnal flight to the churchyard. Having secured both the door and the key, you retire to bed. You did not expect any trouble tonight. Take another ESP test, but this time we're stronger. Turn to 777. If you fail, 797. We will succeed with a uh, 7 against our ESP of 9 and turn to 777. We're going to become an ESP god. I'm ready for it. Again, you awake in the night, and this time find Lucy sitting up in the bed pointing at the window as brilliant moonlight streams into your room. If you want to approach the window to see what Lucy is looking at, turn to 757, or if you want to tuck her back into bed, 737. I mean, we can handle some fright, I guess. Mm-hmm. What you looking at out there, Lucy? What you looking at there? 
You get up quietly and peer out into the night. The soft effect of the moonlight over the sea and sky merge together in one great silent mystery that is beautiful beyond words. A shadow suddenly falls across your face as you start stare and you start as something hits the glass. There at the window is a huge bat clawing at the panes as if desperate to get inside. It must be at least six feet from wingtip to win wingtip. Add one point of terror to your terror score. His red eyes again! Lucy cries out as you pull the blind shut as the bat flies away across the harbor, as if making for the abbey. When you come back from the window, Lucy has already lain down once more and seems to be sleeping peacefully. She does not stir again all night. Tick off the code word Barbastella and turn to 714. Me and Murray's journal. 17th of August, Whitby. No diary for two days now. I have not had the heart to write. Some sort of shadowy pall seems to be coming over our happiness. There's still no news from Jonathan, and Lucy seems to be growing weaker. Whilst you fear her mother's days are num numbering to a close, you do not understand how Lucy can, Lisey? Lucy can be wasting away as she is. She eats well and sleeps well and enjoys the fresh air. But all the time, the roses in her cheeks are fading, and she's getting weaker and more languid by day. Worst of all, at night, you hear her gasping for air. You keep the key to your door fast around your wrist at night, but she still gets up and walks about the room or sits at the open window. At the open window, with her two pinprick marks on her neck. Last night, you mm -hmm. found her leaning out when you woke up, and when you tried to wake her, you could not rouse her. She was in a faint. When you did finally manage to restore her, she was weak as water and cried silently between long, painful struggles for breath. When you asked her how she came to be at the window, she simply shook her head and turned away. You have studied her throat while she lay sleeping, and were horrible, horrified to find the tiny wounds have not healed. If anything, they are larger than they were before, and the edges of them are faintly white. Unless they heal within a day or two, you determine to insist on the doctor taking a look at them. Turn to page 694. Oh, my lord. Here you go, reps. Letter. Sister Agatha, Hospital of St. Joseph at and St. Mary, Budapest to Miss Wilhelmina Murray. The, the 12th of August. Dear Madam, I write by desire of Mr. Jonathan Harker, who is himself not strong enough to write, though progressing well, thanks to God and St. Joseph and St. Mary. Uh, he's been under our care for nearly six weeks, suffering from a violent brain fever. He wishes me to convey his love and say by this post that I write for him to uh, Mr. Peter Hawkins Exeter to say that with his dutiful respects that he is very sorry for the delay and all his work is completed. He will require from some few weeks rest at our sanatorium in the hills, but then he will return. He wishes me to say, of course, that he will not have sufficient money with him and that he would like to pay for his staying here. So there are others who need shall... Sorry, so that others who need shall not be wanting for help. Yours with sympathy and all blessings, Sister Agatha. Uh, P.S. My patient being asleep, I am open to let you know something more. He has told me all about you, and that you are shortly to be his wife. All blessings to you both. He has some fearful shocks, says our doctor, and his delirium, his ravings have been dreadful, of wolves and poison and blood and ghosts and demons, and I fear to say of what... Be careful with him, always, that there may be nothing to excite him of this kind of for some long time to come. The traces of such an illness as his do not lightly die away. 
We should have written long ago, but we knew nothing of his friends. Be assured that he is well cared for. He has won all our hearts by his sweetness and his gentleness. He is truly getting on well, and I have no doubts will a few weeks be all himself again. But be careful of him for safety's sake. There are, I pray God and St. Joseph and St. Mary, many, many happy years for you both. Turn the page, 674. Mina Marie's journal. 19th of August, Whitby. At last, news of Jonathan. The dear fellow is being ill, and that is why I did not write. I am not afraid to think it or to say it now that I know. Mr. Hawkins sent the letter on to you and wrote himself, the good Christian soul that he is. You are to leave in the morning and travel to be with your fiancé in Budapest and help nurse him if necessary and ultimately bring him home. Mr. Hawkins says it would not be a bad thing if the two of you were to be married while you're there. You've cried over the sister's letter until you can feel it wet against your bosom where it lies. For it is of Jonathan and must be near your heart. Your journey is mapped out and your luggage ready. You are only taking one change of dress. Lucy will take your trunk to London and keep it until you send for it. If you wish to continue the story as Mina Murray, 13, Dr. John Seward... 691. Uh, shall we pause momentarily? Great. Uh, buckle up, reps. Mm-hmm. Letter to Mina Harker to Lucy Westerna, Budapesta. 24th of August. My dearest Lucy, you will be, I know that you will be anxious to hear all that's happened since we parted at the railway station in Whitby. Well, my dear, I got to Hull all right and called the boat to Hamburg and then took the journey on from there. I can hardly recall anything of the journey, except that I knew I was coming to Jonathan. I found my dear one, oh, so thin and pale and weak looking. All the resolution had gone out of his dear eyes, and all that quiet dignity I told you about in his face had vanished. He's only a wreck of himself, and he doesn't remember anything that's happened to him for the long time past. At least, he wants me to believe so. And I should never ask. He's had some terrible shock, and I fear it might tax his poor brain if he would try to even recall it. Sister Agatha, who is a good creature and a born nurse, tells me that he raved of dreadful things whilst he was off his head. I wanted her to tell me what they were, but she would only cross herself and say they were the ravings of the sick and secrets of God. She's a sweet, good soul, and on the next day, when she saw her, I was troubled still, after saying that she could never mention what my poor dear raved about, added, I can tell you this much, my dear, that it was not about anything which he has done wrong himself, and you, as his wife-to-be, have no cause to be concerned. His fear was of great and terrible things which no mortal mind can bear. I waited by his bedside until he awoke. After he remade our promises of love to one another, he asked me for his coat, as he wanted to get something from the pocket. I asked cigarette, uh, Sister Agatha, and she brought all his things. I saw amongst them was a notebook, and I was going to ask him to let me look at it, in the hope that I might find some clues to his trouble contained within, when he said to me very solemnly, Wilhelmina, I know it's really in deadly earnest when he says that, you know, dear, my ideas of the trust between husband and wife that there should be no secret, no concealment, I have had a great shock. And when I try to recall what it was, I don't know if it was all real or the dreaming of a madman. You know that I have a brain fever. And that is to be mad. The secret is here, and I don't want to know it. 
I want to take up my life again without marriage. Here is the book. Take it and keep it. Read it if you will, but never let me know, unless indeed some solemn duty come upon me to go back to the bitter hours. Awake or asleep, sane or mad, recorded here. He fell back exhausted, and I put the book under his pillow and kissed him. I asked Sister Agatha to beg our mother superior to let our wedding be that afternoon, and so the chaplain of the English Mission Church was sent for. Jonathan woke up a little after the hour, and all was ready, sat up in bed, propped up with pillows. He answered his, I will, firmly and strongly. I could hardly speak, my heart was so full, those words even seemed to choke me. When the chaplain and the sisters left me alone with my husband, I took the book from under his pillow and wrapped it up in white paper and tied it with a little bit of pale blue ribbon which was around my neck and then sealed it over my knot with sealing wax and for my seal I used my wedding ring. Then I kissed it and I showed it to my husband and told him I would keep it so and that it would be an outward and visible sign for us all our lives that we trusted one another and that I would never open it unless it were for his own dear sake or for the sake of some stern duty. Then he took my hand in his, and he said that it was the dearest thing in all the wide world. And I told him that he'd made me the happiest woman in the, hot, uh, in the entire wide world. <laughs> and, my dear, when he kissed me and drew him and drew me to him with his poor weak hands, it was like a very solemn pledge between us. Lucy, dear, I tell you all this because you may have been and are very dear to me. Please, almighty God, may your life be at all promises a long day of sunshine with no harsh wind, no forgetting duty, no distrust. I must not wish you no pain, for that can never be. But I do hope you will always be as happy as I am now. Goodbye, my dear. I must stop, for Jonathan's waking and I must attend to my husband, your ever-loving Mina Harker. Turn to page 44. <laughs> That's a... It's September before you return to England, but when you set foot on English soil again, it is as a married couple. You have never felt happier despite all you have been through. As a wedding gift, the Sisters of St. Joseph and St. Mary give you each a vial of holy water. Add it to your adventure sheet. To both of them. Hey, right? No. Gave you each. Uh, unfortunately, it says the holy water. No. Gave you each one. I fudge it. We have two. <laughs> no. <laughs> just put it. We'll just put it in two. Okay. Anyways. When you arrive at in Exeter, you find carriage a carriage waiting for you. And, and in it, although he has not been well himself, Mr. Hawkins, he takes you to his house where comfortable rooms have been ready for you. And that evening, you dine together. After dinner, Mr. Hawkins raises his glass, saying... My dears, I want to drink to your health and prosperity, and may every blessing attend you both. I have known you both since you were children, and now I want you to make your home here with me. I have neither wife nor child, and in my will, I have left you everything. It is a very happy evening indeed. But the following morning makes you as sad as the previous evening made you happy, when the poor Mr. Hawkins is found to have died unexpectedly during the night. In accordance with his will, together you will inherit everything, the house, the business, and a fortune which the people of your modest upbringing is wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. Mr. Hawkins also stipulated in his will that he wanted to be buried next to where his father lies interred in London. 
the service is very simple and solemn. There are only two... There are only yourselves and the servants in attendance, along with one or two of Mr. Hawkins's old friends from Exeter, his London agent and a gentleman representing the Incorporated Law Society. The two of you stand together hand in hand and feel that your best and dearest friend is now gone. Turn to page 60. Or, as it turns out, uh, since we see immediately after page sim uh, 60 a bat symbol, uh, and we are... Ms. Mina Murray at the moment, or rather, uh, Mrs. Mina Harker. Uh, we turn to 60 plus 20 pages, over to 80. All right. After the funeral, you take a bus. I wonder, wait, does it say we have to or we can? Oh, by the way, uh, I want so to. So we have to, and okay. I can confirm this by on Good. 60, it continues as though we were Jonathan. Gotcha. After the funeral, you take a bus to Hyde Parker Corner, and from there you walk down Piccadilly, Jonathan holding you by the arm. You're looking at a very beautiful girl in a big cartwheel hat sitting in a carriage outside Giuliano's The Jewelers, when Jonathan suddenly clutches your arm so tightly that you give a startled gasp of pain, and he hisses under his breath. My God! Always living with fear that some nervous fit may upset him again at any moment, you quickly turn to your husband and ask him what it is that has disturbed him so. He's very pale, his eyes bulging from his head, half in terror, half in amazement, and you realize he's staring at a tall, thin man with a beaky nose, black mustache, and a pointed beard, who is, who is also observing the pretty girl. He is looking at her so hard that he does not see either of you, and you have a good view of him. His face is hard and cruel and sensual, and his big white teeth. That all that look all the whiter because of his lips being so red are pointed like an animal's. Do you know who that is? Says Jonathan, who is staring so intently at this stranger that you start to worry the man will notice. No, dear. You reply. I don't know him. Who is it? His answer both shocks and thrills you. It's the man himself! He hisses in abject terror. Take an ESP test! If you pass the test, turn to 164. If you fail, 187. We pass. I, my, mine was a pass, too. 160. It's going to be difficult for us to not pass with an ESP of 9. Yeah, we. I mean, we had a good one already, and it just got better. Although you are sure you have never seen the man before, nonetheless, there's something strangely familiar about him. It's as if he projects an aura that your subconscious mind senses, and in doing so, finds something familiar about the dark stranger. The sensation is almost unsettling, and ice water chill trickles down your spine. Add a point of terror, but deduct a blood point. If I had one! Right? We don't got any, right? This is where I would deduct one if I had it. Yeah, exactly. It is the Count says Jonathan, his voice barely more than a whisper. But he's somehow turned back the years and grown young again. He's patently very distressed, and you gently draw him away, finding a comfortable seat in a shady place in the green park. It's a hot day for autumn, said John, and Jonathan soon falls asleep with his head in your shoulder. Seeing him like this causes you great anxiety, for you fear his condition could cause or equally be the result of some injury to the brain. Perhaps the time has come when you must open the parcel wrapped in white paper and tied with a pale blue ribbon and learn what is written within Jonathan's notebook. Turn to 218. You head home after the traumatic encounter, but more bad news awaits you when you return to Exeter in the form of telegram. Telegram Van Helsing, London, to Mr. and Mrs. Harker, Exeter. 22nd of September. 
You'll be grieved to hear that Mr. Westenra, Mrs. Sorry, Westenra, died uh, five days ago and that Lucy died the day before. They were both buried today. Oh, what a wealth of sorrow and few words. Poor Miss Wiz- Mrs. Westerner. Poor Lucy, gone, never to return. If you wish to continue as Mina Harker, 242. If you wish to continue as Jonathan Harker, 329. Hmm. Mina Harker has better stats right now and is less beterred. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, however, has more equipment. That is true. Also, we haven't been him in a while. You want to swap? Let's do it. Maybe we'll like the uh, idea of swapping back later, you know? <laughs> Jonathan Harker's journal. 26th of September. I never thought to write in this diary again, but the time has come. Upon returning to Exeter, you find demands of your new position as senior partner of the firm of Hawkins, Oldman, and Lee. Preoccupy your mind so much you have little time to think of anything else. Least of all, the deprivations you suffered during your time in Transylvania. You rise to the challenge that now presents itself, following your advancement, and manage to keep pace with all the duties that are now yours and yours alone. Coming home from work one evening in late September, you find Mina had already had supper ready. After you've eaten, she tells you that during the day she was interviewed by one Professor Van Helsing of Amsterdam, who has questions about her, about Lucy Westenra's protracted illness. She in turn shared with him how anxious she'd been about you, been about you, and showed him the journal you kept while you were at Dracula's guest. Incredibly, he confirmed that everything you'd written about to be true, knowing that someone else believes you put any lingering doubts regarding your own sanity from your mind, which makes a new man of you. Now that you know you're not insane, you no longer feel as, fra- as afraid as you did, not even of the Count. Deduct a point from your terror score and restore your agility, combat, and endurance scores back to their starting levels. Well, dang! Hell yeah. That's pretty good. Dracula has succeeded. So I believe oh. now we have the same horror, oh, sorry, terror on each character of four. Oh, dang. That was not what I expected. Dracula has succeeded, after all, then, in getting to London, and somehow has become younger in the process, but how? It would seem that Van Helsing is the man to unmask him and hunt him down if he's anything, as Mina describes. The following morning, you call at the hotel where the professor's staying and meet him for yourself. When you come into the room where he is and introduce yourself, he seems surprised. Taking you by the shoulder and turning your face to the light, he says, But... Madam Mina told me you were ill, that you, that you had shock. I was ill, and I have had a shock, you reply smiling. But you've cured me already. But how? asks the kindly, strong-faced old man. I was in doubt, and I didn't know what to trust, even the evidence of my own senses. Not knowing what to trust, I didn't know what to do. Professor, you don't know what it is to doubt everything, even yourself. You'll, uh... Give me a hand, won't you? Let us be friends for all of our lives. You shake hands, and Van Helsing is so earnest and so kind that it makes you feel quite emotional. And now with that done, he says, May I ask for your help? I have a great task to complete. Does what you have to do concern the Count? You ask. It does, is his solemn response. Then I am with you in heart and soul, you tell him. Van Helsing tells you that he must return to London, and so you see him to the station. As you are parting, he says, Perhaps you'll uh, come to town if I send for you and bring Madame Mina too. 
We shall both come when you will. You tell him. Van Helsing is flicking through a copy of the Westminster Gazette while you're waiting for the train to depart. When something catches his eye and his cheeks lose all of their color. As he reads the piece in question quite intently, he groans to himself. My God, my God. So soon, so soon. Just then the whistle blows and the train moves off. The shakes... This shakes him from the, his reverie, and remembering himself, he leans out the window and waves, calling, My love to Madame Mina! I'll ride as soon as I can. Turn to 639. Jonathan Harker's Journal. 29th of September. When I received Mr. Billington's courteous message, that would give me any information in his power, I thought it best to go down to Whitney and make, on the spot, such inquiries as I wanted. Don't make on the spot. Come on. <laughs> find some you make privacy. in the toilet. You make in the toilet. You make toilet. You don't make on the spot. Come on. Uh, it is only a matter of days before you hear from Professor Van Helsing again, asking you and me to travel to London to meet with Lucy's former suitors, who are also intent on putting an end to the Count's malicious schemes. But he also sets you the task of tracing that horrid cargo of Dracula's, the boxes of soil from his homeland that he brought to England aboard the doomed Demeter, Demeter, wow, to where it was delivered in London. Billington Jr., not a real guy, meets you at the station and brings you to his father's house, where they have already decided that you must stay tonight. They're hospitable, believing that one should give a guest everything and leave him free to do as he likes, understanding that time is of the essence and that your stay will... By necessity, be short. Mr. Billington has already already has all the papers concerning the consignment of boxes ready for you in his office. Among them is one of the letters which you saw on the Count's table before you knew of his diabolical plans. It soon becomes evident that Dracula prepared for every obstacle which might be placed in the way of his intentions being carried out. Then you come upon an invoice that sets you on the path to uncovering the information you came here seeking. And it says... I don't know. 50 cases of common earth to be used for experimental purposes. There's also a copy of a letter set, sent to a company by the name of Carter Patterson, and their reply, This is all information Mr. Billington can furnish you with. So you got down to the port and speak with the Coast Guards, the Customs Officer and the Harbor Master. They all have something to say about the arrival of the Demeter on that dark and stormy night, but none of them can expand upon the simple description. Fifty cases of common earth. You see that the station master next, and he is able to put you in communication with the men who actually received the boxes, but all they can tell you is the boxes were... Mortal heavy. And that shifting them was... Fly work. Returning to London the next day, you arrive at King's Cross and from there travel to Carter Patterson's central office, where you're met with utmost courtesy. They look up the transaction in their ledger, and at the end of the working day, you have all the papers connected with the delivery of the boxes to Carfax's house in Perfleet, including a roughly drawn map of the property that shows 30 rooms on the main house and set a, and a set of skeleton keys attached to a tag bearing the number 145. Record the map and the skeleton keys along with the numbers associated with them. 30 rooms in the house and 145 tag on the skeleton key. Let me know when you got that. Got it. All right. That evening, as you take a cab from Perfleet Station to Carfax Asylum, where you are to be re reunited with your wife Mina and Professor Van Helsing, you are certain of one thing, that all the boxes that arrived in Whitby from Varna 
in the hold of the Demeter were safely deposited in the old chapel at Carfax. There should be fifty of them there, unless any have since been removed. Tick off the code word, uh, That one. Quinquaginta. Yes. Quinquag? Isn't that... One of the names of the vessels in in the 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 uh, horrible story that never ends. The, the hor- my unfortunate life. <laughs> my unfortunate series of events. That's it. Uh, from <laughs> from Mister Lemon Snicket. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it sounds right. Quinquaginta. Interesting. I just, I wonder if that means, you know, it, it, cause like Quinn five, I, I wonder if it's possible that it's referring to the amount of chests or yeah. uh. s- like packages taken by sea. Mm, perhaps. Quinn Quaginta. Two hours after supper, after you make supper, six of you gather in Dr. Seward's study and take your places around the table. Like some impromptu committee, Professor Van Helsing takes the head of the table and makes the necessary introductions. My friends, in recent days we've all witnessed terrible things and I've seen evidence of a corrupting evil working within the world. But I believe that we six have a chance to put an end to it. For we're uniquely blessed that our band has many skills which will help us overcome our enemy and thwart his dastardly plans for conquest. We have Mr. Harker here, who's not only survived the horrors he encountered in the monster's lair, but had the courage to escape its confines, and whose solicitor's eye for detail has only increased our knowledge, and thereby our likely success of our scheme since returning to England. Oh, and over here we have Mrs. Harker, who's also witnessed firsthand the powers the blackguard can command, and whose scrupulous secretarial skills mean we'll have a complete record of the monster's actions to date. Well, insofar as it's possible to have. Also, thanks to Lord Godalming's considerable resources, we need not wait for anything in our fight against this foreign invader. Be it bullets or train tickets, he's kindly said he's going to offer all of our costs. And along with Arthur's generosity, we have Mrs. Sorry, we have Mr. Quincy Morris's courage and redoubtable combat skills. With this brave Texan in our midst, we'll she'll take the fight of the enemy and win. Oh, and then there's my friend, Dr. John Stewart, whose medical knowledge rivals my own, and whose insights into the working of the mind are even greater. Fortuitously, or is it the hand of fate aiding us in our encounter, his study of a patient in his care. A certain Mr. Renfield himself, formerly an employer of Hawkins, Oldman and Lee in Exeter, has uh, helped us understand where we've got to begin to hunt for that fiend. But before we do, I must tell you something of the kind of enemy we now face. For you must understand that there are such things as vampires. And there's much evidence that they exist. I admit that I myself first was a skeptic, and, alas, had I known from the outset what I now know to be true, the life of dear Miss Westenra might have been saved. But, sadly, she's gone. And so we must work to ensure that other poor souls don't perish whilst we can save them. The Nosferatu, words for a vampire, by the way, do not die like the bee when he stings but once he's stronger and being stronger has more power to do more evil this vampire which we now seek has a strength of 20 men he has grown cunning through the ages and through the power of necromancy the dead he is to command 
He's a devil himself, able to bend the elements to his will, the storm, the fog, the thunder. He can command the meaner forms of life as well, the rat, the bat, the moth, the wolf. He can even make himself invisible. So, how then are we to begin our crusade to put an end to him? How should we find where he's hiding? And having found it, how should we put an end to him? My friends, it is the terrible task that we're about to undertake. And there may be consequences that would make a brave man shudder. But if we fail in our task, he will surely win. And to fail here, it's not a matter of life and death merely. It is that we become as he is. Foul things of the night without compassion or conscience. Praying on the bodies of the souls that we love the best. The... Gates of heaven shut to us forever, abhorred by all, a blot on the face of God's creation. Is it our sworn duty to face and destroy him? It is. And who would shrink from such a duty? What say you? Are you with me? Everyone replies raucously in the affirmative. You all agree wholeheartedly not to rest until the monster has been vanquished, and so you all join hands, and your solemn pact is made. And now... Says Van Helsing. Let us share all we've learned about the monster we face. And he proceeds to go around the table asking each of you, in turn, to share with the rest of the class what you personally experienced, witnessed, and discovered. How many of the following code words do you have ticked off? Oh, my word. Uh, there's lots mm-hmm. of things We here. have. May-, may I try? Yes. Anthropophagy. The eating of humans. Uh, arachnophilia, the loving of spiders. Uh, Barbastella, bogey. Cadaver, demeter. Desmontidae. Uh, Eptesicus, exsanguination, the bleeding. Uh, lunatic, monomania. Psychopathia, quinquaginta. Sarcony, scientia. Slave, somnambulism. Strigoi, terkip, tukor. And zoophagus, eating animals. Mm-hmm. Well, so how many do we have out of those? We have one. So we have somnambulism. Two. We have uh, Barbastella. We have Quinquaginta. And those are our... Oh, I wish we Demeter. had Demeter, but I guess we didn't... No, no, no. Demeter we... was not marked for us. Demeter was the name of the ship. We didn't go down to the ship at the right time, oh. I think, to get the keyword Demeter. Quinquaginta. We have somnambulism. Oh, no. Yeah, unfortunately, it looks like we have a total of three of these. I think a lot of these might have been picked up over the course of uh, John Seward's, because, like, anthropophagy, uh, zoophagus, uh, cadaver, Mm -hmm. like, lunatic, a lot of these make sense through a medical context, psychopathia. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Eptesicus? I feel like every... Maybe this is... Oh, no, it's alphabetical. I was going to say. Maybe it's sorted by... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, definitely a couple of these we should have, could have gotten on a different path, though. Definitely a couple of these. Mm. Uh, all right. So we're, so we're going to only the, the page of one through three. Mm-hmm. One, uh, eight, six, nine. Curse of uh, doing a podcast and needing to not run the other character because we have to be out in a realistic amount of time. 869. Woo. 
Disappointingly, as a group, you have not actually learned that much and seem to have more questions than answers regarding the Fiend in this plan. Gain four blood points and turn to 978. I mean, here's the thing. There have been ways to remove blood points up to this point. Mm. Yes. So if we take out any of the uh, agents of darkness, uh, I believe that we will be able to refresh uh, some of our blood points. Although I expect generally over the course of this entire mission, the amount of blood will just start increasing. We might yes. be able to lower it a little, but it's going to go up. Yeah. When everyone else ha has had a chance to speak, Arthur rises from his seat at the table. Professor! Oh, wait. <laughs> Is Arthur the Texan? Maybe. Professor, yes. you so, mentioned yeah. the monster had grown cunning through the ages. Not years, but ages. The vampire can't die by mere passing of time. He flourishes on the blood of the living. Van Helsing explains. And having feasted, he can grow even younger. But... He cannot flourish without his diet. Even Jonathan, who lived with him for weeks, never saw him eat. He casts no shadow and makes no reflection in a mirror. He can, however, change his shape. He can come in the form of a mist and he can see in the dark. He can do all these things and yet he is not free to come and go as he pleases. He may not enter anywhere unless he's been invited in. His power ceases with the coming of the day, at which time he must return to his hiding place within unhallowed ground, such as the grave of a suicide. Boom, on a crossroads. It is also said that he cannot pass over running water. And then there's, of course, things that can harm him, including garlic, the holy artifacts, the crucifix, the host. Oh, there's others too. A branch of wild rose on his coffin will keep him from believing it. A sacred bullet fired into the coffin will kill him truly dead, as will a stake driven through his heart. Oh, and how many's head cut off? If we can find where this monster's hiding, we can confine him to his coffin and destroy him. If we obey what we know, but we must ever be watchful and wary, for he is clever. For a moment, the only sound of the room is the ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece. So who's this Count Dracula when he was a mortal man? Asks Arthur. I asked my friend uh, Arminius of the Budapest University to find out the answer to this very question. Scouring all the ancient chronicles and documents are available to him. And he's certain that he was once Vovoid Dracula, who won the title of warlord fighting against the Turks at the very frontier of the Ottoman Empire on the borders of uh, Wallachia. Even then he was no common man, for at the time of his reign... And for centuries after, he was spoken of of the cleverest and most cunning, as well as the bravest of the sons of the land beyond the forest. That mighty intellect and iron resolution went with him to his grave, and they're now arrayed against us. The Draculas were a great and noble race, but there were rumours that certain scions had dealings with the devil. They learned their secrets in the Scholomance, a school of black magic hidden in the mountains. This one manuscript said the very Dracula is spoken of as Wampir, a name we recognize all too well. And now we must decide upon a course of action. Picking up the chronological account that comprises the contents of the three diaries as well as the telegrams, letters, and newspaper clippings, he says, We have much data, and we must proceed to plan our campaign. We know from the inquiry of Jonathan that from the castle to Whitby came 50 boxes of earth, all of which should have been delivered to Carfax. It seems to me that our first step should be to ascertain whether they remain in the grounds of Carfax House or whether any's been removed. Take an ESP test. If you pass the test, 
turn to 408. But if you fail, turn to 427. We're going to be going to 427 as uh, we roll 8, which is exactly one above a Harker's value of 7 on ESP. If only we were mean. If only. If only we were mean. There's no time to lose, urged the professor. We gotta find those boxes, and if we encounter our enemy, we gotta kill this monster in his lair. But if he eludes us, we must nonetheless sterilize the earth they contain, so that he can never seek shelter within them. And if any's been removed, we gotta trace their whereabouts. And now we gotta choose one of the three characters to continue the adventure as. I feel as though the reasons for wanting to be Jonathan Harker before are still uh, present here. Very fair. I don't feel like that has been challenged of me. Mm-hmm. Also, for what's worth, uh, we do have the map and skeleton keys as Harker. Yeah, that seems important. So let's turn to page four. Here I am at four. And now for you, Madam Mina. Van Helsing says, turning to your wife. This marks the end in your part of the proceedings until all's well. You're too precious to risk taking with us. We're men, we're able to bear what happens in this night, but you must remain our star and our hope, and we shall act all the more freely knowing you're not in danger. You feel greatly relieved upon hearing the professor's pronouncement, even though Mina appears less happy with the situation. But she does not want her mere presence among the party to put the rest of you in harm's way, and though it is a bitter pill for her to swallow, she agrees to remain behind your rooms at the asylum. Turn to 159. Under the cover of darkness, the five of you leave Carfax Asylum and help each other clamber over the boundary wall at the hospital shares with Carfax House. Each of you is armed with a revolver and a large knife. For uh, other enemies more mundane. As Van Helsing puts it, and you all carry a small electric lamp fastened to your breasts just in case. Record the revolver, large knife, and the electric lamp in the equipment box in your adventure sheet and taking care to keep the shadows cast by the trees that grow close to the wall, you discuss where to look for the boxes of earth. What do you want to suggest? The grounds first, or head to the house straight away on 47? Hmm. I mean, I will say, in a weird way, since we have the four blood points already, mm-hmm. it's it almost could be a good idea to be more blunt with it. Yep in fear of stacking up more blood points by like it's weird it's like we were more prepared but we're more prepared for a stronger threat so it almost feels as though we could do either and it'd be fine so maybe we go to the house i also i i i, I like to i think i'd like to search the grounds first and here's my argument for it effectively um I feel like uh, multiple points over the course of this book, and especially recently, which is to say the code word checks, uh, we have come up wanting with respect to what the book is asking. Uh, And that we've also more than regained a lot of our stats from positions that previously would have been bad. Uh, So maybe we have, you know, some, some, some endurance to play with and throw away effectively. Oh, certainly. It, it's, the concern comes from the fact that we may now be playing with blood being added more than before. Oh, definitely. But, but 142 if we find is... something evil and kill it, we could take blood away. For chaps. Van Helsing agrees. I'm at 142. 
I was I was just mentioning I, I I went there immediately. Van Helsing agrees that it might be wise to not to assume that the boxes have been stored in the house, and so the five of you split up to search the grounds, each of you promising to give a whistle if you find anything. You head north to where an ancient apple orchard has grown into a copse of tangled lichen-barked trees. Hearing a sound like flapping of laundry on a line that has you looking upwards, and there, silhouetted against the moon, you see dozens of leathery-winged bats descending from the night sky. You manage to remember to give a shrill whistle, and the bats attack. If you want to use the pen as mightier, and you still can, go to 127, otherwise go to 104. I'm down to fight. The pen needs not intervene in this situation. Is frickin' bats. Flailing about, you with your knife, you defend yourself against the shrieking bats. In this battle, you have the initiative. So I will say we do have the ability to gun. We do have the ability to gun. So could you tell us how a gun works? Uh, yeah, give me a second. It's been uh, two, two and a half, three hours since I've looked that up. Ranged combat. Okay. If you find yourself in battle and you have the initiative, you do need to have the initiative. You may choose to fire your gun before you engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So just take a combat test like normal. And if you pass, you do three damage before the combat starts. And if you hit, you can try again even. So oh, wow. But you cannot do more than two. Two is the max. So what page okay, was this? Okay, cool. This is on 104. Uh, so a combat test in this instance, it's, it, is it testing against their combat or is it us testing our yeah, own? Yeah, it's got to be against theirs, which is pretty weak. But, it's a six. But how? What do you mean? I probably I probably roll like normal, right? A com um, a combat test is our combat versus their combat. That's what it lists as a combat test. Oh. So that is a thirteen. They are they have a combat score of six. They're not very strong. Do what we what do we do? Uh, one moment, please. Okay. Um. So that's not the case here and it's important because it will make this a much better tool for future fights uh if your agility combat or esp is being tested you simply roll through dice and if they roll equal to or less than the attribute being tested you pass the test however there's combat rating in combat rounds and then there's a different thing combat tests okay well that's better uh, for us so then. We... isn't our score like 10 yeah, exactly. So we literally just need to not roll an 11 or a 12 in order to be able to shoot this gun. And? <laughs> That's a 9. So we managed to pop off the first shot, taking 3 Bang. health away from the 8 endurance bats. Down to 5. And we take another shot for 8. That's, a, right. that's another 3 endurance off of them. One so round? We literally need to win one round of combat, and we have initiative on the first... So they roll, and they got a 5 plus 6, 11. So you'll roll plus 1 versus 11. This is hilarious. So I rolled snake eyes, which means we have 2 on our dice. We have 10 combat score and plus 1 from initiative. We still get them. Oh, my God. That's embarrassing for the bats. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, they are just, they're just bats. It's just like... I don't think it was supposed to be tricky, but we really just, that was embarrassing for them. Turn to page 81. Exactly. The bats fly off towards the shadowy silhouette of the Carfax house, and you can't help but wondering if they're going to report back on your presence here. Gain two blood points. Yep, you were right. 
It is then that the others arrive, summoned by your whistle, with no one having found any sign of the boxes being stored here on the grounds, and you all now go to the house. Well. 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 Let that be a lesson to you. Even if things go well, they may not have. Yeah. <laughs> when you get to the porch, the professor opens his bag and takes out all manner of items, which he lays on the steps, sorting them into four groups, evidently one for each of you. My friends. He says in a barely audible whisper. We're heading into terrible danger. we got to arm ourselves accordingly. Remember, our enemy has a strength of 20 men. we got to guard ourselves to his touch. Keep this near your heart. He says, giving each member of your party a small silver crucifix. And put these flowers around your neck. He hands each of you a wreath of withered garlic blossoms. And all of this, which we must not desecrate needlessly. This is a portion of sacred wafer blessed during the Holy Eucharist, which he has put into envelopes in which he shares among your brave band now. Mark all that on the adventure sheet. And now we must gain ingress to the house. If you have the skeleton keys, turn to the number stamped on the tag that they're attached to. Otherwise, don't. And go to blank. So what was the number? Was it 40? What was 145. It? 145? Oh. You try the skeleton keys one after another until you find the one that fits the lock. After a little play back and forth, the bolt yields and shoots back open with a rusty clang, and ancient hinges creaking, the door slowly opens. Fingers crossed that that at least stopped us from getting some blood. Mm-hmm. The professor is the first to step forward and enter the house. In minus two is domine, he mutters, crossing himself as he passes over a threshold. Once you're all inside, you close the door behind you and ignite your lamps. The whole place is thick with dust. The floor is seemingly inches deep with it. On a table in the hall, you find a great bunch of keys with time-yellowed label on each. They have been used several times, for there are several rents in the blanket of dust covering the table. If you have a map of the Carfax house, multiply the number of the rooms in the house by 15 and turn to the section, which is the same as the final total. Otherwise, blank. So it was about 30? Cool. 30, exactly. So that would take us to 450. Oops. How fortunate it is for us, Mr. Harker, that you copied those plans of the house. Says Van Helsing as you unfold the, and that also that right there confirms that we definitely can't trade inventory so great to know mm. says Van Helsing as you unfold the map you made of the mansion now which way is it to the chapel you lead the way and soon you find yourself opposite a low arched oaken door ribbed with iron bands turn to 606 this is the spot announces the professor in a half whisper as he opens the door you're expecting some unpleasantness but you doubt that in any that any among your party ever expected to be confronted by such an odor as the one that assails you now from the neglected chapel. The sanctuary is small and close, and its long disuse has made the air stagnant and foul. There's an earthy smell which cuts through the fouler air, but as to the odor itself, you believe it to be composed of all the ills of mortality mixed with the pungent acrid smell of blood, as if the very corruption has itself been corrupted. <laughs> So good. It is as if the breath exhaled by the monster you seek has clung to this place, intensifying its loathsome foulness. Take an endurance test that we cannot fail in theory. If you pass the test, turn to 644. If you fail, turn to 681. We have 24 endurance, don't we? We do indeed, which means we cannot fail this test. I will say I rolled for uh, kicks and giggles. I got to say 12. 
17. I got a 19, which is pretty high. But And yet. And yet, it's irrelevant. 644. In any other circumstance, such a stench would bring your enterprise to an end at once. But this is no ordinary situation, and the vital purpose that has brought you here gives you the strength to rise above the merely physical considerations. After the involuntary drawing back at the first nauseous whiff, every member of your party presses on into the chapel. Turn to 707. Inside the chapel, resting upon the packed earth floor, are dozens of bulky wooden crates, their lids nailed shut. First thing we gotta do is count them boxes says the professor. It does not take long to ascertain the number, and to the horror of you all, there are only 29 left out of the 50 that the Count had transported to England on board the Russian schooner. Take an ESP test. Oh no. And turn to 367. With a 5 against our ESP 7. That's why you roll. I got a 10. So, out of curiosity. So 331. It looks as though 331, uh, the text for it, is hidden behind an image. Correct. But this is definitely the right page, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Sensing the unease felt by another member of your party, you turn to see Arthur staring out of the vaulted door of the chapel into the dark passage beyond. You follow his gaze, and for an instant your heart stands still, for you're convinced you see highlights of an evil face, the ridge of the nose, the red eyes, the red lips, the awful pallor staring back at you from the shadows. It is only for a moment, and the illusion is dispelled, as Lord Godalming says. I thought I saw a face, but it was only the shadows. And then resumes his examination of the wooden crates. But you, not satisfied that it was only a trick of the light or lack of it, boldly step into the passage just to be sure. There's no sign of anyone there, and there are no corners, no doors, indeed no aperture of any kind. But the only solid walls of the passage, but only the solid walls of the passage, there could be no hiding place. Deciding the impression of the face was product of both fear and your overactive imagination, you say nothing to the others and return to the chapel. Add one point to your ESP score, one point to terror, but deduct a blood point and turn to 564. Well, that's nice at least. Mm. We're up to a total of eight ESP on Jonathan Harker. We've got five blood cumulatively and five terror on Harker too. Five terror, we have learned, is not bad at all. Could be a lot worse, and it will be. It Yeah. 564. And now, my friends. The professor addresses you. We have a duty to do. We've got to sterilize this earth that he's brought from a far distant land for such fell use. It's sacred to him because it's of his homeland. But if we sanctify it in God's name, purifying it and denying the evil one his sanctuary. As he speaks, he takes from his bag a screwdriver and a wrench and opens one of the crates. The earth it contains is redolent with uh, odors of damp and mildew. Taking up tools, the rest of you prepare to follow the professor's example. Using your knife, you prize open one of the crates and immediately recoil in horror as you can see dead fingers and the mottled pate of a half- head half buried within the soil. Your horror is only compounded when the fingers suddenly start to twitch and you stagger back in appalled disbelief. Before your very eyes, a hand emerges from the moldering loam followed by another, and together they heave the buried body within the box from the stinking earth. Its features half rotted away and its skin that is like old white leather is stretched over the bones of the ribcage. Take a terror test. If you pass it, go to 780. If you fail, 814. It's going to be pretty, have to be pretty bad for us to fail a terror test. I succeeded mine. 
Did you roll all ones? I, no. <laughs> I got a six, a six, a two, and a three. That'll so, do. 780, baby. In Dracula's native Transylvania, they're called Strigoi. The restless souls that rise from the grave, often at the behest of the powerful necromancer. A maggot-eaten black tongue darts from ra ragged lips, and the unliving horror hisses as it clambers out of the crate that has kept it confined these past three months. Add one to your terror score. You're only dimly aware that its venomous hiss is underscored by the horrifying cries of your companions as other corpses start to break free of their wooden prisons. If you want to use, the pen is mightier, and you still can. Turn to 867, otherwise 837. I mean, it's got to be a fight, right? And we're good at those. We are good at those, and we have a flask, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. With four charges remaining in it, I think we should definitely take the fight to them. Yeah. You can do nothing but tighten your grip on the revolver and the knife in your hands as you ready yourself to meet the living corpse's attack. In this battle, they have the initiative, so we cannot use our gun. Dang. So, they have a combat score of 7 and an endurance of 7. In turn 1, they get a 5, 12, 13. They didn't roll very well. 19 in response. Bang! That's 2 down, endurance down to 5. And then mm. that also gives you the initiative. Yeah, with the initiative, do we now have the ability to fire the gun? I no, I think it's it's before it's before we get into yeah. Uh right, so that is right. going to be a that's a fourteen. You get a roll plus a one. Sixteen in response. With initiative it's and a combat score of ten, it's pretty hard to lose. It's pretty difficult. Alright, and that is a that's another fourteen. Mm, Nineteen. One last round of combat. Yeah. As you have one endurance remaining oh, on the three okay. That's that's a twelve. If you've got all these other ones, you don't get this one. Wait, it's impossible for you to I, not get this one. I have great news. What? The Strigoi is dead again. Oh stay down. Punk. 897. If you finish off the horror, go to 897. With a final powerful swing of your heavy knife, you decapitate your attacker and turn to 914. The chapel is that's, suddenly... That's fun. You what? can only do two shots with the, the gun, and uh, it can only do three damage each time, which means it's impossible to have finished that enemy off with the gun. So it has to have been your knife. That's cool. That is true. And also... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even if you could start with your... But I don't even know if there's ever a way... Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, it's just, it's just nose. There's been no inconsistencies or, hey, wait a minute, so far, and that's great because this seems complicated to keep track of mm -hmm. the chapel is suddenly awash with noise as the desperate cries of your compatriots the crack of pistol shots the tearing of wood echoing from the vaulted roof as more strigoi break free of their confinement and attack your fellow vampire hunters you throw yourself into the fray as an, in an effort to aid them in their hour of need you need to work out how many of the unleashed strigoi you and your companions managed to destroy take an agility test a combat test an endurance test an esp test and a terror test then roll one die you may choose to spend a use of the pen is mightier, having done so. Oh, okay. So basically, it's just a big old list of checks. I'll do the ESP and the tear. Oh, wait, I don't know the ESP. I'll do the... I'll do the here, I'll do the endurance check. Uh, it passes. <laughs> so that's... Mm -hmm. 
Okay. That's plus two. Uh, the agility check, we also pass for another so plus one, plus taking us to three. Yep. The combat check is also passed for a total of four. The ESP check, we pass exactly. We would not have passed it if we didn't get the plus one previously. Okay, good. Uh, for a total of five now. The terror test is four, that, if I remember I mean, correctly. Yeah, that should be easy. Yep, and it absolutely is. We pass that also uh, for a total of six at this point. Yep. And then we roll one die to see if the number rolled is even. And it is, plus one point. Oh That's my God. seven without the pennies mightier. Uh, we could get two more if we use the pennies mightier. We could also get one more for having Strigoi, code word, marked off. And we would lose one if we had Pestis marked off. But I feel like none of those are relevant, seven I can is imagine. probably good enough, right? Yeah, sounds good to me. I feel like surely seven is good enough, right? Mm -hmm. If it's not, I'm mad. Uh, the number of points that you have scored is the total of num number of Strigoi that have already been dealt with. Okay, so it's, okay, it wasn't like a strict... One way or another by your brave hand. Deduct this from the total of 20, then divide the remaining number by 4, rounding fractions up. This is the total number of Strigoi you personally still have left to fight. Each of them has the following stats and must be might fight any remaining Strigoi at the same time. But in this battle, you have the initiative. Okay, so a couple things go here. So, seven, four, so it's 14 there. Divide by 3, rounding up. So it's got to be, what, 5? Uh... Yeah, right? Seven, 13 divided by 4 would be 3 and then some, right? So it'd be... 4? Wait. Yeah, it'd be 4. Oh, is it? Wait, divide the... No oh, we're di oh, we're dividing by 4. Oops. Yeah. I was thinking... Yeah. Yep. Yep. We're all good. I'm so, going up uh, to multiple enemies. Uh, sometimes you may find yourself fighting more than one enemy. Uh, let's see. There's something about that. Uh, such battles are conducted in the same ways above using the same process except you have to work up the combat ratings of all involved as long as you have a higher rating than an opponent you will injure them no matter how many you're taking on at the same time equally any opponent with a combat rating higher than yours will also be able to injure you back um, it doesn't say anything about us not being able to use range attacks at them it doesn't say yeah it doesn't say you can't says there's nothing in the rules that says a dog can't play basketball i'm mm -hmm. checking right here it would be strange if it was listed in this book but like it doesn't say anything about that yeah so i guess i guess we can try and take some pot shots it also like their endurance being conveniently at six feels mm -hmm. on purpose there so like if you're so that i'd imagine we make a whole bunch of combat checks right now Absolutely. Could I quickly ask uh, what page we're on? 937. 937. There we go. Cool. Um, so, yeah, first one. Let's make a combat check for the first uh, gun. And it goes off with a plong and is followed up very neatly with a second shot, taking out Strigoi number one, leaving with only three to fight. The question being, do we get to, do we get to gun them all or is that our two? No. So it, I, I went back up to the ranged and it said, if you start an encounter, not you can use two shots per person. Yes, that makes more sense to me. Uh, plus, 
if there's only three left anyways, that's not that big of a deal. So mm -hmm. let me add a couple things. And also we have initiative. Oh, oh my god, they both wrote that. We we do have initiative. I will also note that uh, in this first combat round, it is impossible for any of the Strigoi to roll higher than us, as uh, we have an 11 plus 10 for a total of 21. Okay. Well, Watch out. Got a f they all rolled... They all rolled different permutations of 8. <laughs> so, so they all got 14 anyways. So they all take Excellent. one little smack to the old dome. Mm -hmm. Each of them will take two damage. Uh, are you tracking the health of multiple enemies, or would you like me to? I'm tracking them right now. They're all the same, so I haven't even... Easy. Okay, Second so round of combat could be dicey. So this is... There's an 11. There is a 13. And then there is a 14. Oh, blessings be. 15 is actually our result. We are okay. capable of hitting all of them again. All right. These are also pretty weak. <gasps> well, yeah, exactly. One more round like that and all the Strigoia put down. You got to roll pretty well. Uh, I did. Well, uh, just how about you tell me the number and I'll let you know if that's even... We'll figure out if it's even possible to be beaten. Absolutely. 18. If they roll a 12, they equal our combat strength. So one of them got a 12. What happens when they equal our combat strength? I thought we win in an equal. That would make sense to me because most or, I think initiative broken in player favor. I think initiative breaks. In, it's either player favor or initiative. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's not. Uh, if your combat rating and your opponent's combat rating ultimately are the same, um, you roll one die. If you roll odd, you and your opponent deflect one another. Uh, if it's even, then we both manage to injure one another, taking one point from each of our endurances. I rolled a three. So. Two. Wait. Oh, shoot. Uh, oh, sorry. Wait, 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 right. It's you roll one die, right? Yes. Uh, Which so means, you roll a three. It's yes. odd, so we deflect one another. So only yeah. one of the Strigoi is left alive. Yes. Hey, my brothers. Okay. Um, I would imagine that we both lose initiative then, from what it says before. So this is uh, 15. Uh, that's annoying. What, 14. 15. They Aww. win this round and gain the initiative. Take two damage. <laughs> and then they poop the bed. Sorry, they make the bed. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Oh, God, so do we. Um, we. They get a... They roll the three. Plus six, nine. Mm. Well, they do get ten because of the I initiative. I two. Oh. Plus ten, and we win. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they make the bed. Um... Anytime anyone to... says that they made their bed, I'm going to go... Ew! <laughs> I'm so sorry. I stopped doing that when I that? was a kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alright. I haven't made the bed since I was, like, four. Alright. 967. With the destruction of the last of the living corpses, it seems as if some evil presence has quit the place, and you feel has quit this place, and you feel like your spirit rise as the shadow of dread slips from you like a robe. Deduct a point from your terror. Now we understand the Count's plan all the better. Van Helsing muses as he surveys the 
the dismembered corpses that lie among the broken boxes. He seeks to conquer this fair isle, and he brought an army to England to help him accomplish that goal. He wishes to tear down this place of established order and build an empire of undead in its place. His old warlike habits have not left him. You exchange horrified looks with your companions as the terrible truth that has been revealed to you starts to sink in. But come on, the professor goes on. We must finish our work here so we can ensure that Dracula can never resurrect this Strigoi to fight for him again. Taking a tinderbox and matches from his bag, utilizing the splintered planks of the broken boxes in which Dracula had hidden his vanguard of the undead, he prepares for each of you a blazing torch between you and you set about creating a number of bonfires within the chapel. The boxes and bodies already starting to burn, you leave the chapel, closing the door behind you, and quit the accursed Carfax house. The morning is quickening in the east, and you emerge from the shadowed entrance hall. Alright, our night has been eminently successful. Van Helsing declares, smiling broadly. Our first, and perhaps our most difficult and dangerous steps being accomplished, without troubling Madame Mina's waking or sleeping thoughts with sights and sounds and smells of horror which she might never forget. And we know that 21 boxes have been moved from the Carfax house. Our priority now is to find those remaining boxes and cleanse them all of what might lie, what might lie rather, within. Turn to page 20. Skull is not relevant, yes? Uh, Skull is not relevant. If we were currently playing as John Seward, it would be. Asylum is silent. <laughs> Oops. When your party returns, save for some poor creature who's screaming away in one of the distant wards, and a low moaning sound coming from another wretch's room, the poor soul is doubtless torturing himself, after the manner of the insane with needless thoughts of pain. You tiptoe into your own room and find Mina asleep. She's breathing so softly that you have to put your ear down to hear it. She looks paler than usual, and you hope the meeting tonight did not upset her too much. You settle down to sleep on the sofa so as not to disturb her. You're truly thankful that she is to be left out of your future work, and even any deliberation is too great of a strain for her to hear. It's only to be expected that you would oversleep, for the, the previous day was a busy one. And the night had no rest at all. Even Mina must have felt its exhaustion, for though you sleep until the sun is high, you are awake before her and call have to call several times before she stirs. Having breakfasted, you leave your wife in Dr. Seward's safekeeping and set off for London once more, determined to find out what had happened to the 21 boxes that were missing from the chapel of the Carfax house. You know that 50 boxes of earth were received by Mr. Billington, not real, and Whitby and that these were passed on to Carter Patterson, who was responsible for having them delivered to Perfleet. The question is, who took 21 of the boxes away again, and where did they take them? The vital clue required to solve the mysteries and Miss Mina's transcriptions of Dr. Seward's phonograph cylinders. Specifically, in a report made by his colleague, Dr. Hennessy, the carriers who came to take the boxes away were involved in an altercation with one of Dr. Seward's patients, who had managed to break out of the asylum. Thankfully, Dr. Hennessy took the names and addresses in case they might be needed. The men you need to interview are Jack Smollett and Thomas Snelling, who are both the in, in the employ of Harris & Sons Moving and Shipment Company, Orange Master Yard, Soho. Upon arriving in London, you make your way to the first, first to Mr. Snelling's house and then to Mr. Smollett's, interviewing each in turn, but what they tell you only confirms what you started to suspect yourself. Dracula has had the missing boss, boxes of Earth transported to the very properties you aided him in purchasing around London. 
You return to Perfleet later later that evening, much to your wife's delight, after dinner while you meet with the others again in Dr. Seward's study to discuss developments. Mina retires to bed, complaining that she feels terribly tired, the poor dear. Your meeting is soon interrupted, however, when a wild yell from the ward below brings Simmons, one of the hospital's attendants, to Dr. Seward's study. Come quickly, doctor! He says, breathlessly having to run here as fast as he could. It's Renfield! He's been involved in some kind of accident! Turn to 676. Renfield is lying in his cell in a glittering pool of blood. It's immediately apparent that he's received some terrible injuries, his face horribly bruised as though it's been beaten against the floor. I think his back is broken, Simmons says. See? Both his right arm and leg and the whole side of his face are paralyzed. And how could such a thing have happened? It's a mystery. How could he have damaged his face like that by beating on his own head on the floor? I saw a young woman do it once at Eversfield Asylum before anyone could lay hands on her. And I suppose he could have broken his neck by falling out of bed if he got in an awkward kink. But for the life of me, I can't imagine how the two things occurred together. Renfield's breathing. Stertoriously. Another indication that he suffered some terrible injury, but then suddenly his eyes open and become fixed in a wild, helpless stare. I have had a terrible dream, and it is what has left me so weak that I cannot move. He whispers weakly. What's wrong with my face? It feels... All swollen, and it smarts dreadfully. He tries to turn his head, but even that slight effort causes his eyes to grow glassy. Tell us of your dream, Mr. Renfield. Van Helsing says in a quiet and grave tone. Give me some water. My lips are dry, and I shall try to tell you. Quincy hurries off, but soon returns with a glass of water and a decanter of brandy. His parched lips moisten. The patient re revives a little. Fixing you with a piercing look of agonized confusion, he says... I must not deceive myself. It was no dream, but all a grim reality. His eyes suddenly start roving the room. Quick, doctor, quick! I am dying. I feel that I have but a few minutes left. Wet my lips with brandy again. I have something that I must say before I die. More brandy is offered and the wretch begins to tale of woe. It was that night... After you left me, Dr. Seward, when I implored you to let me go away. I couldn't speak then, for I felt my tongue was tied, but I was as sane then as I am now. I was in the agony of despair for a long time after you left me. It seemed hours. Then there came a sudden peace. My brain seemed to cool again, and I realized where I was. He came to me then. You stifle a gasp. There can only be one individual to whom he's referring. He came up to the window in the mist, and I have seen him often before. But he was solid then, not a ghost, and his eyes were fierce like a man's when angry. He was laughing with his red mouth, the sharp teeth white glinted in the moonlight, and he turned over and looked back to the belt of trees. I wouldn't ask him to come in at first, though I knew he wanted that just as he'd wanted all along. Then... He began promising me things, not in words, but by doing them. How? asks the professor. By making them happen, just as he sent in the flies when the sun was shining. Great big fat ones with steel and sapphire on their wings, and big moths in the night with skull and crossbone on their back. Then he began to whisper, rats, 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 hundreds and thousands. Millions of them, and everyone alive, and dogs to eat them, and cats too. All lives, all red blood within years of life. 
and not mere buzzing flies. I laughed at him, for I wanted to see what he could do. He beckoned me to the window. I got up and looked out, and he raised his hands, and seemed to call out without using words. A dark mass spread across the grass, coming on like a shape of a flame of fire, and then he moved to the mist to the right and left, and I could see there were thousands of rats with their eyes blazing red, like his, only smaller. <coughs> then he held up his hand, and they all stopped. I thought he seemed to be saying, All these lives will I give you, I, and many more and greater through countless ages, if you will fall down and worship me. A red cloud, like the color of blood, seemed to close over my eyes, and before I knew what I was doing, I found myself opening the sash and saying to him, Come in, my lord and master! The rats were all gone, but he slid into the room through the sash, though it was only an inch wide. Renfield's voice is becoming weaker, so Quincy moistens his lips with the brandy again, and he continues. But it seems as though his memory has gone on working in the interval for his story has advanced further. All day I waited to hear from him, and he did not send me anything, not even a blowfly, and when the moon got up I was pretty angry with him. When he slid in through the window, though it was shut and did not even knock, I got mad with him. He sneered at me, and his white face looked out through the mist, with his red eyes gleaming, and he went on as though he owned the whole place and I was no one. He didn't even smell the same as he went by me. I couldn't hold him. I thought that... Somehow, Mrs. Harker had come into the room. You manage to remain silent upon hearing this revelation, although your body starts to shake uncontrollably. When Mrs. Harker came in to see me that afternoon, she wasn't the same. It was like tea after the teapot had been watered. I didn't know that she was there until she spoke, and she didn't look the same. I don't care for pale people. I like them with lots of blood in them, and hers seemed to have all run out. I didn't think of it at the time, but... When she went away, I began to think, and it made me mad to know that he had been taking the life out of her. So when he came tonight, I was ready for him. I saw the mist stealing in, and I grabbed it tight. I had heard the madman have unnatural strength, and as I knew I was a madman at times, anyhow, I resolved to use my power. I, and he felt it too, for he had come out of the mist to struggle with me. I held tight, and though I was going to win... For I didn't mean him to take any more of her life till I saw his eyes. They burned into me, and my strength became like water. It slipped through, and when I tried to cling to him, he raised me up and flung me down. There was a red cloud before me, and a noise like thunder, and the mist seemed to steal away under the door. His voice is becoming fainter and his breathing more stertuous until the last breath escapes him as a gargling death rattle. Ugh. We know the worst now, says Van Helsing, turning to address you all. He's here, and he knows our purpose. It might be too late. It may not be too late. <laughs> Let us be armed, and same as we were the other night. I like pessimistic Van Helsing. <laughs> it's probably too We're late. We're probably dead, but <laughs> might as well. Might as well. Why not? You got anything else to do? I mean... Glad that you have grown into the habit of carrying your knife and revolver with you at all times now, you run from Renfield's cell after Van Helsing and take to the stairs. You take to the first floor, two at a time, arriving at the door of the room where Mina's sleeping in mere moments. Beware! The professor warns as you seize hold of the door handle. 
Alas, it is no common enemy we face. Turning the handle, the five of you burst into the room together. The scene that greets you appalls you. You feel the hackles on the back of your neck rise as their hearts stand still. In a moonlight streaming in through the window, you see the white-clad figure of Mina kneeling at the edge of the bed, her face in the front of her nightdress filthy with blood. By her side stands a th tall, thin man clad in black. It's the Count. As your party bursts into the room, the monster turns his expression... That of some hellborn demon, his eyes burn with devilish passion, and the white sharp teeth behind the full lips of the blood-dripping mouth champ together like those of some wild beast. With a wrench, he throws his victim onto the bed and springs at you. Take an agility test. If you pass, 724. If you fail, 744. Oh, God. We fail. I mean, I... Rolled, I rolled a 10, but our agi is 9. I rolled a... Oh, wait. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to say they would complicate things. I rolled a nine. Which I... Is, it, is that a fail anyways? Doesn't matter. Yep. Oh, no, no, no. If you equal your adji, that would have been... Uh, well, success. you rolled first. We've been going with first roll. And now it's not the time to... Oops, I went to the wrong... Shoot, what page I is it? I believe we are 744. Yeah, I went to the wrong one. The Count is as fast as a striking cobra. He lands in front of you and with one swipe of his taloned hand sends you flying across the room into the doorframe. Lose three endurance points. Oh, no. And turn to 790. Should we drink from the brandy? Just because it uh, also... Probably not. Probably not. It's just the fact that it also reduces ta uh, uh, terror and we can do mm. that way if we reduce terror now and then the next time we do it, we also reduce terror. It's like... Basically, so I'm thinking of it as a way to reduce terror with extra steps. Mm -hmm. I I uh, agree that that is generally the way in which we should probably uh, use this. However, I would probably also wait until our endurance is a slightly more deleterious position because we will be regaining six from that. Although we do have the space oh, to regain five right now. I thought it was three. Yeah, because it, it's three endurance per charge, and we would have to drink two charges, one after the other, in order to be able to do it. Also, we would lower our combat rating by doing that as well. I thought you only do that if you drink twice in a row. Yes, so if we drink twice in a row, we get to decrease our terror, and we also decrease our combat rating temporarily oh, until the next battle. I, I see. I thought that we only drank once to decrease terror. New. Oh god, that would have been great. That's what, <laughs> Four charges of terror less. That's what I read it as. The professor. Okay, seven ninety. We're not skull. We are not. What are we? Bat. Uh, we are crucifix. Crucifix. As, uh, Jonathan Harker. Oh, we just haven't seen that one yet. The professor is suddenly there in front of the count, the sacred wafer in his hand, which he holds out towards the monster. The count stops abruptly and cowers back. As the rest of you raise your silver crucifixes, he cowers back further as you advance upon him. The moonlight suddenly fails as a great black cloud sails across the sky. When the gaslit springs up under Quincy's match a moment later, you see nothing but a faint vapor that trails out through the window and then is gone. You rush forward to help Mina, who suddenly gives a scream so wild and so ear-piercing and so despairing that it breaks your heart to hear it. You gather her up in your arms, and for a few seconds she lies there in helpless disarray. Her face is of ghastly pallor, which is only accentuated by the blood that smears her lips and cheeks and chin. From her throat trickles a thin stream of blood. You look into her eyes and see that they are mad with terror. Are we too late? The professor cries, rushing forward, the sacred wafer still tight in his hand. I have to know! And with that, before you can stop him, he presses it against Mina's forehead. 
She gives another fearful scream and recoils in pain. Where the wafer touched her skin, it burned her flesh as though it were a piece of white-hot metal. Mina sinks to her knees, sobbing and pulling her beautiful hair over her face and wails. Unclean! I'm unclean! Even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh! I must bear this mark of shame upon my forehead until Judgment Day! Falling to the floor beside her, consumed with impotent grief, you push your arms around her and hold her tight. For a few moments, your sorrowful heart beat together while your friends turn away, their eyes running with silent tears. Add two points to your terror score and gain six blood points and turn to 693. Whew! Hilly! Phew! It, uh, may be that you have to bear that mark till God himself sees fit to redress all the wrongs of the earth and his children. Van Helsing says gravely. And, uh, oh, Madame Mina, my dear, may we who love you be there when that red scar passes away and leaves your forehead as pure as the heart we know. Till then, we must bear our cross as his son did in obedience of his will. It may be that we are his chosen instruments of his good pleasure and that we ascend to his bidding through tears and blood, through doubt and fears, and all that makes the difference between God and man. And here we have another opportunity to switch between our characters. Is there play in switching to Mina in this moment? Oh, I think it would be deeply interesting to be Mina right now. I feel like it's really interesting flavor to be Mina right after that. So let's do it. Mm -hmm. There's no time to lose, and there's nothing less at risk now than your own immortal soul. For if the menfolk you're brave would be saviors, do not find the remaining boxes of earth, and finish off the vampire quickly, you'd end up like the poor dear Lucy. Fortunately, however, your dear husband Jonathan helped Count Dracula acquire not just the Carfax house, but three other properties, all located in London. One in Piccadilly, one in Walworth, and one in Mile End. I think the house in Piccadilly is the key. Professor Van Helsing says, when the six of you meet again later that morning, in Dr. Seward's study, which has become the Vampire Hunter's committee room. He must have many belongings hidden somewhere. And why not go somewhere so central, so quiet, and from whence he can come and go by the front or the back at all hours? I think we should search there. But what are the properties in Walworth and Marland? Asks Arthur. We cannot risk leaving any earths for that old fox to run to. And so it is agreed. Arthur Holmwood and Quincy Morris will visit the properties in Walworth and Mile End, while Jonathan and Dr. Seward go with the professor to the large townhouse in Piccadilly. There's nothing for you to do but wait for them all to return safely, you hope, later this evening. After the men have gone, you retire to your room, where you write up the recent events in your journal, feeling very tired after the goings-on of the previous night, and soon fall asleep where you're sitting, in a chair by a window, the morning sunlight warming your skin. Take an ESP test, which Mina's very good at. Mm, which she needed to be exactly this good at as well. We roll nine, which is our increased ESP value from base. Oh, well, let's go. Turn to 511. As you sleep, you dream. You're traveling along Piccadilly, keeping to the shadows of the tall buildings, unseen by the London masses, taking their daily constitutional in the Green Park. It is as if you're seeing through another's eyes. A grim building rises before you, the number on its door, 138. You reach for the door with fingers that end in the chisel-sharp nails. Why do I feel like... I, I'm going to write down 138 just in case. Yeah, so did I. Uh, I. I believe we are seeing slightly through the eyes of a vampire. Yeah. 
You reach for the door with fingers that end in chisel-struck nails. You suddenly awake, your heart pounding, and the wafer burn on your forehead throbbing. What did you see? Was it a dream? Was it a vision? The future? Was it happening right now? Whatever the truth, you are sure Jonathan and the other brave fellows are in danger. Summoning Dr. Seward's housekeeper, you dictate them to telegram to 138 Piccadilly at once, warning them that Dracula's on his way, if he's not there already. Deduct a blood point and turn to 563. Hell yeah! We take that. now down to only 10. That, I have no context if that's a lot, but it feels like a lot. (laughs) But it also seems like it could be worse. I don't know. You're greatly relieved when your husband and the other vampire hunters return to Purfleet that evening and you greet them at the door, daring to hope that they might bring with them some good news. But when you see their faces how, and how your own dear Jonathan appears to have transformed from a vigorous young man in his prime to a haggard old soul in space of one day, his white hair matching well with the hollow burning eyes and grief-written lines etched into his face, you feel the color drain from your own cheeks and can scarce hold back the tears. Oh, I can never thank you all enough. You tell the vampire hunters and taking Jonathan's gray head in your hands and you kiss it, saying, Oh, my poor darling. Add a point to your terror score and turn to 583. Mina's fifth terror. Oh yeah, she's not doing too bad. That night, Quincy Morris keeps watch outside your room. Should the vampire seek to attack you again? As a result, you sleep well, better than you have for many a night. But as the gray of the coming dawn is making the windows, it's making our windows, ugh, into dark, sharp oblongs, and the gas flame is like a speck rather than a disc of light, you find yourself fully awake and an idea fully formed in your mind that you cannot shake. Waking your husband, you tell him to call the professor, for you want to see him at once. When he asks why, you say, I have an idea. I suppose it must have come in the night and matured without my knowing it. Go, quick, dearest. The time's getting closer. Two or three minutes later, Professor Van Helsing is in the room in his dressing gown, while Arthur and Quincy are standing with Dr. Seward at the door asking questions. Oh, my dear Madam Mina, says the professor, rubbing his hands together in glee. This is indeed a change. Have we got our old Madam Mina back? Oh, what can I do for you? I want you to hypnotize me, you tell him. Do it before the dawn. So I feel that I can speak and speak freely. Be quick, for time is short. Without a word, he motions for you to sit up in the bed, looking fixedly at you. He starts to make passes in front of your face from over the top of your your head downward. With each hand in turn, you gaze at him fixedly for a few minutes. But gradually, your eyelids grow heavy and you close your eyes. Take yet another ESP test. Remarkably, we roll yet another nine. A full success for Mina. I'm so glad we got that. ESP increase. Mm-hmm. And the Wimina right now. That too. You hear Van Helsing's voice coming to you as if from far away. Uh, one moment as I navigate to the page. Where are you? You open your eyes, but it's all darkness. I don't know. You reply. You can feel a gentle rocking motion. It's all strange to me. What do you see? Comes Van Helsing's voice again. I can see nothing. It's all dark. What do you hear? You focus on the sounds coming to you from beyond the darkness. I hear the lapping of water. It's gurgling by as the little waves leap. I can hear them on the outside. You're on a ship? Yeah! What else do you hear? Sound of men stamping overhead as they run about. 
There's a there's the creaking of a chain and the loud tinkle as the check of the capstan falls into the ratchet as well, and you tell the professor so. What are you doing? I am still. Oh, so still. It's like death. Add another point to your ESP score and turn to 663. She is Hell yeah. so close to not being able to fail ESP checks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Blinking yourself I mean, away. Every oh. increase is like every increase is less powerful than the increase before it because there's only one way to roll a 12. It's true. And yet, we'll see. Blinking yourself awake, you find yourself back in your room at the asylum. First thing you see is the expression of the... Wait, is this right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, the first thing you see is the expression of intense concentration on the professor's face as the beads of sweat covering his forehead. It's growing lighter, and as Jonathan pulls up the blind, a rosy light diffuses through the room. Have I been talking in my sleep? You ask in a dreamy manner, stifling a yawn. Turn to page 718. Here I am at 718. There's not a moment to lose, says the professor urgently. For it may not yet be too late to thwart the enemy's plans. That ship, wherever it was, was weighing anchor whilst Miss Madame Mina spoke. There are many ships weighing anchor at our moment in the greater port of London. Which of them is that we seek? We can know now what was in the Count's mind when he fled the house in Piccadilly. He meant to escape. He saw that, with but one earthbox left and a pack of men following like dogs after a fox, this London was no place for him. And so, he's taken his last box of earth on board a ship. He thinks to escape, but we will follow him. The old fox is wily, but so too am I. But then why do we need to seek him further? Arthur asks. When he has already gone away from us. At this, the professor looks gravely at Arthur. Because he can live for centuries, whereas Madame Mina is but a mortal woman. Time is now to be dreaded since he put that mark upon her throat. Now, more than ever, must we hunt him down, even if we have to follow him to the jaws of hell itself. Character swap moment. So do we stay as Mina or move back to Jonathan, probably? Hmm. That, that was not like a, that was not me trying to put the thumb on the scale for Jonathan. That was... Probably back to Jonathan. It feels like like Mina as a, a a character here for us is is a method of investigation outside of the normal pattern of investigation. She's uh, the magical she's man in the chair. Information. Exactly. She's she's you know, foreseen the future and given us the available information, and now it's time to act upon it with swift knife and yes. much gun. Yep. I, that's how I see it, too. I feel like going for, like, an ABAB kind of angle for, like, as much as we can. Uh, so, 40, mm -hmm. 46. Jonathan Harker's journal. 4th of October. Ooh. Professor Van Helsing instructed me to stay with my dear Mina, while the rest of them set off for the Port of London. Also worth noting, we heal for uh, endurance. Mm. So we're and back we full. are Harker again. And we are missing five endurance, so we get back up to 23. Bing, bang, boom. Your wife has brightened up considerably in the certainty that the Count is out of the country and given her great comfort. And such comfort is a strength to her. For your own part, now that you're no longer face-to-face -face with the horror of the Count and bodies, it seems almost impossible to believe that the threat he once posed was real. Even for your own terrible experiences in Count Dracula seem like a long-forgotten dream. Deduct a point from your terror score. Whoop. 
But then your eyes fall upon the red scar that now blemishes your poor darling's white skin. Alas, how can you disbelieve when confronted with such evidence while the imprint of the holy wafer remains upon her forehead when there can be no disbelief? But nonetheless, the pain and fear are reduced. There's some guiding purpose manifest, though, which is in itself comforting. The following evening, when the others have returned to the asylum, a meeting of the vampire hunters is convened once again in Dr. Seward's private study. Turn to 96. Professor Van Helsing begins by recounting what he discovered when he visited the port of London, that the Count is even now on board the Serena Catherine and sailing for the Black Sea at the Bulgarian port of Varna. And so, my dear Madame Mina, it is that we have to rest for a time, for our enemy is on the sea with the fog at his command and on his uh, way to the mouth of the Danube. He explains. To sail, a ship takes time. And when we set off, we will travel by land, thereby making much quicker progress. Indeed, we'll reach his destination before him. That last box of earth that we seek is to be landed in Varna and given to an agent, one Ristix, who will be there to present his credentials, and so our merchant friend will have done his part. I ask again, Professor, says Arthur when Van Helsing's done speaking, weariness etched into his face. Is it really necessary that we pursue the Count now that he has departed English shores? Yes, it's necessary, the professor answers with growing passion. For Madame Mina's sake and for the sake of humanity, that monster's done much harm already. He's infected Madame Mina with his vampiric curse. If, even if he does no more direct injury, having lived out her allotted lifespan... Death, when it comes, will make her a vampire, just like the poor Miss Lucy. Oh, we can't allow that to come to pass. Only Dracula's death will free Madame Mina from this fate and redeem her immortal soul. But will not the Count have taken his rebuff wisely? Asks Quincy Morris. Since he has been driven from England, will he not avoid it, as a tiger does the village from which he has been hunted? Your man-eater as they call that tiger in India. Once it has tasted human blood, it cares for no other prey. We hunt a man-eater too, and he's not one to retire and stay far off. In his life, his living life, he travelled beyond the Turkish frontier and attacked his enemy on his own ground. He was beaten back, but returned again and again and again. Look at his persistence and endurance. Who knows how long he's conceived to the idea of coming to London? But having set his mind on it, having deliberately set himself down to prepare for the task, he studied new tongues, taught himself modern social etiquette, along with politics, law, finance, the sciences, the habits and customs of a new land and a new people who've come to be since his blood still pumped hot and red in his veins. What he's seen here in England will only have wet his appetite and deepened his desire. He's achieved all that he's achieved to this point from a ruined tomb in a forgotten land. Imagine what more he can do now, the better he understands what awaits him here, at the heart of the British Empire. He that can smile at death, who can flourish in the midst of disease and kill off whole peoples. But we have pledged to set the world free. Our toil must be in silence, our efforts all in secret, for this enlightened age... When men believe not what even they see, the doubting of wise men would be his greatest strength. Oh, it would be at once his sheath and armour, 
and his weapons to destroy us, his enemies, who are willing to imperil even our own souls for the safety of one we love, for the good of mankind, and for the honour and glory of God. Turn to page 130. (laughs) Arthur asks again, really? (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) After, uh, there's a skull here, we are not the skullman. After general Uh discussion, the six of you determine that your next course of action will not definitely be settled upon until you have all slept on the matter and spent some time considering the consequences of whatever actions may be taken. You agree to meet again tomorrow at breakfast, and after making your conclusions known to one another, only then shall you settle upon the appropriate path. Turn to 185. We see a bat, of which we are not. Mm -hmm. When the vampire hunters meet again, it is without Mina. She passes on her apologies, saying that she thought it might be better that the rest of you should be free to discuss your movements without being embarrassed by her presence, considering those discussions will inevitably have to include the matter of what should be done with her should she succumb to the vampire's curse. And so, with one member down, and discuss you discuss your plan of the campaign with the Van Helsing, with the Van Helsing, putting the facts before you. The the Sarina Catherine, rather, left the Thames yesterday morning. It'll take her about three weeks to reach Varna, but we can travel overland to the same place in just three days. Even allowing for two days less for the ship's voyage, owing to the way in which the Count can influence the weather, if we allow another whole day and night for any delays that may threaten to impede our journey, then we still have a safe margin of nearly two weeks. And so, in order to be safe, we must leave here on the 17th at the latest. That way, we shall reach Varna a day before the ship arrives, which shall give us time to make such preparations as be necessary. Of course... We shall go armed against all evil things, both physical and spiritual. I understand that the Count comes from a wolf country, says Quincy. And it may be that he shall get there before us. I propose that we add Winchesters to our armament. I believe, I have a kind of belief, rather, in a Winchester when there is any sort of trouble about. Ah, yeah, good, says Van Helsing. Winchesters it is. As the uh, meantime, we can do nothing here. I suspect Varna's unfamiliar to all of us, so let's go there sooner. It's as long to wait here as there. Tonight and tomorrow we can get ready, and then, if all be well, we'll set out on our journey. Add the Winchester rifle to your adventure sheet and turn to 227. 12th of October, London. Your part. That's a that's a fun little uh, fun little supernatural reference they did there. They named it after the boys. <laughs> what do you mean it's the inverse? <laughs> Your party of six vampire hunters leave Charing Cross on the morning of the twelfth of October, and arrives at Paris in this or in Paris at the same night. There you take the places that have been secured for you aboard the Orient Express. If the blood score is 8 or higher, turn to 306. If it's lower than 8, turn to 257. You can have a blood score lower than 8 right now. Mm-hmm. Are we at... Wait, what are we at? 9? We are at 10. 10. Okay. So we initially gained 4 in a single instance, then another 2. We lost 1 before gaining 6 and then losing another 1. Yeah. So well, if we missed any of those gains, I think we would be fine. Yeah. Well, if we were at 10 and we missed it, yeah, ah, uh, yeah. It's because it is 8 or higher. 
So either way, we're going mm. to eight or higher. So that's 306. Two days after leaving London, you are relaxing in your compartment alone aboard the Orient Express as the train passes through a snowstorm in the Australian Tyrol. When there comes a knock at the door, from the other side comes a muffled... Cabin service? Cabin service? You didn't order any cabin service. As you're rising to see who it is, the door is forced from the outside, and a young man bursts in, wearing an ill-fitting porter's uniform and wielding a large silver steak knife. Before you die, I want you to know who it is that kills you in the name of Lord Dracula. He snarls. Okay, who are you? You gasp in bewilderment. I am Johnny Alucard. He declares and throws himself at you. If you want to use the pen as mightier, cross, cross it off and go to 362. Otherwise, 332. This would be the second of three charges for Harker's uh, pen is mightier. What do you think? I feel like it could be fine at this point, but I also, in my head, I'm like, surely we have to be not far from the end. Mm, and yet I don't necessarily suspect the same. Perhaps we should uh, fight okay. this one. 332. You barely have any time to seize a weapon of your own before your would-be murderer and disciple of Dracula is on top of you. Your opponent has the initiative with a combat of eight and an endurance of eight. Mm -hmm. So... But also, the fight ends when his health is at four or lower. So he gets a six, eight, 14, 15. Uh, that is the exact same as what we got. Okay. So we, uh, would you like me to roll the- I rolled, the it's a breaker? five, it's a good one. <laughs> cool, cool. Okay, we both deflect off of one another his giant steel steak knife off of our Winchester that we're trying to pull. And he loses initiative, so it is now a... He, okay, he has a 12. I, it's impossible. Well... Oh, boy. What? Well, we would have had to roll 10 or higher. Uh, we did not, uh, so he is going to be doing two damage to us. Wait, what? How? Right, he rolled a 12? He has 12. He didn't roll oh, a 12. Oh, 12 total! Yes. That's... He got a 2 and a 2. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am over the moon to hear that. We got a 7 plus our 10 in the combat rating for a 17 combat rating. We do 2 damage to him. Alright, one more and the fight stops pretty- okay, well. Mm -hmm. And we have initiative now. Yeah, so this is a 12 again. Another 18. Wait. So that yeah, is, uh, we've reduced his endurance score to 4 points or fewer. Alright, which means that combat just ends here. We go to 362. Mm -hmm. 362. There's a commotion in the gangway outside your cabin and a shout of... Stop! Villain! Looking about him in agitation, Alucard suddenly breaks off from the battle and flees towards the rear of the train. A moment later, Arthur Holmwood and Quincy Morris appear at your door. Are you alright? Arthur, Arthur asks. Before you can reply, there's a sudden squeal of metal on metal as the train's wheels seize and the Orient Express comes to an abrupt stop, which sends the three of you tumbling to the floor. Someone, no doubt your would-be murderer, must have pulled the emergency brake. If you want to head after him, towards the rear of the train, turn to 411, otherwise 383. I think if we follow the, 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 the set-out uh, uh, precedent for us, that is that if we leave him alive and he runs away, our blood would increase. It seems like it. So, perhaps we should chase. 411. You're the first one to run to the back on your feet and make your way after Alucard at a run. Coming to the end of your carriage, you find a door to the outside world open and the blizzard blowing in. Stealing yourself against the cold, you head outside, followed by your fellow vampire hunters. 
To your right rises the icy face of the mountain pass. To your left on the other side of the track, a sheer cliff drops away to the snow-buried rocks below. Ahead of you, you can just make out a black shape heading back along the train into the whirling snow, and you set off after it. Suddenly, shots are fired, the echo of them ricocheting from the wall of the black rock and gray ice, and you hear the dread rumble of an imminent avalanche. Giving up on your pursuit of Alucard, you turn and race back towards the train, your boots crunching on the snow and the ballast lying between the tracks. Take an endurance test. If you pass the test, turn to 482. It's going to have to be a bad roll for us to fail an endurance test right now. I rolled awfully. You still succeed. What'd you get out of curiosity? Uh, a one, a one, a two, and a five. Yeah, the fact that that's good enough is hilarious. You make it back to the train and your companions pull you back on board just as the avalanche hits. The Orient Express rocks under the impact, but thankfully its wheels remain on tracks. It takes a day for the driver, the fireman, and the other staff to dig the train out. Eventually, you're on your way again, which is more than you can say for Johnny Alucard, who now lies buried under the snow on the thousand rocks, the rocks a thousand feet below. Turn to 257, which is notably where we would have gone if our blood was below eight. So we didn't really lose that much. Yeah, literally the only thing is we had an encounter with Johnny Alucard. It's me, Johnny Alucard. Yeah, not Dracula, see? My name's Alucard. You travel night and day, arriving in Varna at about five o'clock in the evening. Arthur goes to the consulate to see if any telegram has arrived for him, having arranged with Lloyd to be sent a daily wire, stating if the Sarna Catherine has been reported, while the rest of you make your way down to the Hotel Odysseus. In a drawer in a bedside table in your room, you find a well-thumbed English copy of the Holy Bible. If you want to take it, take it. Yes, it's... right? Mm-hmm. We've got a copy of the Holy Bible. Arthur eventually returns with four telegrams, but Dracula's ship has not been reported to Lloyd from anywhere. You're evidently in good time when, and will be ready and waiting for the Count when he arrives. Turn to 640. Ooh, interestingly, if we were anyone except for Jonathan Harker, we would be moving forward past this page. Yeah, it's something else. Interesting. Arthur has been busy in the short time your party's been in Bulgaria and has used his money and influence to secure... That's, I guess that's one way of thinking. I was like, why has there been no thing that takes Jonathan other places? But I guess him being Jonathan is him not being taken away from other places is his being taken a place, kind of. Yes. Yeah. That makes more sense. Arthur's been busy in the short time your party's been in Bulgaria and used his money to influence to secure papers guaranteeing you the right to board the Tsarna Catherine when it docks and open its dread cargo of Transylvania Earth. There and then, in the bowels of the ship, between you, you will cut off Dracula's head and drive a stake through his heart. Professor Van Helsing believes the Count's body will simply crumble to dust. You feel the end is close. Mmm. And the belief fills you with determination. Deduct one point from your terror score and turn to 703. We're back down to a terror score of five. Over a week of waiting and still no tidings of the Tsarna Catherine. But she ought to be here by now that she is still at sea, apparent, but where? The next day, there's no news, and Van Helsing makes it plain that he's anxious the Count is somehow escaping the trap you've laid for him. And then on the 28th of October, news at last. Telegram, Rufus Smith, London, to Lord Goldeming. Care, HBM, Vice Council, Varna. 28th of October. Serena Catherine reported entering Galatz at 1 o'clock today. The revelation that Count Dracula has evaded you is a shock to everyone. Van Helsing raises his fist to the sky as if to in remonstrance with Almighty himself. 
Arthur grows very pale and Quincy Morris tightens his belt, which you know means to action. It must have been while Mrs. Harker was just under hypnosis. The professor says it at last. Just as our own dear Mina can move her mind to where he is, the Count must have sent his spirit to read her thoughts, and in doing so, learned that we were already here waiting for him. Now he's making every effort to escape us. Gallus is more than 200 miles away in Romania. The next train to Gallus leaves at 6.30 tomorrow morning, so your party spends the rest of the day preparing for their journey. Arthur arranges the train tickets, papers are obtained so that he might uh, board the Zarna Catherine at Gallitz, and Quincy Morris visits the Vice Council to ensure that all will run smoothly with his counterpart in Romania. And so on, on the morning of the 29th of October, you board the train for Gallitz. Turn to 7.25. The train from Varna to Gallitz is nothing like the Orient Express. You're forced to make do with the compartments interspersed throughout the train and are unable to purloin any that are adjacent to one another. You're returning to your compartment from the dining car after supper when you see a curious hunchbacked fellow... Dressed in rough clothes and bald, but for a few straggly wisps of hair, exit the berth at the far end of the carriage and head in the direction of the luggage van. There's something about this surreptitious manner that arouses your suspicions. Find out where he's going, 798, or leave well enough alone and retire on 881. You got a vibe? Not at all. That means 798. Seems good. See where he's going? Let's do it. Where's this man and his few straggles of hair going? Taking care not to draw attention to yourself, you set off after the strange figure, the train rocking along the track as it crosses the Bulgarian-Romanian border. By the time you reach the luggage van, the hunchback seems to have disappeared, but your attention is drawn to a number of large cases and packing crates. To one has been tied a label upon which has been written in German, scientific equipment, while another bears the name Frankenstein. Can I help you, mein Herr? Comes a voice from behind you, making you start and start and setting your heart racing. It's the hunchback. Uh, no, no. You bluster. I was merely looking for the dining car, perhaps. Suggests the other. Yes, yes, the dining car. You reply. Uh, it is that way. He says, pointing back along the luggage van. Thank you. You say and start moving towards the exit. Good evening. Guten Nacht, mein Herr. The hunchback replies. You hurry back to the compartment in a state of high agitation. You don't leave it again until the morning, but tick off the code word Orvos and turn to 881. Orvos. I love it. You arrive at Gallitz as the sun's rising in the morning of the 30th of October, on fire with anxiety and eagerness. By 9 o'clock, your party's boarding the Zarna Catherine, which lies at the anchor of the River Harbor. In order to interview its captain, a Scotsman named Donaldson. He willingly shares the details of his voyage. I've never had a so favorable a run in my life, he begins. But, man, but it made us a field, for we thought that we should have to pay for it for some rare piece of ill luck, snow right, to run from London to the Black Sea with the wind behind you, and as though the devil himself were blowing on your sail, and all that time we could see no such thing. A fog fell on us and traveled with us till we came all the way here to the Dardanelles. When we got past the Bosphorus, the other men started to grumble. Some of them, the Romanians, asked uh, come a chem rather, and asked me to heave overboard the big box that had been left on board by a queer-looking old man that we'd just left in London. I'd seen them looking at the fellow and put out their two fingers when they saw him to guard against the evil eye. Man, but the superstitions of us are perfectly ridiculous. I sent about their business really quick. 
We had a fair way in the deep water and all that time. Even though the unnatural fog descended again, we found Ander two days ago, rather, when the sun morning came out through the mist. We found ourselves just on the river opposite Galatz. An hour before sunup, a man came aboard with an order, written to him from England, to retrieve a box marked for one Count Dracula. He had his papers, and I was glad to be rid of the damn thing, for I was beginning to feel uneasy about it myself. What was the name of the man who took it? Asked Van Helsing. At that, Captain Donaldson steps down into his cabin and produces a receipt signed Emmanuel Hildesheim. 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 It's <laughs> bearing the address of Bergenstrauss 16. You find Hildesheim's in his office at number 16, Bergenstrauss. He's reluctant to share any information with you to begin with, but as soon as Arthur opens his wallet after a little bargaining, he finally tells you what he knows. He'd received a letter from Mr. DeVille of London telling him to receive, if possible, before sunrise, so as to avoid customs, a box which would arrive at Gallitz on board Zarna Catherine. This he was to pass to the hands of one Petrov Skinsky, an individual who dealt with the Slovaks who traded down to the river of the port. He was paid for his work by, in an, by an English banknote, which had been duly cashed for gold at the Danube International Bank when Skinsky had come to him. He took him to the ship and passed the box into the charge of the other man. You have no choice other than to set about searching for the Skinsky, but it's dusk before you find yourselves at the door to the lodgings. One of his neighbors reveals that he left two days ago, but no one knows where he was traveling to. It seems as if you're at a standstill again. But whilst you're discussing what you should do next, a boy comes running, gasping for breath, telling you that Skinsky's been found inside the graveyard of St. Peter's Church. And so it is, as dusk falls and the moon rises, provided you, with you have, provided you have enough light to see, your party enters the churchyard in search of answers. There! Shouts Arthur, pointing to a nearby tomb. You can see the amorphous black shadow of something lying atop a cold stone. Just as you make a move towards the tomb and examine it further, a mournful howl cuts through the deepening darkness and makes everyone start. Oh, sounds like a wolf! Quincy says, his hand automatically going to the pistol of holstered at his waist. Then we must be quick about our business and tarry no longer than is necessary, says Van Helsing. I don't like the idea of being caught unawares by a wolf, draws the Texan. I'd rather be the hunter than the hunted. Anyone else want to come with me? As your party begins to split the, into two distinct groups, who do you want to follow further into the graveyard? Follow Van Helsing to examine the body in the tomb or Quincy Morris hunting for wolves? <laughs> Quincy's the Texan. Whoops. Yeah, this is, I mean, uh, they didn't make it's it clear at any point. Uh, I I suspect that going with Van Helsing to examine the body in two might be uh, the more direct route. Yes. But I like direct is the right other now. one perhaps advantageous? Let's do the direct one. At this far in, I like direct. But, you know. As you approach the tomb, it quickly becomes apparent that it's the corpse of the man you've been searching for. But what has happened to him? But what can have happened to him? The professor examines the body as best he can at the light of the moon. His throat's been torn out. He says gravely. Looks like uh, the work of some wild beast. At the moment, the howling starts up again, only this time it sounds like a whole pack of wolves. There's nothing more we can learn from Herr Skinsky. Van Helsing says, his eyes searching it. The encroaching gloom for Quincy Morris. If you want to go looking for Quincy yourself, 982. If you prefer to champion the idea of leaving the graveyard as quickly as possible, 942. 
I don't know if we should sacrifice this guy. He seems like a good potential damage dealer. I'm happy to go to 982 for sure. Oops. Quincy sets off towards the back wall of the graveyard, beyond which lies a dark stand of trees, certain that this is the direction from which the sound of the wolves came. Arthur also joins your small hunting party as you hurry to keep up with the Texan. Do you remember, or when we had that pack after us in the Debolsk? Quincy says, his Winchester already in hand. Oh, what I wouldn't have given for a repeat of peace then. Before Arthur can answer, another mournful howl cuts through the night, bringing everyone to an abrupt halt. Take an ESP test. <gasps> Again? We roll exactly our increased number. We roll eight with our new ESP of eight. That succeeds. We take it. You suddenly receive a flash of insight and a glimpse of something in your mind's eye. Tall and thickly furred, its claw-like hands and distended jaws red with gore. In the next instant, the horrible vision is gone. At a point to your terror score. Wait! You hiss, holding up your hand. Something isn't right. We're hunting wolves in the Romanian graveyard while trying to track down a goddamn vampire. Quin uh, Quincy Morris counters. Nothing about this entire endeavor is right. If you want to insist that your hunting party returns to the professor and that you all leave this place as quickly as you can, turn to 942. If you prefer to say no more, 960. So I suspect uh, that as someone touched by darkness, we are having a similar experience to Mina, which is to say, I think we just saw through the vampire's eyes and he is currently as one of these wolves in the upcoming pack. I think that is indeed probably the case. Mm. But also, I think we're strong. I think we can take him. <laughs> but, but I also don't know that that's what, I feel like if we don't say something, then our success with our ESP is not even doing anything for us, is my guess. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, like, giving the additional information that we should absolutely leave yeah. is probably what we'd earned there. All right. 942. We should be away from this place. You say? This is not England, and who knows what horrors might await in the unwary uh, Romanian graveyard at night. Everyone else reluctantly agrees, and so your party hastily makes its way, Quincy and the professor included, back through the town to the hotel where you are to spend the night. Turn to 678. If you want to continue the story as Mina Harker, go to 45, otherwise go to 25. What do you think? I think I like changing at the moment. Um, I, I hope it gives Mina the ability to advance our storyline, but if nothing else, Mina has a lot of resources we can use, like three charges and pen is mightier. That's true, 45 it is. When you're safely in, ensconced in inside your hotel, you go back over the notes that you've taken, and with the aid of the, the map of the region, try and work out where the vial count could be. Is this the right page? Yep. Yes, okay. And slowly you come to what seems to be the only possible conclusion, sending your husband to reconvene... The vampire hunters after supper in a private dining room at the hotel. You join the meeting armed with your notes as well as the map. Restore up to four endurance points. I don't think she's missing any. Mm, none at all. I've been carrying out my own investigation into the matter of how the Count intends to return to Castle Dracula. You explain. And I believe I've made a discovery. My surmise is this. That in London, the Count decided to get back to his castle by water as the most safe and secret way. He was brought from the castle by S Shani 
Shani interlopers. And they probably delivered their cargo to the Slovaks who took the boxes of earth to Varna in order to be shipped to London. Thus, the Count knew who'd arrange this service again for the return journey. When the box was on land, before sunrise or sunset, the vampire came out of his makeshift coffin and met with Skinsky, instructing him to arrange carriage for the box of Priver. When this was done, he covered his tracks. He paused to spread out the map on the table so everyone can see it clearly. I've examined this chart to find that the river most suitable for the Slovaks to have ascended is either the Pruth or Sareth. Of these two, the Pruth is the more easily navigated, but the Sareth is, at Fundu, joined by the Bistritza, which runs up and around the Borgo Pass. It makes a loop around Castle Dracula and so is the closest he can get to his home by water. Oh shoot, I lost track. Professor Van Helsing clasps your hand in his, saying... Our dear Madame Mina is once more our teacher. Her eyes have seen what the rest of us were blind to. But now, we're on his trail once again. We may yet succeed in our mission. Probably not, though, but we may! <laughs> our enemy has a start on us. So here and now, we must plan what we're going to do. And do it tonight. I shall book passage on a boat travelling upstream and follow him, says Arthur. And I shall hire horses. To follow on the bank in case he puts ashore. Says Quincy. Good. Says the professor. But neither of you must go alone. There must be force to overwhelm force, if needs be. For there may be the Count's allies to overcome. The Shani are strong and rough. And he carries rude arms. I think we'd better go with Quincy. Says Dr. Seward. We have been accustomed to hunt together. And we two, well-armed, will be a match for whatever may come along. The professor addresses your husband then. Friend Jonathan, should you go... <clears throat> Excuse me? Friend Jonathan, should you go up with Lord Godalming up the river, and whilst John and Quincy guard the bank where perchance our enemy might have landed, I will take Matt Mina right into the heart of the enemy's country. But hearing this, your dear husband breaks his silence and cries out in distress. Do you mean to say, Professor Van Helsing, that you would bring Mina, tainted as she is with the devil's illness, right into the jaws of this death trap? Not for the world! Not for heaven or hell! He becomes almost speechless for a minute before finding the wherewithal to continue. Do you know what the place is? Have you seen the awful den of hellish infamy and the very moonlight alive with grisly shapes and every speck of dust that whirls in the wind a devouring monster in embryo? Have you felt the vampire's lips upon your throat? Here he turns to you, and his eyes alight on your forehead. He throws up his arms with a cry of, Oh, God! What have we done to have this terror upon us? Oh, my friend, it is because I would save Madame Mina from that awful price that I would go. Explains the professor, the tone of his voice calming you all. God forbid that I should take her into that place, but there is much to be done, and many places to be sanctified, so that his nest of vipers can be obliterated. I'll take Madame Mina by carriage, following the route you yourself took, Jonathan, when you travelled from Bistritz over the Borgo Pass, and that way we will find our way to Castle Dracula. There, Madame Mina's hypnotic power will surely help, for we shall find our way all dark and unknown. Otherwise, after the first sunrise, when we are near that fateful place. 
Less than two hours after your visit to the graveyard of St. Peter's, you and Professor Van Helsing board the last train to Veresti, where you acquire the carriage to drive to Borgo Pass. Takes all your courage to say goodbye to your darling husband, for it's a very real possibility you may never see him again. Add a point to your terror score. You have plenty of money with you, and you intend to buy a carriage and horses and drive yourselves. The professor knows a smattering of words in a great many languages, so you should get on all right. And you're armed. Quincy Morris has furnished you with a large bore revolver, while Arthur has lent you a lady's untipped fencing saber. Add the revolver and the saber to your adventure sheet. You do not delay in settling in your compartment in the last carriage on the train, hoping to get the, at least some rest before arriving in Veresti. While the professor goes to the lounge car to enjoy a drink and smoke before retiring, however, you've been not been traveling for even an hour and you hear a cry and come with a start, fearing the worst. Do you want to leave your compartment and investigate on 704, or it'd be wiser to remain where you are on 67? Mm. I have no lean. What do you think? I, this is it's a strange one. What would be the cry right now? It'd be someone else in the car. Mm. One of the other. Huh. The fact that we're given the option to remain where we are is interesting to me for sure. Oh boy. 704. I think we maybe give it a go. I do have fears that it puts us in like raises blood or something, but let's do it. Ay, ay, ay. Turning right out of your berth, the end of the carriage, you find a huddle of concentrated passengers peering at something on the floor of the companionway that connects the traveler compartments. As you join the muttering, shuffling quartet, they make room for you, and you see what that one of the stewards is lying on the floor. You're appalled to see the look of horror frozen in his glazed eyes and waxy pallor of his skin. The poor wretch is quite clearly dead. Let me through, comes the voice of the Dutchman, and the huddle moves again as he crouches down to inspect the body. Who found the victim? He asks it at last. Says a no short, nervous-looking man, putting up his hand. There's something unpleasantly, uh, something unpleasantly of the rat about him. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, might I ask you to gather in the lounge? Directs the professor, and your fellow passengers seem compelled to obey. Before you and Van Helsing join them, the old man shares what he discovered with you. There are two puncture wounds on the poor victim's neck. He explains. And I believe he died from extreme exsanguination. Could there be another vampire on the board of the train with you? You're certain it's not the Count, but you're convinced your psychic bond would have alerted you to his presence. But then that might mean there's another bloodsucker on board. In the lounge car, Professor Van Helsing opens proceedings. There's six of you gathered together. The ratty man who found the body, a handsome middle-aged man with a widow's peak, his hair graying at the temples... And a man who's wearing a curious talisman set with a bloodstone. A beautiful blonde-haired blonde young woman with skin as smooth and white as ivory and a bright rose, red rosebud lips. And a wolfish-looking older man wearing a velvet smoking jacket who has strangely pointed ears. Ladies and gentlemen, the professor begins. I have gathered you here because this very night, aboard this train, a murder has been committed. We're traveling in the last carriage on the train. I was here in the lounge with the barman when the murder was committed. No one passed this way, and there's no sign of anyone having exited the carriage by any other means. So I can only conclude the killer was someone traveling in this carriage. The assembled passengers exchange glances and gasps of horror, all arguing their innocence. What? How do you propose to deduce which one of them's the murderer? You ask the professor. We must interview them, one at a time 
and by cross-referencing their answers to our questions, the guilty party's lies will find them out. But, Madam Mina, who should we interview first? I'll leave that up to you. Oh my. Who do you want to interview first? The ratty little man, the handsome middle-aged man, the beautiful young woman, or the wolfish-looking older man? They all seem so vampiric. Mm-hmm. So we've got one who uh, is is ratty with one who's wolfy. Uh, both of these we know creatures that the vampire can transform into with the beautiful young woman with skin of ivory and blood-red lips and the handsome middle-aged man uh, who has widow's peaks. Does he have another thing that's... Uh, oh, uh, yes, he's also uh, wearing a curious talisman set with a bloodstone. Yeah. Hmm. So I think, like, if the first person to find the body was the ratty little man, perhaps we should start there. Great. 727, the ratty little man. The man is German. goes by the name of Hernock. He claims he's a manservant of Graf Orlock of Wisburg and accompanying the employer to an ancestral home in Transylvania. Where's your master? Van Helsing demands. My master's sleeping and can't be disturbed. He replies. Taking you to one side, the professor says. What do you think we should do? Should we disturb the Graf? How will you reply? Uh, wake Graf Orlock or interview one of the other people or just say, let's just, let's draw the matter to the end. Mm. I think we've seen all we need to see. <laughs> let's kick them all off the, <laughs> the carriage. Just vote them all out. And then there can't be an imposter amogus. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should, um, should we just wake him while we're while we're on this path? Or just monster is sleeping and cannot be disturbed. The thing is, like someone who's sleeping and can't be disturbed. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the handsome Maybe. middle-aged man. Let's do it. Seven forty-two. The handsome middle-aged man calls himself Count Yorga and he claims to be a Bulgarian mystic who is traveling to Veresti at the behest of a wealthy client. When Van Helsing asks him why his wealthy client has summoned him, he replies it is to conduct a seance so that she might speak again with her dead husband. I could perform a seance now if you'd like. Yorga offers. If I could summon the dead man's spirit, maybe he could tell us uh, who the murderer is in himself. What do you think, Madam Mina? Says Van Helsing. We have witnessed many strange things ourselves in Reacher's months. Who is to say this Count Yorga is not capable of contacting the dead? Should we ask him to use his powers to aid us in the investigation? I'll leave the decision in your hands. Uh, ask him to do a seance or interview somebody else. I mean, sure, right? I, yeah, why not interview the corpse itself? If that, yeah, if it's allowed. With the professor's help, Count Yorga arranges six chairs around one of the lounging tables and invites you, the, those present, to sit, forming a circle. Van Helsing's on your right, and the beautiful blonde-haired young woman maneuvers herself so that she's on your left. Count Yorga invites you all to join hands and gives you a sharp intake of breath when you feel how cold the Countess's hand is. The lights in the lounge are dimmed, and all the Bulgarian mystic begins to chant under his breath in a language you do not understand. It could just be the reflection of the lamps in the facets of the bloodstone, but his medallion seems possessed of a ruddy glow. Roll a die and turn to the appropriate number. Why don't you roll that for us? I got a four. That'll nine take one us one to one. nine eleven. The gas lamps dim still further and Count Yorga continues his chanting. 
but you become aware of another sound, as if liquid spilled drink is dribbling off the edge of the table. Following the sound to its source, you're horrified to see that the wolfish-looking man now appears to be sitting under a dripping cascade of blood pouring from the roof of the carriage. You're so appalled by this gory vision, you break hands with your companions, and the lights of the lounge uh, abruptly come back on to full brightness. Add one point to your terror score and turn to 987. You do not believe you'll learn anything more by continuing the quest to question your companions, and it's time to reveal the identity of the killer. Huh? I'm sure that if we inspect the compartment of the killer, we'll find conclusive proof that'll point the finger of accusation in their direction. Says the professor. So who do you think killed the steward? Uh, knocked the little ra ratty little man, Count Yorga, the handsome middle-aged man, Carmilla, Countess, the beautiful young woman, Dr. Callistrus, the wolfish-looking older man. Uh, I mean, like, frankly, I think for all of these people, we have one clue, and for Carmilla, we have two, which is uh, not only her appearance, but also the fact that we held her hand, and it was cold. Yeah, I mean, I'm down to go to 652, because they kind of cut us short of having information, really, anyways. So, I'm good. I'm good to go with that. Two Datham points. Sounds good. Six. I believe the murderer to be you, Countess Carmilla. You say, guessing and pointing at the beautiful aristocrat. <laughs> you can't mean that, surely. She says, rising from her seat and approaching you, trapping your gaze with her sparkling sapphire eyes. You can't seriously believe that I'm the killer. Take an ESP test. If you pass the test, turn to 608. If you fail the test, 623. We have a score of what? Nine? Uh, four out... ESP? Uh, as Mina, ten. Yes. She has gained two. All right. I got an I got an eight, but also I'm sure if you rolled... Seven. Yeah. All right. That's a 608. No! Carmilla cries, her spell over you broken, and then in the next instant she starts to change. Her flowing blonde hair seems to grow to cover her skin, only now it's not no longer hair but fur. She's no longer a beautiful woman, but something more akin to a cat. Hissing and spitting, the transformed countess bears her sharp teeth and pounces. If you want to use pen is mightier, cross one off and go to 539. So, we've used none. I think it's time. It's She's not used one, right? She has not. 539. Let's do it. Let's use the pen as mightier. Professor Van Helsing is suddenly there by your side, silver blade in hand, and with one clean thrust, he plunges it into the transformed Countess's heart. She gives a yowl of frustration and pain and slides from the blade into the carpeted floor. Before your very eyes, Carmilla's cat body dissolves into a cloud of golden motes of dust, which twinkle once before fading into nothingness. So turn to 509. We did it. We correctly found the person. I do wonder if it was like a, you would get... You know, like, just say, here you go. Yes, you did get it right. On a couple of them? Probably not. I suspect I'm just say not, no. just because of what's about to follow. Yeah. You've done it. You've exposed the murder of the young steward. Add one use to pen his mightier to your adventure sheet. Great. <laughs> Everyone returns to their own compartments, and, y and you and the professor spend the rest of the train journey in your own company, grabbing a little rest while you can. Turn to 107. Mina Harker's journal. 31st of October. Arrived in Veresti at noon. The professor tells me this morning at dawn that all he could hardly hypnotize me at all, and that all I could say was dark and quiet. 
I will say it is now Halloween, which feels where the climax, it feels like the climax should be on Halloween. One would imagine. One would hope. Later that afternoon, you prepare for the off Professor Van Helsing, having sequestered a carriage and horses. Your guardian has also purchased meat and drink for the journey ahead, as well as fur coats and wraps and all the sorts of warm things. You still have something more than 70 miles before you. The country is lovely and most interesting. If only you were visiting under different conditions, how delightful it would be to see all the see it all while slow, snow flurries come and go as if forecasting worse weather to come. You travel westwards, the country growing even wilder as you climb higher and higher towards the ragged, broken-toothed peaks of the Carpathian Mountains. It's cold now, so cold that the heavy sky is full of snow, which, when it falls, will settle for all winter as the ground is hardening to receive it, and you sleep for much of the time. You reach the Borgo Pass just after sunrise on the third day since leaving Varesti, stirring. You point to a particular road. This is the way. How do you know? The professor challenges you. Of course I know it. You answer. Did not my husband travel the same road and ride of it in his record in this time in this terrible country? The byroad's very different from the coach road of the Bukovnia to Bistritz, which is wide and firm underfoot and is clearly little used. Taking this route, you travel for many more hours, moving to a more and more wild and desert land, a place of great frowning precipice and tumbling waterfalls until finally, as twilight settling over the mountain peaks, As you're climbing a steeply rising hill, you catch sight of the summit upon which stands a foreboding ramparts of an ancient castle. The place appears deserted, as quiet as the grave. You've clearly beaten everyone else here, including the Count, so deduct one blood point. Okay. What are we at now? That takes us under ten. That's kind of nice. Before night falls, the professor feeds the horses while you make a fire 100 yards from the great gates of the castle. He proceeds to have something to eat as well, but you have no appetite for food. Van Helsing draws a great circle around you and the fire in the settling snow and take a holy wafer. He crumbles it up into fine powder and sprinkles it over the ring he just made. Then there's nothing for the two of you to do but to wait. Darkness descends, the heavy snow clouds blotting out the light of the moon. Hours pass, during which the horses become unsettled and tear at their tethers and the fires begin to die. Peering out into the night, it seems that the snow flurries and wreaths of mist take on the shape of three women clad in trailing grave garments, their horses whinny and cower in terror, and Van Helsing takes up a burning brand from the fire coaxing into life as if he intends to defend himself with it. Now the women before you are of solid flesh, and you know they are the same three women sought to lay their lips on Jonathan's throat. You feel as if you recognize their swaying forms yourself, their bright hard eyes, pronounced white teeth, and their ruddy voluptuous lips, all three of them smiling at you, and the musical laughter of their voices comes to you through the snow-muffled silence of the night. They point at you and say in sweet, tinkling tones that possesses the intolerable sweetness of water glasses. Come, sister. Come to us. Come. Take an ESP test. You've already failed, sucker. Book. You didn't know. You asked us to make an ESP test? We mean a honker. We succeed. Let's turn to 58. Yeah, I got a six as well. 58. Come to our sister. Come. The weird women call again, but you resist their siren lure. God be thanked, you're not like them. Not yet. Van Helsing advances towards them, the piece of burning firewood held out before him in one hand, and another piece of holy wafer in another. They draw back into the darkness, then laughing their low, horrid laugh, you busy yourself feeding the fire, knowing that you are safe as long as you remain inside the circle. 
Presently, the horses begin to scream. The unnatural women indulge their savage passions by killing the animals. Their whinnying moans cease at last. And you know the poor beasts will never feel terror again. But you do. At one terror point. <laughs> you remain beside the fire until the red glow of the dawn begins to permeate the snowy gloom. Van Helsing leaves the circle to check on the horses. But when he returns, not many minutes later, he merely tells you what you already know. The horses are dead. All of them slaughtered by those monsters. His bushy eyebrows beetle in rage and frustration and anger clouds his expression. I'll make my way to the castle when the sun's up and put an end to him where they lie. He says. Madam Mina, wait here until I return, and whatever you do, don't step outside the circle. Do you listen to what the professor says or insist that you go with him in search of the weird sisters? I mean... I'm terrified that if we don't go with him, uh, we will meet him again, but he will have uh, two new red marks adorning his neck. Sure. 872. Let me come with you, Professor. You press him. Dracula's concubines pose no threat to me, but they could yet cause you harm. Don't go into that benighted place alone. Let me accompany you, and we shall see what we can do together. There's something about the purring, persuasive tone of your voice that the old man can't resist, so he relents. Then Helsing clears a path for you through the holy circle, and having armed yourself, you follow the professor as he makes his way up the hill through the snow towards the castle. Already knowing the route by dint of having read the dreadful diary Jonathan kept during his stay here, you find your way to the old chapel within the bowels of the castle and descend to the catacombs beneath. The air here is oppressive, as if thick by sulfurous fumes. We know we have at least three graves to find. The professor says in a low voice. Three graves are inhabited. He swallows hard, his mouth suddenly dry. The moor of the wolf would be better to rest in than the grave of the vampire. He mutters. Regardless, you begin your search. With one shadowy alcove, you find three ancient coffins of stone lids missing. Inside each lies one of the vampire women, sleeping the sleep of undeath. They appear to be full of life and voluptuous beauty. You cannot help but think of poor Lucy and how Van Helsing said that he appeared after she she appeared after she had been turned by the Count. The professor joins you within the alcove and steps up to the first coffin, a blacksmith's hammer and a wooden stake clutched in his hand. Such beauty, he mutters, his voice barely audible. But rather than plunge the stake into the vampire's heart, he stares at the coffin occupant as if transfixed by the flowing blonde locks cascading over the swell of her bosom. She appears no older than you, but in truth she could have been bored centuries ago. I wonder how many men who set forth to do a task such as mine in times past found their heart failed them at the last, and then their nerve. Still, he does not move. Then the eyes of the fair woman opens as she fixes the professor with an ophidian stare. You re feel relief wash over you as you hear him say, I must kill the vampire. But in the next moment, that relief turns to horror as Van Helsing turns towards you, raising the hammer and the stake as if he intends to bludgeon you with one and stab you with the other. He says again, his voice barely more than a murmur. Kill the vampire. What are you going to do? Will you prepare to defend yourself against the professor? Use pen as mitre if you can. Hypnotize Van Helsing. Attack the vampire woman who has the professor in her power. 
Okay, so if we didn't have the ability to use a pen as mighty a special ability here, which we do, uh, then I might advocate instead for trying to hypnotize Van Helsing ourselves because we've shown that we're resistant to hypnotism. Uh, and in fact, he said himself that he's not been able to put us down recently. And when we told him that we were coming along, yeah. he seemed surprisingly convinced quickly. Yeah. However, yeah. we also have the ability to use Pen as Mightier. I'm happy with either of those two. Yeah, I feel like we should try and use the Pen as Mightier. Just because even though we do have Let's the do ability it. to convince, I feel as though maybe there's a chance that it like fizzles, you know? Like, you no can't use that. that because that spell is already active. A more powerful version of the spell is already active. You can't. You unsheath your saber, dodging a clumsy swipe with the hammer from the professor. Make your move. Cross off a use of the pen is mightier ability and turn to 728. You bring the pommel of your sword down hard on the professor's head and he crumples to his knees. But it seems to have had the desired effect. As he gets woozy to his feet again, he looks at you with an unfocused eye and says, What was I in the middle of doing? Killing vampires? You say as you point at the blonde-haired vampire leaning prone in the coffin. Turn to 697. Without any further delay, Professor Van Helsing places the tip of his white-thorn stake over the fair maiden's breast and raising the hammer high above his head, sets about his butcher's work. A horrid screeching rises from Dracula's undead concubines. Van Helsing drives the stake home, blood as thick as black tar, spurting from the wound, but as one vampire dies, so her weird sisters awake, and they explode out of the coffins, coming for you both. But the banshee cries, filling the echoes of the spoker with their screams. If you want to use pen as miter, and you still can, 643, otherwise 673. I think we go all the way with this one and use another pen as miter. I think so, too. I feel like this is some of the, probably some of the biggest moments here. As a dark-haired vampire flies at you, you raise your blade to protect yourself, and in her rage, she unwittingly throws herself onto its tip, piercing the heart. Cross off one use and turn to 624. There remains one thing left to do, and then your grisly work here is done. Taking up a heavy-bladed knife, the professor removes the head of each of the vampires in turn, intoning the words, Agnes Dei, Ketolus Peccata Mundi, Dona Is Requiem. As he does so. When he's finished, the two of you set about searching the catacombs again. In the secluded crypt, you find one great tomb. More lordly than all the rest, but nobly proportioned. Carved into the black granite, you see but one word. Dracula. This is the undead home of the King Vampire! Van Helsing exclaims. Heaving aside the great stone lid of the sarcophagus and finding it empty, you raise a prayer of thanks to the Lord. Before you leave the crypt, the professor lays some of the sacrament in the tomb and sprinkles it with holy water declaring and so our enemy is banished from his own tomb undead forever shaken by your ordeal but feeling the first stirrings of hope in your breast when you consider what the two of you have accomplished here you leave the haunted castle return to your camp to watch the road and see who shall re reach the ruin first your fellow vampire hunters of the vampire king himself D deduct two blood points and reduce terror by up to two and go to 194 Hell yeah. We're down on seven blood and six terror. Right. Seems like me this uh huh? it's late in the eve afternoon when you sense that the others are drawing near the castle, although whether it is your husband or the monster or the count that you sense you do not know. You and the professor set off towards the east, intending to intercept the count before he can reach his decaying stronghold. You do not travel fast, for the way takes you steeply downhill. 
It's hard going, trudging through the snow, and having gone about what you judge to be a mile, you sit down to rest on a large rock. Looking back, you see the clear outline of Dracula's castle cut in the sky in all its grandeur, perched a thousand feet up on the summit of a sheer precipice, and with seemingly a great gap between it and the adjacent mountains, there's something wild and uncanny about the place. Far off, you can hear the distant howling of wolves, even though the sound is muffled by the deadening snowfall, it still unnerves you deeply. Professor Van Helsing is busy searching for some strategic point, where you'll be less exposed in case the wolves track you through the snow. You continue to watch the road which gives you which you can trace through the drifting snow. Until the professor gives a whistle, getting up again, you join him in what looks to appear to be a natural hollow in a rock with an entrance-like doorway between two boulders. See? He says, taking you by the hand and drawing you inside. Here we can wait out the cold and the wind, and if the wolves do come, we can meet him one by one. Taking his field glasses from their case from a shelter of the rocks, he begins to search the horizon. If your blood score is higher than 12, turn to 158. If it's lower than 12, turn to 53. It's much lower than 12. It's much. Let's do the 53. They don't know we're here. Look, Madamina, look! The professor suddenly shouts. From your vantage points, it's possible to see a great distance, and far off beyond the white waste of snow, you can see the river lying like a black ribbon in kinks and curls as it winds its way around the mountains. However, straight in front of you and not too far off, you can make out a group of mounted men hurrying along through the snowstorm. In their midst is a cart, a long wagon that sweeps from side to side as it races across a rough road towards the castle. From the men's clothes, you can tell that they are wanderers, no doubt. From this... How'd you do this one? <laughs> I said Shawnee. Shawnee Jonathan encountered during his first visit to Transylvania. On the cart is a great square chest, and your heart leaps when you set your eyes upon it. For you feel that the end is near. They're coming quickly, says the professor, watching the progress of the wagon and its attendants like you. They're flogging the horses and galloping as hard as they can. Beyond the swirling wall of snow, you can make out the sinister, shadowy presence of the Count's decaying stronghold silhouetted by the red orb of the sun. They're racing for the sunset. We may be too late, he says hollowly. Hearing a sudden cry, you catch sight of two horsemen following hard on the on their heels, coming up from the south. It's Quincy, Morris, and Dr. Seward. And then from the north, you see two more riders galloping at breakneck speed along the path, and you know that once, at once it's your beloved Jonathan and the noble Arthur. Oh, they're all converging! The professor shouts in glee, reloading his rifle while you make sure you have your revolver in hand. But it's not only the fearless vampire killers who are converging uh, on the spot before Castle Dracula, for you see here... And there, dots moving moving singly and twos and threes in larger numbers as the wolves gather for the kill. The wind comes to fierce bursts, furiously driving the snow before it and sweeping around you in circling eddies. You can clearly distinguish the individuals of each party now. The pursued and the pursuers, the former redoubling their efforts as the sun drops lower and lower over the mountaintops. Closer they, closer they come. All at once, two voices call out. Hold! One is Jonathan, raised in passion. The other is Mr. Morris, resolute in tone of quiet command. They rein in their horses, and in that instant, Arthur and Jonathan draw alongside the wagon on one side, as Dr. Seward and Quincy join it on the other. The leader waves back, and the fierce voice commands the Shawnee to keep going. But the four men raise their guns and order them to stop. If you want to cons continue the story as Mina, go to, yeah, basically we can pick a Oh, Mina, or if you'd rather continue as either Jonathan or Dr. Seward 14. Mm -hmm. Huh. Weird. 
I think it might be time to go back to Jonathan. Yeah, I guess we go to as... 14. Yeah, because Mina's combat score is 7. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to 14 with the thought that that's us picking Jonathan. Mm-hmm. The wagon slews to a halt in the snow, and another command from their hetman. They instantly surround the cart, jostling one another in their eagerness to carry out his orders. Do you want to try and leap out of the cart and get to the box of earth secured there? Or will you be prepared to fight them? Hmm. For whatever it's worth, uh, Mr. Jonathan Harker still has two charges remaining on Penn's Mightia. Meaning a fight wouldn't be that hard? Or like we could just... Or meaning... Meaning that the attempt to do something absurd, like leap onto the cart, might not yeah. be as dangerous. Let's do it. Let's do it. 366. Jumping down from your horse, you run at oh, the shiny, hoping to take them by surprise and in the confusion barge past them before scrambling up onto the cart. Take an agility test. If you pass, 421. Right. Nine is the number we don't want to hit. Above? I got a two. That's a six. We're good either way. 421. Outmaneuvering the Shani, you pull yourself up onto the cart. As your companions engage in battle, but before you is the last of the great wooden boxes containing the cursed earth of Dracula's homeland and the Vipiric Count cocooned within it. Oh. Pulling free the ropes, holding it in place, and putting your shoulder behind it, you give the crate a shove, hoping to send it toppling to the ground. Take an endurance check. Uh. Almost uh, impossible to fail. And we didn't. Yeah. And then turn to 461. The box slides off the back of the cart and crashes onto the ground, but much to your annoyance, while one corner splinters disgorging some of the moldering black soil onto the snow, it otherwise remains firmly sealed. Hearing a cry and seeking out the source of the sound among the melee of the Shawnee and the vampire hunters, you see Quincy Morris engaged in battle with a brute. The man appears to have the build and statue of, stature of a bear. Seeing the American in trouble, you leap down from the leader to assist him. Turn to 505. No choice. Okay. Oh, uh, and however, finally, we get to 505. We... And yeah, exactly. But is it 525 now or is it five 515? Uh, 515. We only add 10 when we see the crucifix symbol and we are Jonathan Harker. So we're on 515. You're momentarily taken aback. You realize that the the tall brute with a long brown beard and great black hat is the coachman who first brought you to Dracula's castle six months ago. Giving voice to a terrible roar, the great bear of a man starts to change, his body appearing to swell underneath the great fur coat and sharp claws rip through the fingertips of the thick leather gloves he's wearing. He fixes you with blazing red eyes and bears a full mouth of ursid fangs. You witness many terrible things where you're a guest of the Count, and you're not going to let this shape-changing shawnee cow you into submission. Do you want to use pen as mightier? We have two charges? Uh, we have two charges remaining. However, it says uh, if you don't oh. want to do that, make a note that in the battle you uh, to come, rather, you will have the initiative. Interesting. So do we suspect there will be... Uh, I, I imagine Harker will probably have a combat directly with Dracula. Yeah, maybe take 928 then. Yeah. If like we it. a fight with advantage should be pretty good for us. Mm -hmm. And also, we still have the full flask to drink after this. That's true. You look like you could use a hand, Quincy Moore says, joining you beside the cart. But before he can make a good good on his offer to help, the giant brute gives a terrible roar and lashes out. Quincy gasps at the brute's razor sharp claws, rake his ribs, and collapses onto the snow. 
You engage the Shawnee-shaped change here before he becomes a bear entirely. Who, Whoever has the initiative depends on how you got here. It's us. So why don't you take a couple pop shots to see if we can take away 6 HP? Absolutely. Over the moon to hear it. Let's test against our combat. Come on, come on, come on, come on! We do it. We do three endurance worth of damage to the werebear before the start of the fight. And because we succeeded on that, we get to roll again, trying to cock back the hammer and taking another shot. Unfortunately, the second shot does not land. Okay. Well, he's at seven and we uh, do have initiative. Yes, exactly. So first round of combat. <gasps> what? I suspect he's about to take the initiative as I roll Snake Eyes. Oh, I mean, he got a 17, so... Mm, beats my 13. Yep. We take two damage? And <laughs> he rolled Snake Eyes. <laughs> I'm over the moon to hear 13, it. Uh, 13. In response, we roll a 16 flat. Okay. Taking so the initiative five. back and doing two damage. Uh, the enemy has five endurance remaining. And then you have initiative back. Uh, you get to 15. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad to hear it again. We have a uh, 16. Ooh, taking him down at two, three. Okay. And <laughs> he's at 15 again. Mm -hmm. That's 19 for us. One right. more round worth of combat succeeded on our side. We'll take out the webair. Ooh, now that's a fight. That's a, that's an 18. Mm, mm, mm. The webair dies. Oh, as, really? Uh, mm-hmm. We rolled 10 on the die. We've got a plus 10 from the combat and a plus 1 from initiative for a total Dang. of 21. Blackjack. Uh, we uh, club the werebear across the face with the uh, jaw, the, sorry, the pommel, rather, of the gun. All right. If you win the fight, turn to 595. How long did your battle with the, the bear man last? If it was fewer than 10 combat rounds in duration, which, I mean, yeah. Right? Yeah, that, that significantly we, that was significantly fewer. Situation. Not even close. That's really interesting. How would we have possibly had more? I mean, I was assuming a combat... Yeah. Like, he would have had to beat the ever-loving heck out of us for us to even possibly get there. Yeah. Anyway. With a brute dead, you turn your attention to the crate of Earth, pushing your blade under the lid, and you set about prizing it open. Let me help you with that. Comes a familiar Texan draw, Quincy back on his feet, even though he's clutching bloody fingers on his left side. And so the two of you set about opening the, the portentous box, seeing themselves covered in the guns of your fellow vampire hunters and entirely at their mercy. The wanderers prostrate themselves on the ground and offer no further resistance. Under the efforts of both of you, the lid begins to yield at last. The nails come free with a sharp screeching sound and you throw the box open. There's the count. Lying within the box upon the earth, some of the mud scattered over him, his face deathly pale like a waxen image. But as you raise your weapon to finish him, his eyelids flick open, catching sight of the sinking sun. The look of hate within his blazing blood-red eyes turns to triumph, and his features take on a demonic leer that's painted crimson by the sunset. Take a terror test, adding one to the dice roll if you have the code word Borzalum, which we don't, right? We do not know. If you pass, turn to 19. If you fail, turn to 39. Terror test is roll four dice and roll We better. roll four and we need greater or equal to the terror score. The terror score for uh, Harker is currently six. 
<laughs> I rolled so bad and I beat it. I got a incredible. I got I got a seven. <laughs> on four That'll dice. Do. On four dice. But it doesn't even matter. Uh if you pass turn to 19. Okay, 19. Doop, doop, doop. And then your blade in hand, and you slice its keen edge through the vampire's throat. A look of horror in his face, Dracula stumbles away from you, clutching the wound as blood pumps between his clawing fingers. Suddenly, Quincy Morris is there behind you. With a shout of rage and effort, he plunges his great bowie knife into the monster's heart. Before your very eyes, and almost in the drawing of a breath, the vampire's entire body crumbles into grave dust. First the flesh and the skeleton beneath, which disperses on the wind, and in a moment, is gone. Against all odds, you put an end to the undead tyranny of Dracula, King of Vampires. Turn to 380. Okay. The wolves and wanderers have flown, other than those whose corpses litter the ground around you. While Castle Dracula is nothing more than a grim silhouette against a darkening sky. But then there comes a terrible convulsion of earth that sends your party falling to their knees at the same moment with a roar that seems to shake the very heavens. The whole of the castle, the crag upon which it stands, seems to rise into the air and scatter to fragments between the mighty cloud of black and yellow smoke blasts upwards from the sundered ground. When the smoke clears, nothing of Dracula's ghost-haunted lair even remains. After the cataclysmic destruction of the castle, an eerie stillness falls like a funeral pall over the mountains. As the thunderclap of the castle's destruction rolls away over the valleys and chasms of the Carpathians. While the rest of you get to your feet, Quincy Morris remains on the ground, leaning on one elbow, hand pressed to his side. And you can see the blood is still gushing through his fingers. You go over to him, as is Dr. Seward, Lord Godalming, Professor Van Helsing, and your dear Mina kneeling behind him, laying the wounded men's head against your shoulder. With a feeble sigh of effort, he takes Mina's hand in his, and seeing the anguish in her heart in her face, he smiles and says, I'm only too happy to have been of any service. Oh, God. He cries suddenly, struggling into a sitting position and pointing to your wife. It was worth dying for this. Look. Mina's face suddenly seems bathed, bathed in a rosy light, and as if with one impulse, the other gentlemen sink to their knees, deep in earnest. Amen. Breaks from the lips of everyone as, following Quincy's pointing finger, your eyes rest upon the unblemished skin of your wife's forehead. Now, God be thanked that it's all not been in vain. The Texan gasps. See? The snow is not more stainless than her forehead. The curse has passed away. And to your bitter grief, but with a smile on his lips, Quincy dies, a gallant gentleman, to the very end. Turn to page 1000. Jonathan Harker's Journal. Take it away, Raps. The 6th of November, 1904. Seven years ago, we all went through the flames, and the happiness of some of us since... Uh, sorry, and the happiness of some of us since then is, we think, well worth the pain we endured. It is an added joy to Mina and me that our boy's birthday is on the same day as that on which Quincy Morris died. His mother holds, I know, the secret belief that some of our brave friend's spirit has passed on to him. His bundle of names links all our tiny little band of men together. But we call him Quincy. In the summer of this year, we made a journey to Transylvania, and went over the old ground which was, and is, to us so full of vivid and terrible memories. Yet, 
It was almost impossible to believe that things that we had seen with our very own eyes and heard with our very own ears were living truths. Every trace of all that was had been blotted out. When we got home, we were all talking about that old time which we could all look back to on without despair, for Godalming and Seward were both happily married. I took the papers from the safe where they had ever been since our return so long ago. We were struck with the fact that, in all the mass of material of which the record is composed, there is hardly one authentic document, nothing but a mass of handwriting, except the later notebooks of Mina and Seward and myself, and Van Helsing's memorandum. We could hardly ask anyone, even if we wished to, to accept these as proof of so wild a story. Van Helsing summed it up as well when he said, with our boy on his knee, We want no proofs, and we ask none to believe us. This boy will someday know what a brave and gallant woman his mother is. Already, he knows her sweetness and loving care. Later on, he will understand how some men so loved her that they did damn much for her sake. The, the end. end. Let's go. I will say, it was a banger. It's an incredible book. I, for what it's worth, uh, again, uh, what, what is the link that we're looking for? Because I, I don't know if it's necessarily ace game books anymore. Uh, yeah, there, there is... If you go to acegamebooks.com, you can go there and it'll lead you to places... Or you can go to Jonathan Green Author uh, dot or com. That works too. Uh, so Jonathan Green, to be clear, spent, spelled J O N A T H A N. Jonathan Green. Uh, go go look him up. And on Drive Through RPG is where I have picked up and purchased all of these. I think that. That is a place that is linked to by Jonathan uh, on the websites and places. But I think going to, yeah, the acegamebooks.com and then going to, you know, the correct venues from there is what I would recommend in case I'm wrong on that front. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's so good. And like a big reminder, we didn't see like even just focusing on two characters, we didn't see everything. Like yep. in every situation, we could have even just even though we played two characters, we could have been the inverse characters in all of those situations and gotten a completely different story. We could have I exactly. don't know played the doctor, uh, <laughs> the doctor character, which is a whole part of the book on the good side of things that we didn't do. Not to mention the elephant in the room that there's an entire half of the book where you just play as Dracula, and you try and stop the hunters which is pretty darn crazy uh mm -hmm. and it's just like i don't know it's i think it's gotta be it's gotta be like the most well written of any of the game books we've done i don't know it's so yep. good it's uh, so good by a mile by by a country mile and like it's like just a good and serious story such a fun interpretation and, and like in game book interpretation of you know, this kind of fantasy. I really, really liked it. I think, like, mechanically, it's using the game book stuff in a very fun, not overbearing way. Like, the fighting mechanic is very simple, but also gets the job done in a way that's, like, an exciting back and forth that doesn't waste your time too much. It's just, like, mm -hmm. it's just all across the board. This is, it was so good. It was so, so good. 
I loved it. It's exceptionally well paced as well for something yes. that you have the ability to swap between all of these different characters. Like, oh. and, and, and to never lose things making sense in like while juggling all this stuff because of like the the you know the special secret word kind of system. It, you know, like I don't think that this invented it per se. Maybe that I don't. I'm not fully aware, but I'm pretty sure that that's something that's been used in others. But it's like it's a good system for keeping things in track and marking things off. But still, like this book, it is, you know, uh, there's it's 690 full pages long, with you know 1,000 uh, entries in it. Entries, yeah, is probably the way to put it, uh, and that's crazy. All like keeping everything all straight and clean, like feeling good, not feeling like it's dragging or anything. Like, you know, this was this it, it was five hours of recording time, but like, if it weren't for the fact that it, it's just like we're on a timer in real life, it didn't feel too like it didn't feel slow at any point to me. Mm -hmm. And it just felt good. I just liked it so much, but. Any other things you want to say before we wrap up? Uh, only that I believe you know these kinds of books can can culminate and end in any any number any number rather number. of different fashions, number of different fashions. Um, and it's worth noting because the last pursuit was the low blood version of that that we probably just interrupted him getting to his final area and yeah. took control of the fight that way. Whereas I can only imagine all number of different scenarios where we would have had to fight Dracula himself. Yeah, I feel like this was one where it kind of feels like we outplayed... It felt like we outplayed the book. I mean, obviously we did because like it's, just, it's a book. It's designed, you know. It felt like we were strategically smart in the decision-making and organizing process in a way that really ended up rewarding us, even with our kind of like early, I wouldn't call it haphazard, you know, skipping over the doctor character, because it was very intentional to mm. keep this from being like, that would have added probably an extra hour onto this podcast, um, if I were to guess. So with even just with just the first part, because in the second half of the book, it kind of felt like they were taking place of each other where that first part mm -hmm. was like, this is the character you're learning everything about it. But I could even be wrong because I think that if we didn't swap to Mina, we probably would have learned more about what happened to Jonathan in Dracula's castle is my educated yes. guess. So like, I don't just thinking about all of the different possible outcomes of this is really, really interesting and I cannot stress how much that I recommend if you liked this, that you pick it up and you go through this in a different way than us or even the same way, but just seeing the other characters story flip inverse. Like I, I mm -hmm. can't, it just seems super, super compelling to me. And I don't know, maybe there's a, a world where we, uh, we return to this for a future Halloween at some point and do the Dracula angle or something. Who knows? That could be a lot of Extremely fun. Extremely tempting of an idea. Very tempting. Uh, but anyway, you want to say, well, a, who sponsored this episode here? I do indeed. Indeed. Thank you very much to the sponsor of this episode, the executive producer, Unknown Chicken. <laughs> what beautiful <laughs> music you make. Mm. <laughs> kind we, of like that. We ate chicken earlier in this book. I remember. Those were simpler times. 
we replenished mm. unnecessary uh, unnecessary endurance, but it's okay because at the time that was unknown. Exactly. Chicken. I prefer to get my roast chicken in the Castle Dracula by smacking walls with a whip like God intended. It's so true. So true. But anyways, with the Giga episode done, you know, a huge thank you to everybody who listened. Huge thank you to everybody who did support on Patreon. Patreon.com slash turn to pagecast if you want to help support this so we can do these big episodes and, you know, justify the massive time commitment and pay for the cool art that you see and, you know, get all of that stuff. If you want to help with that, patreon.com slash turn to pagecast to help us, you know, be able to justify this extremely lengthy involvement uh, in the podcast. But if you have anything you want to send to us as far as like, you know, just something you want to give us a suggestion or just a message you want to get to us privately, uh, turn to pagecast at gmail.com. You can send us an email there. Or if you want to talk in a more public setting, we do have a comment section over on YouTube, youtube.com slash at turn to pagecast. Uh, very lovely people over there that you can converse with this episode, you know, converse with on this episode in the comment section. And while you're there, you'll do a little subscribe and a like and stuff. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, perhaps, perhaps. Would certainly be kind of you to do so. I will also note, uh, thank you to Sam Karen for the new thumbnail yes. art that you will have seen represented for this episode, wherein we are ourselves vampire hunters. It's so good. I, I told Sam this. I think it's like one of my favorite things that Sam has done in. It slaps it's, hard. And it's, it's so good. Unfortunate. We can only use it once a year. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's... Well, and the thing is, even if we use it next year, we'll be the freaking... We'll be wrong, because we'll be the vampire. Anyways. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's an unfortunate one-time use, but, like, it's so good that I'm going to love it forever. Uh, it's so good. It's so good. Anyways, this has been long enough. We'll wrap it up. Uh, are you even still listening to this on Halloween? Probably not. But happy generally Halloween uh, for for you listener but alas alas that's that it's gonna do it here for this podcast and we are gonna see you next time bye bye adios bleh